Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nosara. Infinite blessings on this very special day as we start the month of May. May 1st, of course, is the cross point between the spring equinox and the summer solstice called Beltane. And we'll talk about Beltane in just a second. May 1st is also the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker and consider the Ascension Day of St. Germain. So St. Joseph was one of the incarnations of St. Germain, so we celebrate him today as well. Before we go into our meditation, let me share a little bit further. Um, May 1st or May Day is a day of various celebrations and commemorations from ancient times to the present. It is a festival of flora, the Roman goddess of flowers. Floralia was a five-day Roman celebration. For the Druids, a new fire was lit on Beltane, or May Day, signifying the life of the springtime sun. Cattle were driven through the fires for purification. In Catholicism, May is Mary's month. And in India and other places throughout the world, it is considered International Workers' Day. In China, it's Labor Day, a public holiday. And, of course, May Day used to be celebrated with lots of dancing and festivities around a maypole, that circle dance with ribbons, and celebrated springtime fertility early harvest with festivals and community gatherings. In America, May Day is International Workers' Day, Loyalty Day, and Law Day, L-A-W. So let's go ahead and go into our meditation. We'll talk a little bit further after that about Beltane as we set the intention well, let's just do this. Beltane, we said, is an annual Celtic festival, a celebration of spring and nature's wild abundance and fertility. In the Celtic tradition, it is a celebration of the sacred marriage between the goddess of spring or May Queen and the green man or making. So let us go ahead and set our intention on this sacred day for that sacred marriage to take place within. For the marriage of the divine masculine and divine feminine to take place and for our beings to come into divine harmony and balance. So please take the journey into your sacred heart. 
take a deep breath, set the rest of the world aside as you truly enter into the portal to all that is. We call forth now the full emergence with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, our mighty I am presence. As our I am presence, we are one with the I am presence of all humanity. So let us decree that now. Please state either silently or out loud, I am my I am presence. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all my family members and loved ones. I am one with the I am presence of all that is. With that, we invite the I am presence of every man, woman, and child to join us in unity consciousness to anchor the highest of ascension frequencies on this sacred date. For both individual and collective ascension, both on a planetary and cosmic level. To participate with us, we invite in all of our soul extensions. Again, we do this for everyone. All soul extensions, planetary and galactic. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward. All of our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the divic kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters from the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the enlightened masters, all of the Divine Mother and Divine Father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light and all of their healing teams. We welcome all of our precious brothers and sisters from the Galactic Federation, especially those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus. We welcome the inner Earth temple workers. We work. We welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service, and ask for the highest blessings on the sacred at the sacred time. We call forth the entire company of heaven and ask that our Mother, Father, God overline all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold, individually and collectively in divine order for each being. 
we call forth all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. With every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. Within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field, multidimensionally. We call forth at this time all that we receive for Gaia and all upon her. Through Gaia's chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field, multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line, through the grid systems, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. Through every molecule of water, molecule of soil, molecule of air, through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light, as we continue this amazing journey of ascension along with Gaia as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. See yourself in your magnificent pillar of light as we recommit ourselves in this amazing ascension energy. The energies of the violet flame, the energies of ascension of white and gold, and every frequency we could possibly need. Fully anchored deep into the heart of Gaia and fully anchored to source as we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. On this sacred day of Beltane, as well as throughout the magical month of May, So I'm going to share at this time the powerful opportunities for May 2021. This report came from Patricia Cotarobles, airofpeace.org, and she writes, the beings of light in the realms of illumined truth refer to May as the mystical month of May. This is because of the various celestial alignments and assistance from the heavenly realms that humanity is blessed with during May. So it's going to be an extremely, extremely powerful, powerful month. Okay. So this year, due to all the incredible shifts that we've been experiencing since the March equinox, humanity and Mother Earth are being given even more opportunities than usual to transcend the chaos, and to lift into the light during this mystical month of May. The Company of Heaven would like to share with us the assistance that we will be given in May to help us let go of the past and to move forward in the light. Needless to say, it is always to our great benefit if we choose to take advantage of the divine intervention that we are being offered from on high. As I stated earlier, May 1st is celebrated as St. Germain's Ascension Day. 
every year on the sacred and holy day, St. Germain directs his legions of violet fire archangels to bless the earth with intensified frequencies of the violet flame. So see that now, part of the energies that came in that I saw. The violet flame, see it surrounding the planet. Might as well do our work while we're listening to the information. See it, sense it, and feel it. The maximum that we can receive individually and collectively. As the violet flame is a frequency of life from our Mother, Father, God, that most effectively transmutes our human miscreations back into light. During the month of May, we will experience some new and incredibly powerful frequencies of the fifth dimensional crystalline solar light. Every influx of light pushes the negativity that conflicts with that light to the surface to be healed and transmuted back into its original perfection. In order to prevent this influx of light from exasperating humanity's challenges, St. Germain is directing his violet flame archangels to bathe the earth and all her life in the most intensified frequencies of the violet flame that cosmic law will allow all throughout the entire month of May. Embodied light workers can assist with the efficacy of this heavenly gift of sacred fire by invoking the violet flame on a regular basis. If we will ask our I am presence to consecrate our life force to be the open door for this influx of the violet flame on behalf of the masses of humanity, the elemental kingdom and Mother Earth, it will help immensely. 2021 is numerically a five year. Two plus zero plus two plus one equals five. This means that May 5th, 2021 is the fifth day of the fifth month of a five year. In other words, a five, five, five day. The beings of light revealed that this numerical frequency is forming a gateway and creating the space for a new star date into the fifth dimensional frequencies of crystalline solar light. On May 5th, 2021, this 555 stargate will be open for the very first time. So we will be celebrating that with a class that night on May 5th. In any case, we will be experiencing this 555 stargate and the fifth dimensional frequencies of light that will bless the earth through the stargate will move Mother Earth and all her life, evolving uh, upon her forward in the light in new ways. So we are being told by the company of heaven that this assistance is being allowed by cosmic law because of the overwhelming progress that has been made during the influxes of light, awakening humanity is co-created with the company of heaven since the equinox on March 21st. This influx of divine light that will bless the earth through this new stargate is designed to move humanity into a new spectrum of possibilities. The beings of light said that it will pave the way for powerful interdimensional changes 
that will move us closer to the evolutionary shift into unity consciousness, that awakening humanity is being called to co-create with the company of heaven this year. The light flowing through this new stargate will help us to let go of the past. Remember, there is no turning back. The more we try to hold on to the painful and obsolete miscreations of our past, the more difficult our ascension process will be. Any resistance will slow down our progress and create more pain and suffering for us. The end result, however, will be the same. In the end, we will all be abiding on the new Earth in our fifth-dimensional crystal and solar-like bodies. Then we will experience the wonders of the patterns of perfection on the new Earth that we have co-created, as well as our new planetary cause of comprehensive divine love and unity consciousness. Another wonderful thing that occurs during the month of May is that our beloved Mother Mary opens the doors to her temple of the Immaculate Heart in the inner planes. And she invites all of us to visit her in our finer bodies while we sleep at night. All we have to do is ask her I am presence to take us to Mother Mary's Temple of the Immaculate Heart before we go to sleep and it will be done. We can also ask our I Am Presence to help us bring back the conscious memory of our experience with Mother Mary when we wake up in the morning. Mother Mary's greatest responsibility is holding the Immaculate Concept for each and every one of us. Our Immaculate Concept is the Divine Blueprint pulsating within the permanent seed atom of our immaculate heart flame. This divine blueprint reflects our full divine potential, which is encoded with our newly activated 12-dimensional crystalline solar strands of DNA. At this time, Mother Mary is working with our newly integrated I Am Presence to help us bring this knowledge full divine potential to the surface of our conscious mind. Another event that greatly adds to the light of the world during the mystical month of May is the celebration of Mother's Day, which takes place in several countries. Mother's Day in the USA and Canada will be May 9th this year. In Mexico, Mother's Day is always on May 10th. In 2021, on every Mother's Day, celebrated throughout the world, our Mother God and all the feminine aspects of deity will flood the earth with even higher frequencies of our Mother God's comprehensive divine love than we have ever known. This will greatly assist awakening humanity in the process of co-creating the quantum field of comprehensive divine love that is necessary in order to manifest the evolutionary shift of consciousness that will permanently sustain the presence of unity consciousness for humanity and all life evolving on this sweet earth. That global event will take place during the 35th Annual World Congress on Illumination in August of this year. So please note she's having the World Congress on Illumination that I've attended many times in in person 
uh, she's having it online once again, so it'll be absolutely free to everyone. And I think that's fantastic. Now, one date she doesn't mention um, in between all of these other powerful dates is May 13th. I believe it's May 13th this year and Ascension Thursday. So we have, we celebrate in the month of May, St. Germain's Ascension and also the Ascension of Jesus the Christ. And then on May 23rd, as she speaks of, billions of people will celebrate Pentecost. And through that collective cup of humanity's consciousness, our Mother God, the Holy Spirit, will breathe her holy breath into every person's heart flame and bless humanity and all life on earth with the baptism by sacred fire. Then, on May 26th, we will experience the third of the three full moon festivals of spring. The first full moon festival is the Passover full moon, which is the first full moon following the March equinox. It always takes place during the sun cycle of Aries and ushers in the celebrations of Passover and Easter. The second full moon festival, this year it was a week, exactly a week ahead of Easter, both on a Sunday. So the second full moon festival takes place during the full moon, during the sun cycle of Taurus, and we just celebrated that last weekend. This is known as the Wiesach Festival and is the annual celebration of the Enlightenment of the Buddha. The third full moon festival of spring is celebrated during the full moon that occurs during the sun cycle of Gemini, which this year is May 26th. So each of these festivals have been a little bit early than what we traditionally think of them as. So this third full moon festival is known as the festival, the Goodwill Festival of Humanity. And during this full moon, the divine love of Christ from the first full moon and the divine enlightenment of Buddha from the second full moon are intensified and greatly expanded through the mental and emotional strata of Earth. This influx of light enhances humanity's ability to unify our hearts and minds with the divine heart and mind of our Mother, Father, God. This year, the Goodwill Festival of Humanity will take place during a very powerful full moon lunar eclipse. So it's amazing to have an eclipse on that day. The synchronicity of these two powerful events will provide an amazing opportunity to move forward for humanity to move forward in the light and to seal the full divine momentum of all the blessings that we will receive during the mystical month of May. Please do not let these opportunities pass you by. Listen to your heart. Invoke the light of God and focus on the patterns of perfection you want to create with our Mother, Father, God. When you are in a state of listening grace, feel the gratitude pouring forth from our Mother, Father, God, and the company of heaven in appreciation for your willingness to add to the light of the world. You are blessed beyond your knowing. So that is the message from Patty. And I will send that out to all those on my list. And just know that um, she's also inviting everyone 
to sign up for the World Congress on Elimination. That's the 14th to the 19th of August. Again, that'll be online and it'll be free. So let us call in our violet flame. Be it blazing in through and around you, in through and around the planet. As we say, in the name of the great I am, I call to beloved Saint Germain to saturate the world with waves upon waves of violet fire, to infuse every particle of life, every man, every woman, and every child on this planet in an orc field of violet flame to protect and to awaken them. I ask that this action be sustained until full perfection is restored. In the name of the I am that I am, from the Lord God of my being, I now ask that every cell, every atom, and every electron of my four body system, all my subtle bodies, every particle of life of who I am in all dimensions and states of consciousness, be totally filled with the wonders and the miracle energies of the violet flame of freedom's love. I now ask to be filled again and again, 24 hours a day, each day of my life. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Continue blazing the violet flame as we ask it to continue to flood the planet. In the name of the great I am, I call for the light of a thousand suns from the great central sun. Angels of violet fire, beloved Saint Germain, beloved Zadkiel and holy Amethyst, Amritas, ruler of the violet planet. In the name of God, goddess, I am that I am. Saturate the earth and all of her evolution with limitless waves of violet fire. I call for the action of the violet transmuting flame and the action of the will of God, goddess, to manifest on earth now and forever, an ever-increasing spiral of divine perfection. I call for all discord and activities on earth that are not reflecting the highest light and Mother, Father, God's holy purposes to be miraculously swept and transformed by the power of the violet flame into divine love and harmony for the restoration of earth and her people into their original blueprint of perfection that was originally intended. Violet flame, violet flame, oh violet flame. In the name of God, Goddess, flood the earth, her people, and all her kingdoms with oceans and oceans and oceans of violet fire until every particle of life is restored to divine perfection. May peace and love be spread throughout the earth. May the earth abide in the aura of perfect love. May the earth abide in an aura of peace, love, and freedom. 
I give thanks that it is done now according to God Goddess's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. This is the time of the Beltane Flame. And we ask to light the flame of divine passion to create the highest transformation on this planet. From the cosmic womb of the Great Mother, I call forth and invoke the legions of angels assisting Earth's evolution. Please come and stoke the muddy fires of devotion smoldering within me, increasing the intensity of my love to that of a blazing sun. In the name of the accelerated global transformation, may my body now blaze with the flames of love, wisdom, and the mighty power of divine will. May my heart be consumed with a fierce compassion for all sentient beings. May my mind be engulfed with the highest levels of creative thought and intuition. May my soul now burn through any illusions of fear and separation within my consciousness. Dear angels, please ignite a white-hot bonfire of deep passion. Deep within the world consciousness, consuming all cowardice, distraction, selfishness, and laziness. Fan the heart flame burning in the core of every human being until it bursts forth as a brilliant conflagration of unwavering devotion and humanitarian service. May this activity be ever-expanding until the evolutionary plan is fulfilled for all life on Earth. So be it, and so it is, and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. As we light this flame within, we affirm the power, the following, I am a being of flame. I am a being of flame, and I am its light. I am part of an activity reacquainting all human beings with their flame and their light. I am the flame that is the the vibration and the celebration, (laughs) the vibration of the Godhead. I am the flame that is the cohesive love which hold the sun and stars in place. I am the flame whose Power projects light rays from the sun. I am the flame that fills all the universe with the glory of itself. I am the flame, the animating principle of life. Wherever I am, there is God activity. I am the alpha and the omega of creation. I am the beginning and I am the end of manifestation. All externalization. For I am the flame, which is the source of all, 
and into which all returns. The flame which I am is a power. The flame which I am is a substance. The flame which I am is the all of everything. Energy, vibration, and consciousness and action ever fulfilling the divine plan of creation. The flame which I am will co-create the new earth and set her free eternally. The flame which I am is a fifth dimensional activity. The flame which I am is the higher law of God come to assert its full dominion over all the lesser laws of the fourth dimensional world of humanity. It is a master over every vibration lesson itself. It is all loving, all knowing, and all powerful. And I am that flame in action amongst humanity. Within the flame which I am is every good and perfect thing. Every thought and feeling my godparents have ever had for the blessing of their creation. This perfection is externalized as light. Within the flame is the seed of all things, and within the light is the full manifestation of all things. I am the flame, and I am its light. The flame which I am is available like air or water. It is everywhere present, available to those who perceive it and accept it. This is my reason for being the flame and the light embodied in a form acceptable to humanity. I am the flame, again reaching the withering souls of the human race, filling them with light, the substance of myself, my holy self. I am embodied for this reason and no other. For I am part of an activity designed to reacquaint every man, woman, and child with their flame and their light. I am a being of flame, and I am its light. I am the flame of life. I am an instrument of God, Goddess. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. As we call forth the greatest harmony and balance, especially with the full integration of our divine masculine and feminine, multidimensionally through every aspect of our being, including our left and right brain, our pituitary and pineal gland, in every aspect of the divine, feminine, and masculine throughout all time. Beloved presence of God, Goddess I am, a beloved, immortal, victorious, threefold flame of life, expand within us and in the fullness of your divine powers, raise us into your mighty perfection. Blaze forth visible to the sight of all life, and unfold all within your dazzling presence of harmony and balance. May all humanity hear and obey your mighty command for perfection to manifest now upon the earth. 
reveal your eternal law of life, the mighty truth and reality of your own being. Set all life free and hold your dominion within within us and all humanity forever. Your beloved, immortal, victorious flame of Almighty God is within each holy temple. Let all the life on earth adore its mighty power and be at peace. In humble, willing, adoring, illumined obedience to this, our one supreme source of life. Through the harmony of my true being, I perceive and externalize every minute perfect health in every cell, organ, and electron of my four lower bodies. Through the harmony of my true being, I receive and externalize every minute God's supply in limitless abundance, filling my every need. Through the harmony of my true being, I create and externalize every minute an aura of perfect peace, harmony, and balance, which acts as a natural conductor of God's will to all life wherever I am. Through the harmony of my true being, I perceive and externalize every minute the will of the Father in understanding, illumination, and freedom. So be it and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. We have one more prayer. As we call forth this harmony in all families, in every in every child, in divine order for each being. Mighty I Am Presence, great host of ascended masters, mighty legions of light, great angelic host, great cosmic beings, and great cosmic light. Come forth in your mightiest power of the violet consuming flame. Bless forever all and its cause and effect that causes discord or unhappiness of any kind between parents and children, husbands and wives, and in all family relationships. Replace all such activity by the Ascended Master's feeling of loving cooperation and complete freedom, by that divine love which transcends every human concept, and with the power of a thousand sons, release the eternal victory and freedom from within its heart, self-sustained, and ever-expanding. Please bless all the children and young people of this planet. Bless them with divine protection. Blaze forth everywhere, in, through, and around every child and young person on this planet. the mightiest action of your sword of blue flame of divine love. 
cut each one free forever from everything that would bind them in any way to any limitation of human creation or that would in any way delay the full attainment of their ascension in the light of the mighty I am presence. Charge, charge, charge them now with invincible ascended master purity, protection and perfection forever sustained. Seize and hold their attention wholly upon their own mighty I am presence and the ascended masters forever and charge them so full of that mighty perfection that never again can their attention be held by anything less than eternal perfection. Use every moment of their time to expand thy full perfection and freedom through them to bless all. Release the mighty perfection of the golden crystal age to, through them to bring the fulfillment of the Ascended Master's divine plan for America and for the world now. Expanding it until it fills the earth with its mighty glory, eternally sustained and ever expanding. So be it and so it is. On this St. Germain's Ascension Day, may we receive the highest blessings of Ascension individually and collectively for all. And we give thanks for this. We ask that all of this work be sealed, maintained, and sustained in divine order for each being, magnified collectively and individually through the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. May we experience heaven on earth and increase that energy each and every day during this mystical month of May. So I thank you for joining me in these meditations today. And I invite you to join me for further service work every Sunday and Monday, where we have the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call. Again, it's a teleconference call. And we start our program at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 20 to 25 minutes of greeting. And then Tower and Rama give us a brief update. After that, at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth, of anchoring those ascension energies, and the new golden age. If you have not joined us before, please give it a try. Let us know that you've joined us because of the Saturday program. The phone number to dial is area code 425-436-6260. Area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. Again, that's 946-7441-POUND. There are additional numbers. There are international numbers. 
there's a way to get on through the computer. My understanding, it's not my specialty, but I understand that there's also an app for pre-conference. And so if you need the additional numbers, I'd be happy to provide that. Please contact me. Email me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I, at AOL.com. With that, I'm going to wish you a most magical, mystical month. The rest of the Beltane weekend, may amazing blessings come through for us all. May it be a magnificent, magnificent time of everyone being enlightened and growing in the light as we move through to our Festival of Goodwill, the festival for all humanity to participate in the creation of heaven on earth. So have a beautiful, beautiful week. We'll celebrate Mother's Day next weekend. So I bless you and honor you. We bless and honor Taran Rama and also my sister Rainbird as I pass the talking stick. It has a beautiful violet energy. It has a white and gold, most exquisite gold of ascension. It has the colors of the threefold flame, the pink, blue, and yellow gold. And it has amazing frequencies. Just amazing. It's blazing like a fire. (laughs) So be careful when you take it. (laughs) And know that it has amazing blessings for each and every one of us. I love you all. Thank you. And I pass the talking stick to your rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. It is an amazing talking stick. (laughs) I like it. And we're grateful for your divine service as well, Cheryl. Much gratitude for your opening meditations today and each week. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listening to support it radio program. It takes all of us to make it happen. And each week we have expenses of VBS radio of $300 to cover our services there. And uh, so there's a way to, for each of us to just go and make that our contribution and participate that way. So go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the homepage, you'll see the menu for the different programs as you scroll down, or you can click on the radio station, too. But um, So as you scroll down, you'll see on the menu on the Thursday, 6 o'clock hour, as these are all Pacific times, uh, a night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that now, icon there, and it'll... Um, direct you du- directly to <laughs> our account there at CDF, as as well as the Friday night program at the six o'clock hour, the hard news program with Tara and Lama, and as well as this program at the one thirty hour, the hard uh, the true history history of this era and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. Any one of those three icons link you directly to our account there where you can make a donation in any amount using any bank card. Uh, so thank you for your generosity and thank you for taking that action. We're grateful. And then we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs and this week their rent was due today and so I want to just say much gratitude for all of 
all of you who have contributed for the event. And <clears throat> we're, we're so grateful <laughs> that they can stay there on Metal Month. So just want to express that gratitude. So here's what we need this week. They have $500 in bills that are due right now, and so we need assistance there. So here's how you make a contribution to Tara and Rama or link to Rama's PayPal account. You'll find it at the website, and the website address is www.rainbowroundtable.com. And there on the homepage, you click on the menu, and you'll see the link near the bottom of the menu for uh, a donate page, and that links you to Rama's PayPal account. So, uh, so there you can make a donation in any amount. And also, if you have your own PayPal account, you can go into your own account and uh, link to Rama's account through his email there. And that email address for Rama at PayPal is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999949 at hotmail.com. And then as you click, as you enter that gifting amount you want to make, the window will drop down with the word change. Click on that, and that leads you to the options for friends. And so that's how we do that. That just eliminates the commercial charges. Either way, is perfect. We're grateful for your donation. Much gratitude. So, uh, as you're sending something, you need to let Rama know, and that um, that address is... I I forgot to tell you something else. I'll get back to it. So, his mailing address is Ram B. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, in the post office box, 280... 280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And the zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it. So uh, I forgot to mention that in, included with the bills of $500, they need $200 for food for the car, the Peshats, and Tara and Rama. So <laughs> we, we need those. Uh, living expenses there as well. So $700 altogether. And so just each of us go into our heart space and see what is yours to give and, and then take that action with much gratitude. Much gratitude to Tara and Rama and all they do. Gratitude to BBS Radio and how they support us. And for all of you and all that you do to support us. It, it, it's really wonderful that we can get her done this way so much gratitude 13 thank yous and honey in the heart and I will give you the free mart address as a, a fundraising site and you can use, use it for fundraising for yourself as well as accessing some very amazing products so check it out that address https colon forward slash forward slash and then www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M and that should take you directly to the Rainbow Roundtable account and it's listed as 2013 RB and it's count number 7,000. So you know you're in the right place when you're there. And <laughs> so lots of gratitude for all of you and I'm passing this talking stick and 
definitely has that violet flame on it, and the and the threefold flame, the, the blue and the pink and the yellow gold, and then the the, the gold rays uh, and the white rays and everything else that make it wonderful and beautiful. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Greetings. <laughs> Happy May Day, Lay Day, Beltane, once again. And it's China's Labor Day today. That's very yeah, intimate. Yeah. Oh, my. Um, uh, everybody, let's keep India in the circle of support. In a 24-hour period, they had 400,000 new cases, and they're nowhere near. They have to drive to the people's homes to pick up dead bodies. And then yeah, it's not pretty. build a pyre and burn the bodies right away. And just in one little section, they've got like 42 ambulances running back and forth getting the bodies. In just one little section. Uh, I'm just saying it's uh, like the whole help hospital system, it's, it's pretty much collapsed. And uh, I'm just saying this is... What we need to know about it is that it's been intentional. And the virus things, which all the light workers have been annual, analyzing upside down, backwards and forwards and all of that, that was a cover story. In other words, they've got other sources of biological and technological um, energies that they have been using and they just made up the whole rest of the story. So the part that's difficult is helping the people to understand how evil this has been. I was just talking with a sister here. Yeah, this makes Darth Vader and the Emperor look like church boys with what these folks have done. And it's about the fallen angels, and this is why, on a more serious note, Dr. Greer is saying to us, hello, wake up, folks. They want to play with a fake alien invasion, and they're going to be met by Captain Astar and quite a few other folks, and we're going to have to figure out how to talk to each other, because it's a different day. And this is not just a joke, and they would like to make it look like Independence Day, the movie, and it ain't going to be that way, even though a lot of folks have put that story out there in place of violent fire. Um, no War of the Worlds. I mean, that has gone on so long across the galaxy um, I can just say what I heard today. I went up to the fairy ring and just sat, listened to the energies, because it's May Day, Lay Day. You're supposed to go to the fairy ring and dance and call in the energies for the goddess to show up as we go from, I guess, today to 
the summer solstice where they call that the death of the king and the um they call the solstice the death of the king i believe i could have it backwards but what at, does that at, mean? at the winter solstice they call that the rise of the king because the sun is rising again but at the summer solstice they call that the death of the king i believe so it's heading toward the cold time that's right yeah in it's uh, gonna be really hot in the kitchen for a while though the summer in australia and new zealand yeah winter time coming up well yeah but what i'm saying is um we're having major fires. Yes, we are. And that was the last week of April. That's absurd. And so what's the temperature going to look like this summer? <clears throat> and that's the concern. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime... Let's call in all the fairies and the angels and have the salamanders cool their jets, as my sister said, in terms of making things hotter. Cool off. Salamanders are fire fire elementals. Yes, they are. Uh, They can calm down, you know. And uh, let's call in the rain spirits rain dancers they do rain dances right native americans do rain dances yes pray rain don't pray for rain pray rain (laughs) uh yeah we haven't had hadn't had what we need here so and then in the news it's insane i mean florida's passed new voting restrictions they limit the use of the drop boxes they limit who can collect and drop off ballots they require voters to request absentee ballots for each election they require new id requirements to vote absentee all part of the fallen matrix and they did some similar things in Texas and in Georgia and Arizona. And it's just going to go wild. And and this audit of Arizona's elections, it's going to go all over the place. They're going to, you know, Trump's going to make it happen. And every possible red state he can get. And they're using ultraviolet light to try to say they can detect stuff that you can't detect detect under normal circumstances what have we got to lose here let's go go for broke you know in the sense of what does it take to wake up what does it take to wake up to what's really going on here uh miss vasugian she did another interview with (laughs) mr fauci and uh, what's his name that's in New York? Ball, uh, what's his name? Uh, he's, he's the, he's the governor of New York? Oh, Governor Como. No, not him. The oh. mayor of New York then. Bill de Blasio. Yeah, Bill de Blasio announced that, 
on July 1st, New York City was going to completely open 100%. Oh, my. Yeah. And the thing is that you cannot believe anything you're hearing at all about any of it. I don't know if I got that across, but there is something else on the agenda. And it's interesting that Joe Biden uh, used 9-11 as the day when they're going to call they're going to call the uh, they're going to call the soldiers back home from Afghanistan. And and I have heard today that the Taliban or whoever's over there are not going to follow the conditions that were set up. So that means that they are going to take pot shots against the U.S. forces or the other international forces there. Yes, and just remember when they say Al-Qaeda, it's all CIA, duh. So the CIA is making arrangements and paying off the Taliban to do that against our own soldiers. And then they're saying that Al-Qaeda is an Islamic criminal enterprise when it's a CIA deep state enterprise. Let's get these all clear. In other words, we're setting it up to harm our own soldiers. That's the level of evil that's going on. And Joe Biden's not alive. He's been probably gone since last year when they got rid of permanently removed Anglica Merkel. Don't know, say. So the deep state, the evil part of the deep state, which is evil is evil is evil, <laughs> has been arranging these things to use. In other words, they're using the dead uh, clone, cloned a dead edifice image of Joe Biden to proceed forward with killing more people. Does it get any more evil? So we know all of this. And what we do is we remain in the pursuit of higher wisdom, higher knowledge, and inner peace, and... Um, you might say remembering who we are and remembering to stay in the high heart. How else can we put that? Can we I got a text message from Tom and Sweet Angelique and they said, we're hunting. And I asked where? And they said, Washington, D.C. So... And then what did they say? Um, there, yeah, and then there's nothing more to say, right? They, you know what they're hunting for in Washington, D.C., right? It's a metaphor, but, you know, Rudy Giuliani is front and center at the moment. Well, he's in New York. 
Matt Gates is another one he's that's in Florida. from Santa. He's in Florida, and, but he's in he's um, in Congress, right? No, what's yeah, he's in Florida. He's in the Florida state legislature. Matt Gates is from Florida. No, but is he um, federally in the Congress in Washington? Or yeah, he's he... a congressman. Okay, so he's in Washington. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, and he's quite evil because he's tied in with the QAnon drama. And what is being done is that's part of the continuing fallen matrix that's continuing to collapse. What is QAnon? Yeah. Yes, QAnon is part of the deep state operatives. And so the message to people that are listening here is that none of that is of the light. And it's really important to remain in unconditional divine neutrality as you are going to witness stories or, you know, use your discernment to see what you believe is true or not about what you're hearing, whether it's Fox News, MSNBC. Or the Internet itself. CNN. Yes, and that's another thing. As cash is on this telegram, what do you call telegram? It's like a messenger service like Twitter. Yeah. But it's different than Twitter. The thing is that you can see all kinds of other things going on there. Yeah. You just have to remember that the, um, the CEO of that operation and all of their uh, Parler is another messenger service that is connected with the right wing. Yeah, extreme right wing. Yes. Extreme right wing. And so you might see other things while you're there doing stuff. And they are stories. And a lot of them are true, but they're very, 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 very skewed in the sense of the point of view of those that are CEOs of those enterprises. So that it doesn't necessarily help the energies of light. And as you're going to see those things, and don't just read headlines, Read the details and call in your guides and your spirit guides and, you know, the higher forces of light so that you can teach something, not just get involved with the fear and fascination of the dark side. And make sure that when you're reading something like that, that you actually teach love in the process. It's really important. Otherwise, the evil takes over and uses you as a conduit. You know, that's that's interesting statement. Fear and fascination. Putting those two words together. Mm-hmm. People are fascinated with things that are fearful. That's it's just 
human nature, you know. Uh, I'm just going to say that it's more important than ever to raise our consciousness and to call in our higher angel and angels. And yes, we must know what's really going on. And Rama's got that as his primary mission. He didn't just choose this. He made a commitment to it. Uh, to fulfill. Yeah, I, I, I did when um, when I saw what was going on in Vietnam in 67, 68, I was 13, 14, 15, I said, no, we're not going to play with war any longer. Yeah, and then you had to learn how to do that. Correct. With grace. Yeah. And ease. And take right action. And that's been the history of humanity. And the ones that are identifying with the corporation, it's just like we were talking about. It all started in 1949. That's 72 years ago, everybody with one person and they were all let's get this straight all those 40 note holders thousands of trillions of dollars of value and everything that you consider of value that's on this planet were being represented by the dark side so Sam Brown was one of 40 note holders he had a hundreds of trillions of dollars in his in his quote-unquote care. You might say that was the reboot of all reboots. Yeah. To take the step of the corporation to take over the planet, you know, in behalf of the fallen angels. That's the real deal. In other words, the fallen angels wanted to possess this planet and control it. And they can't. Well, they've done a darn good job of getting ultra close to doing it. And it ain't over till the fat lady sings, right? (laughs) And that's a humorous little line. The enactment of the Sarah as the law of the land represents that shift. So what do you want to play, Rama? Let's do that. Um, This is... Cryon explains why it's so special to see 1111 and other repeating numbers. And in Tanya Gabrielle's message that I printed out to this morning, she talks about the 111111. I know I printed this. When you print something like that, you got to give it to me. Is that over there? Um, well, this is from yesterday. Um, maybe that's it. I read that yesterday. This says the sun shines the mm. light on Uranus today mm. at 10 degrees Taurus. Oh, what is that? No, one? that's an older one. Okay. I'm losing it. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, you know. Yeah. She talks about... Um, 
Uh, no, she doesn't talk about 11, so maybe you can go. Oh, it's in the new new video. That's where I saw it. What new video? Um. <laughs> Today is an 11 day. That's for sure. Today is May, which is a five month. It's the Taurus, first, new and then moon. 2021 is a 5, so 5 and 5 is 10, and 1 is an 11. It's 11 days. She's talking about 11, Taurus, new moon, May 11th. The 11, 11. Oh, May 11th. Yeah. Okay. I'm jumping ahead. That's what I saw. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, well, that's all good, because that brings heaven to earth. Yeah. The number 11 is parallel universes, but... It actually, we are the bridge between the parallel universes of heaven and earth. So, as we take, my first name that my parents gave me was Marilyn, and it adds up to an 11. So, in my first uh, sound of who they acknowledged me as, they acknowledged me as a master of the 11 vibration. Whether they knew it or not. Whether I knew it or not. So those are good things. But let's, what are you going to play here, Rama? Read, read, read what it is before you play it. Cryon explains why it's so special to see 11, 11 and other repeating numbers. Oh, you're going to play Cryon first? Oh. I thought you were going to play Freddie Silva first. Oh, I can do that. Sure. Now you got everybody all. <laughs> Freddie Silva, a traveler and citizen of the world, shares his journey of becoming a guide to ancient civilizations and their temples. These buildings and circles are still accessible in our current era to help us reconnect to the wisdom of the past. And as you go to like Stonehenge or Gobeki Tepe or um, uh, Machu Picchu and you sing to the stones and you work with the crystalline energy portals will open you just better know where you're going with the right intentions here we go okay Coming. Got the sound up in the corner there. Yeah. Oops. I'm Freddie Silver. And uh, in this lifetime, anyway, I am a researcher of ancient systems of knowledge and a best-selling author, documentary filmmaker, wannabe musician, and generally a person who likes to find out what makes things tick. I'm what we consider to be a security risk. I have three passports and three nationalities. I was born in Portugal in a place oh called the Garden of the Gods in Sintra. Uh, it's a place where they have sacred sites going back 6,000 years. 
it, it literally looks like the Garden of Eden. It's a, it's a place in an arid environment that is this bucolic garden. It's a very lonely childhood. I mean, I didn't really get along with my peers. I was blonde and kind of blue-green eyed. And I am six foot five, for heaven's sake. I don't look like an average Portuguese person. And the fact that I, I love geology, I love playing with the stones. And the stones had little bits of gold in it, and bits of dinosaurs. They were everywhere where we lived. I dangled from trees, which were fruit trees. My passion was actually in the lands, where my research really goes back to. But my parents' idea of a great time was for me to become a banker or a lawyer or a, an architect. So I didn't really get any consolation from them. There was one year when my biological parents moved to London and left me alone with my grandparents. And it was it was sad, but I look back at it now with great fondness because I learned so much from these two people who were peasants living in the eastern part of Portugal, uh, very poor. And we had no electricity, no running water, no toilets. If you wanted to excuse yourself in the middle of the night, you had to go and cross the train track and, you know, pull down your, your drawers over a cliff and hope that the wind wasn't too cold. And that's what you call developing character. But it was the most spiritual experience I had because I suddenly realized that my grandparents, being so close to the land and having so little immaterial goods, understood the rhythm of nature. My grandmother was born on Beltane, which is a, a Celtic feast. My grandfather was born on the spring equinox. They were like two divine beings. My parents migrated to London when I was eight, so I went to England, which is why I developed this ridiculous accent. I had to literally <laughs> cram English into my understanding within three months. Uh, and because, you know, you're a foreigner in a foreign land, everybody's beating up on you and you wear glasses and you're taller than everybody else. You're a target. You know, so it was a difficult childhood. I have no way of belonging. It's like I sort of got dumped here from a different planet and was left on my own. So I began to develop my own system of uh, belonging to the world and uh, I kind of got involved much more into material things. And it was at a meeting with Freddie Mercury, of all people, when I was walking back from school, uh, back in the days when he was dating women, and I walked behind him, and there's two gods, they were dressed in pure black leather, long, dark hair all the way down to their waist. And I thought, who are these gods? I must have been 12. And I walked past them, Mr. Mercury, I've got all your albums. Well, all two of them, yes. Well done. And I thought, I want to be like this guy. I want to have a woman that looks like a goddess, and I want to go on stage and be a god. And it kind of drove me. I had the hair and the pose and everything. I like the idea of having a thousand people showing me their armpits after I played the power chord. But I also knew I didn't have the talent it took to be a rock star. At least I was quite sensible. So I think I was in England for about 20 years. I left when I was 28. And I moved to America. I initially moved to Chicago. Um, and then I went to advertising, a creative director, and an art director and a writer. But it was very unsatisfactory. It was making a lot of money, but I felt that like I wasn't really doing what I was supposed to be doing. You buy the big house, the sports car, and the two pussycats, you get married. And something's missing. <laughs> it was around about 1992. Now, I got laid off, like everybody else in America. And I was watching something on television. And uh, it was a news item. And there was a combine harvester going through a field. And it kind of looked like England. 
Recently, a new kind of temple has appeared in the landscape. And I was looking at this mysterious symbol being plowed out by a machine, and I knew exactly what it was. I couldn't explain it. Although they gained prominence in the media during the late 1980s, the crop circles can be traced back to 1680. I've seen this before, but I can't explain it. And at that moment, something clicked, and my commercial career went like this. But my spirituality was beginning to go up, and I, at some point, something just crossed, and I said, "I'm going to take a big leap of faith." But in order to do it properly, I have to give up my life. I have to give up my marriage, my house, my cars. The cats are gone. That was hard, and take, my whole life literally just got destroyed within a month, which is wonderful fun. And I moved back to England. I was thrust out of work because my passion was elsewhere. Not just researchers from an armchair. You have to go back and breathe it, drink it, touch it, talk to people. Without the experience, there's something missing. So I just took a car and I went to the fields. I got out and I walked in and went, "That's interesting." I think that there's a god that protects stupid tourists, and、uh, I'm one of them. <laughs> and、uh, I just felt very guided all along the way. I'd go into a, a crop circle at night and I said, "How does this relate to?" Human consciousness, and how does this evolve? This and that and that, and I don't know. And next thing I know, I'm levitating above the ground. I'm watching my arms floating past me, and I have these six people,、uh, three on either side, one at the very end, with one behind them. I can see them as clearly as it was yesterday. They're very tall, very slim, dressed in this beautiful white satin, and the person at the end of my feet is making these gestures like Balinese dancers. Very elegant, and I thought, "Oh, I see, I get it." It was like a, a, a subconscious communication that was going on, and then I heard a click, and I hit the ground with such a thud that I still had a bump on my head the next morning. And back in the day when we used cassettes, I took a little cassette tape,、uh, the music of John Seary, and it was on the C90 tape, so I had 45 minutes. So I know that that experience lasted for 45 minutes because the moment I left the body. And then I hear this click is when the tape stops. And when you get levitated and you go out of body and you see people in the other world and you feel a sense of this loving support and you go, there's something very important that I don't know what it is, but my curiosity will see it through. It was at that moment that I suddenly realised I had a job to do, and I was doing it not because I wanted to, but because I was being pushed in that direction. And.、Um, I began to learn about the mysteries of the ancient world, about the invisible universe—gods, spirits, whatever you want to call them, demons.、Uh, I wrote a book,、uh, which I had no intention of doing, and it becomes a best-selling book,、uh, translated into six languages. And here I am, twenty odd years later, still touring. These people that we're depicting in the petroglyphs are called lookers and the watchers, and these are the people that also appear around eleven thousand years ago, just before a big flood consumes the whole of the earth. And also the fundamental consciousness now of who's behind the core group of, of the phenomenon. Just kept sending out the story, sending out the story, but there was something nagging me about this. I figured I've got this backwards. I really should have been researching ancient sacred sites because the one thing I learned more about crop circles was about understanding how ancient temples. Work because crop circles and ancient temples are the same thing. 
One is made of stone, the other one is made of crushed wheat. Kumanaku is probably the world's oldest temple. The megaliths along its central plaza reference significant celestial events along the horizon in 15,000 BC. The stones, quarried as much as 55 miles away, were said to have been moved through the air to the sound of a trumpet. They function exactly the same principles. They are achieving the same ends, which is the alteration of consciousness. And then that led me to write the second book. And the information just came out so quickly because I've already experienced so much of it. It really wrote itself in a few months. On this one, you have totally outdone yourself. I've been a fan of your work since the crop circle work. This is a different octave of information. It's the essential guide to how these things actually do what they do. Every single text says that within these arcs, there were seven sages that uh, survived the flood. They all knew the knowledge of temple building. They knew how to locate the Earth's hot spots. And after the flood receded, they were to go walk about, build primordial mounds, and then these mounds would form the basis of the future historic temples, the ones that we see today. We're talking about a span here of over 8,000 years. It's a long time. I'm slowly figuring out the lost pieces of an ancient system of technology and knowledge that keeps getting destroyed or buried or systematically destroyed by religion or organized power and bringing that back into the fore. I think so many theories and books have been written about an idea, a theory that then has to, where the information and the evidence has to be shoehorned into the theory. I work the other way around. I follow an idea and I follow the evidence and let the theory develop out of the evidence. And I think that's a much, much more grounded way of doing things because then it allows me to free associate which ironically is what I did during advertising, because I could free associate ideas, I find common points, connect them into a message. So advertising actually taught me how to sell the ancient world to a modern audience. Every single sacred site on the face of the earth is aligned exactly where the earth's solar currents happen to be. Whether they were manipulated there or whether they were there to begin with, that's another story. You kind of sort of put the work out there and you let the arrows fall on top of you. But if you've done your homework, you don't have to make anything up. And so far, I seem to be winning every argument because whenever I get attacked, I just put the evidence. I said, this is the evidence. Uh, can you suggest that this is wrong uh, or there's something untoward about this? Because if there is, I would change my theory. Now, much of the communication that we see in the crop circle world is actually based on the universal language of mathematics and its visual expression, geometry, especially a very complex geometry like Ptolemy's theorem of chords. The whole point of science is to let the evidence drive the theory, not the other way around. Because the moment I'll say this is exactly how it was, that's the moment that my fall comes around. Because tomorrow, someone will walk into the room and say, hey, we just discovered something that totally contradicts your theory. Where are you now? Is it I'm in a better place because now we can ditch that theory, add that, and now we can expand our understanding of the ancient world. That's how science works, or how it's supposed to work. And this particular design has a number of geometries. One is the pentagram, which is hardwired in the elements which are flattened, and you can see the relationship of the gaps in between the areas that are risen, the ones that are flattened. The pentagram is essentially the geometry of living organisms, and also the hexagram, which is the geometry of non-living organisms, such as crystals, for example. And I've been on permanent tour learning the things that I was so passionate about, uh, ancient sacred sites, ancient systems of knowledge. How do we come to be here? Why do we build big pyramids and use big stones? What was the purpose? What were these people smoking uh, that they induced them to build this uh, civilization that we inherited? 
And it's this quest that drives me. One day, I got the chance to go to the Great Pyramid of Giza. Knew very little about it back then. I was working with uh, a spiritual group. And uh, there we are in the king's chamber. And uh, everybody leaves the building. Now, if you've ever been to the Great Pyramid, the place is overrun with screaming children, loud, excited people. And it's so finely tuned that only a whisper is required. And suddenly, the noise disappeared. And then the lights went on. So we're in complete darkness from people in the king's chamber. And one of the guys says to me, you've had more experience of this than all of us. Why don't you do a toning in here? I said, I don't think I really know how to tone. I'll make some sounds that I think are appropriate for the building. And the moment I start to do the toning, there's stuff coming out of my throat that I've never done in my life. It was incredible. And I hear it from the other three guys, none of whom have ever done this before. And we're getting caught up in this wonderful music. And I saw about 30 people coming out of the stones, surrounding us. Same people that I've seen when I was levitated in the crop circle, dressed in the same way. Very tall, slightly elongated heads, beautiful people. And I went, I hope someone else can see this. <laughs> we went back out into the sunlight. And I said, all right, I'll go first. Did anybody see what I saw in there? And one of them goes, what, the people that came out of the stones? And yeah, and, oh, they're very tall. Yeah, they're dressed in this white sort of satin thing. Okay, so we all saw this then. <laughs> yes. And we all went very quiet and white. And then we took turns going into the sarcophagus for about five minutes. And I don't know what happens in that box. But in two minutes, I'm out of body and I've gone into places that you could only imagine and come back. I've laid in that box. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> it's a it's living stone. Yes, when you're at the right frequency and the right spiritual, you know, metal, you connect with the temple, you become part of the temple, and you dissolve, and the stone becomes you. The two are indivisible. And I started writing stuff like crazy. That was a hell of an experience. It was interesting to find out that wherever you go around the world looking at ancient civilizations, don't ever go to the academic uh, circle to begin with. Ask the local people, because they know the story better than anybody else. Sit down, shut your mouth, and listen. That's what I love doing. I want to hear what they have to say. And every story that I've heard around the world, whether it's the Hopi, the Zuni, the Waitahara of New Zealand, which hardly anyone's ever heard of, people in uh, Japan, the Ainu, uh, people in the Middle East, uh, certainly the ancient Egyptians, the Azores, they all describe them the same way. They all talk about these pre-Diluvian gods, anti-Diluvian gods, which form the backbone of a parallel civilization alongside humans, except that they already had developed a much better intellect, and certainly they were renowned for having control over the laws of nature. They were described as human-like, but not quite human. Very tall, elongated skulls, Red hair and green eyes or blonde with blue eyes, light-skinned, not white-skinned, light-skinned. They were all magicians, masters of the sacred arts, great astronomers, extraordinary seafarers, great architects. And they certainly knew the mechanics of nature. And uh, if you asked them, they would teach you them so that you can be just like them. They didn't keep it to themselves, they would give it to you freely. So they were the original teachers that we called the gods. A god is nothing more than a source of nature. A plant is a god. A rock is a god. Um, an electric guitar is a god in itself. Everything is living. And once you understand uh, the life force behind a plant 
and you take it on into your life, you become as a god. That's where the word really comes from. And so my uh, knowledge really comes from getting in under their skin and finding out what were they doing? What were they doing here to create a golden age? How do they move big rocks through the air? What were they doing with the laws of nature? And the whole point of it that I can distill is to literally understand who you are as an individual, your relationship to nature, and your place in the biggest scheme of things. And when you strip this aside, take all of this information away and look at the big picture as though you're looking down on the planet, it really comes down to a very basic concept. Who am I? Who am I as a soul? Where do I come from? And what am I doing here? It really is that simple. And the way you do it is by having experiences and you grow the experiences and then you learn the laws of nature and you learn to mimic the laws of nature to a point where you can control the law of nature and you become as nature. The Templars really was an offshoot. You know, it had the Templars fit in with ancient systems of knowledge, pyramids, stone circles and watches. And you think, I don't think they do. And originally I'd set out to just figure out the connection between Portugal and why we're so obsessed with the Templars. I really didn't see the connection either. I always thought Templars were part of the Crusade, which is completely wrong. Crusaders and Templars are two different people. And they came from France, Belgium, and they formed these secret societies and banking system, and then they all burned at the stake. Anyway, five years later, it began to mushroom because I realized and discovered that the Templars had founded my country, but, and not only did they found the country, they did it before the Templars were official in Jerusalem. And I went, my God, this is a historical first. What have I stumbled upon? And I don't even know where I'm going with this, but I hit a, a, a roadblock, big roadblock. So you start piecing all these bits together, you think there's something more going on here than meets the eye. There's something much more interesting. What happened was that the Templars, these nine men, supposedly spent all of their time secreted on Temple Mount. Doing what? Well, they spent all their time digging tunnels. Little did I know that I had to go and learn more about how sacred space works, because in order to understand the Templars, you have to understand the spiritual aspect of the Templars and why the Templars were looking for specific places in Europe where to build their temples, or they would go and rebuild a site always dedicated to the divine feminine. I thought, that doesn't sound like a bunch of guys with swords who get around killing and dealing with money. This is a ministerial college, and it behaved like a ministerial college working with the big secret. What's the big secret about? Well, it turns out once you understand why the Templars chose Portugal as a place to occupy and create their own kingdom within the kingdom, and what they were practicing there was identical to what they've been doing in Japan in 8000 BC, in uh, India in 6000 BC, and the whole time of Egypt. The same mystery secrets of leaving the body, returning with the secrets of the universe, and they call it a living resurrection. <laughs> uh, they were described as risen from the dead, the uh, knights that were actually pulled to a, from a figurative grave to be risen, uh, to be enlightened <laughs> again. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So the knights are literally the continuation of the Essenes, who are the continuation of the followers of Horus in Egypt, and so forth. It turns out they are the same gods that were here during the flood. It's the same school, the same manual. They just call themselves by something different. So the Templars were bringing back this concept of a, and a, a spirituality that's born within every person that no priest or bishop can tell you, can direct it. You have to find out that God within. That's very empowering. 
in the 12th century. No wonder they were revered as gods. And of course, they brought on the wrath of the church. They got taken out. So it's funny how these stories are all interlinked and it comes back to the empowerment of the individual, learning the mysteries to help you to empower yourself, to recognize that you are a God. Uh, I can't find anything in the world that makes you feel much more special and much more potent than that. You mentioned Saqqara a little bit ago. Ah. Talk about the dynamics going on there. Sure, Saqqara was uh, a city of knowledge. A lot of the pyramids, the ancillary pyramids, were actually used as ritual chambers. Um, the entrance into it, uh, there is a particular saying, and it's a very curious saying. It says, seven gates allow you entrance from earth into heaven. And uh, after doing a little bit of energy work at the entrance to Saqqara, I found out that there are exactly seven nodes of energy along the passageway, oh, which are positively charged yes. as a magnetic point that do act as a kind of gate before you walk in. So it's a preparatory hallway where each time you get hit by this energy, you have a chance to figure out your thoughts and your emotions. If they're negative, throw them in the garbage bin because all that stuff is now electromagnetic, as we now know. You take those impurities into the pure temple of the gods, you're going to basically create a downfall of the temple because it's the temple is supposed to be a mirror image of everything that is perfect in the universe, the actual physical body of a creative being. So if you take your negativity in there, you're going to create a downfall of the temple. I'm understanding how temples work. That's my main thing. How do they work? How are they built to get you to have an experience? And you can have an experience in any temple. Even if it's just a, a small group of rocks is enough to have an out-of-body experience or just to sit there and meditate and you can learn so much about what you're doing in your life. It's that simple. I've learned how to dissect how temples work and I can teach it to people in one day how to build their own portal. Even in the living room, you can build a portal. These mysteries are all there uh, that I'm bringing out trying to expose what's been covered up by religion and showing that all this is serving to empower you as an individual. I'm taking a very complex thing called the mechanics of the universe and teaching you in a very simplified form in a way that hopefully even my grandmother can understand, how can I apply this in my daily life? And it seems to be working from the feedback that I get. And it's kind of funny that it overlaps at a time when we are losing our godliness. We're trapped in this mind, in this world of, uh, materialism and constant political turmoil around the world. And it's getting really worse right now, but it also shows you that everything is beginning to fall apart because there's a new paradigm about to be established. And the fact that I am regurgitating things that happened 10,000 years ago is inconsequential because these ideas, these concepts are as good today as they were back then. They don't have an expiry date. And I'm bringing back things which work for people back in a state where we can't even conceive of a world that is based on barbarity. By 640 AD, this new religion is waging war with Muslims in a bid to assert spiritual control over the people's security. We're much better than we were a long time ago. And I think if you take these concepts which seem to survive no matter what you throw at them uh, and put it in front of people, it's giving them permission to empower themselves and to also and uh, take these uh, concepts and apply them in their daily life. The concept that you can travel to a temple, walk around quietly and walk out a completely different person. I see this every year. I mean, I take uh, tour groups and I guess the word is out because they sell out in 23 minutes. And we stand there on the Giza Plateau on the first day and everybody's very eager to go and touch a pyramid. I said, uh-uh. 
I want you to stand here. I want you to tell me which one of those three pyramids you like. And they go, oh, I like the, that one. I like the big one. Oh, I like the little one. Why? Silence. Well, because I can't really explain it. Well, they're all pyramids. Why is one better than the other? And they go, well, that's the point. They're all pyramids. Yeah. Maybe because one's bigger than the other. So, okay. Ten days from now, I'm going to ask you the same question. And in ten days, we're going to go for a multitude of temples. Each one has their own frequency. Each one was built to elicit a different response. And each one was designed to also elicit a certain something within you. A waking process. And I will guarantee a very expensive scotch to anybody that does not arrive back on this Giza plateau ten days from now and tell me that you don't know why you chose the building you did. And I'll guarantee you, it won't be the same building that you chose right now. And they'll approach a temple and they'll say, well, I'm not really feeding anything and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I've got a little voice that's telling me, wait for him to get to the temple of Edfu because that's his temple. And after Edfu, I watched the, the same person come out of there and you can see that this person has experienced something profound and he kind of doesn't want to talk about it, but he does. Because now I really understand. And it's like tears in his eyes. And you go, yeah. And that's what I love about this work. It transforms people. You know, you go into a sacred site and you begin to hopefully teach them what it's there for. It gets you to remember who you are and what you're doing here. <laughs> yes. And if you can influence those 10 people, they will influence 10 people and then they'll influence 10 more. And that's how you alter the world. You alter the consciousness of the world in that way. You can't change everybody. Not everybody's meant to be changed. And at least you've influenced one person and slowly the garden gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I think we've reached that moment in our lifetime. And we're all here born at this moment in time where every indigenous culture says this is the moment where we're shifting from one age to the next. We're already in the middle of the closing of the age, according to the Maya. So we've seen this complete collapse of systems around the world. We're also seeing extreme systems of government around the world and crazy people taking over governments around the world. We're seeing the last order hold on for their life. So we're seeing many more teachers suddenly come out of the woodwork, and they began back in the 60s, by the way. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of like the last in line of these, uh, of these tutors. We're all coming out of the woodwork, slowly releasing the information like a time capsule at the time when it's needed, at the point where it's needed to help people bring about this change because it has to come from a majority. It has to hit a critical mass. And we're so close to hitting that critical mass. I have come to trust the people who work around me in the invisible world because they show me that I can trust them. So the more you trust, the more you accept that there's something else working behind you that's getting you to move in the direction that you chose before you came here, and in the words of the uh, invisible gods, we envy anybody who has the guts to incarnate in the material world of us because we know how difficult it is, and that's why we sit in the, in the sidelines giving you help. We can't intervene. You have to ask us to intervene, and then we'll give you the goalposts, and you have to kick the ball through the goalposts. It's up to you in the end. Otherwise, it's too easy. So I'm hoping that I'm actually contributing something positive to this understanding of the reason why our predecessors went through the trouble of taking a 1,600-ton rock and creating a temple out of it, which seems a bit over the top. Because the reason why they did it was to make sure that these places survived until our time. It's the only thing that makes any sense of why they used 
ridiculous rocks is because they would survive until now because they could foresee the problems that we'd had. So I guess I belong to that part. From that memory of people, it's my sort of duty to put this in front of people uh, and then hope that they are going to be the change that we wish to see. Because in, uh, at the end of it, it's going to benefit me as well. When I come back here, they would have made the road much easier. So it's a bit of a tit for tat. We're all helping each other in the end. So I'm hoping that's the legacy that leaves behind, but you know, I don't know where it's going. I'm kind of going with the flow. And I think the big joke is, and some of my friends pointed this out, it's kind of funny that you wanted to be a rock star and you never quite made it with the guitar, but you ended up being a, a rock star talking about large upright rocks. And I thought, yeah, it's kind of sad really, but it doesn't have the same paycheck. So I'm not <laughs> sure who won in the end, me or the gods. Thank you, Rama. Thank you, Freddie. And I can say, sitting in that sarcophagus, it changed me. Can you be more pointed about what you noticed changed? What I noticed is that, like you said, when you whisper, it goes through the entire building. Because the entire building is made to project sound. That's why you um, go listen on YouTube to Paul Horn, Inside the Great Pyramid. Uh, we could play stuff like that again. It's been a long time. Yeah. And um, I got when to he talk. plays the flute, you can, I mean, um, when I was there, some of the guides, you know, played a wooden flute, and you could hear it through the entire building. And it changes uh, you at a molecular level. And... I know that the ships come and park themselves over the top and like in Tikal, Guatemala, Commander Soltec parked one of his craft and we beamed down and sat on the steps and he went inside, flipped the switch and then when the ship was completely energized, he turned the switch off. We beamed up, went on our way. Just like in Star Wars, what can I say? It's all real. Former water, uh, what? I was going to say that um, um, what Freddie was telling us is that the change that Rama was telling us when he got in that sarcophagus, that we're the whole of humanity, the whole of the planets in that sarcophagus right now. Yes. Metaphorically speaking. And it's quite something to watch because it's very helpful for the small group of us to uh, make sure that 
we are aware of that and to really not get caught up in stuff. Yeah. Love is not about stuff. No, it's... um, We're being taught, like Freddie brought up, we're being taught how to sit amongst the masters of this local universe that is a big effing deal, as Uncle Joe says. Well, let's just remember that we're all that. That's right. The mighty I am presence is about everybody waking up to the fact that that's, there's only one of us here. That's right. Oh, my goodness. I mean, Ashtar is an alo high. And I have seen him give many lectures at the Solar Tribunal on Saturn and other places throughout the galaxy. And uh, let's say he uh, he moves you to tears with ecstasy with the way he speaks. <laughs> That's an experience that many of us may have had in our dream time or something, but we don't remember in the same way. That's right. What Rama was saying to us just now is he did this in the physical. Yes. He went up in the beam, he went on to the New Jerusalem, and he went for a little ride. (laughs) Yes. And he went to Saturn on the New Jerusalem. Yes. With Ashtar and a few other friends. Correct. And they all attended this lecture. Correct. With other Saturnians? With other Saturnians and other members of the Galactic Councils uh, surrounding the 26 other galaxies. It um, It is huge because this is what we're not being told on this little blue-green planet, like Carl Sagan said, you know, uh, there's nobody out there. But, yeah, there is. There are so many voices, it's not funny. (laughs) But yet, you know, I've read things where the astronauts in that device, I, I... I just got to say that, you know, it brings it up. Why did they create rockets that look like phallic symbols? And it has to do with the emasculated men who run, think they run this planet, and they're not balanced in their kundalini. Well, what's happening to them right now is they don't know. No, they don't. They are completely... um, the energies, I think there's, in plain English, it's scaring them so they get more macho. When the goddess shows up, and a good example of that is uh, in the movie Maleficent. Um, what's her name? Uh, the um, She was married to Angelina Jolie. She plays this goddess, 
And oh my God. <laughs> What's the name of that movie? Maleficent. Oh. Yeah, she turns into a dragon at the end. A good one? Yes. <laughs> okay. A good dragon. A good dragon. Okay. Let's take this to the next. Um, let's do Cryon. And there's two pieces, and they add up to an hour and 17 minutes. All right, so here we go. Good good preparation. Thank you, Freddie Silva. Thank you, Rama. Hi, everybody. Thanks for watching this. I wanted to tell you this is a little time-sensitive. <laughs> Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. My partner steps aside. This is the last main channeling of 2016. What? There will be two more. Mm. But not that are subject-driven. Did you listen? As is appropriate for this meeting. Stop it, Irma. Stop it. Okay, well, I guess there was a purpose for playing it again, Sam. Yeah. I, I'm not sure why, but the 1111 jumped out at me. Yeah, but what you need to do is listen. Yes. But anyway, it's worth listening to. It must be a reason for playing it again. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Okay. And so I'm going to take it and do something I have not done before. A teaching. It's a teaching about a subject that many have asked me. But they wanted to know some of the basics of what I'm about to say. And there's ads. Just a moment. <clears throat> okay. But there's a reason for the subject that I will give you in a moment. Because it is germane, that is to say, it is specific to what is happening on the planet right now. It is specific to you moving in to another year. And I want to talk to you about energies. What I want to say is that the energies I speak of are often controversial. Because they represent systems, ancient ones. And they represent things that some believe and some do not. And so I just want you to sit and listen. And understand more fully about some things that probably have not been explained fully to you. A reason exists for all of this, as you will see. I want to talk tonight about numerology. And I want to start with the premise. I want to continue with the definitions. I want to tell you about the numbers. I want to tell you how it exists with this, the shift. What it means and what it might not mean. Numerology defined as the name is the energy of numbers. It's simple. Numbers have energy. 
Now, if you say that to some people, they will look at you, roll their eyes and say, not in my world. Numbers are simply numbers. They denote things, and that's all. They come together for calculation, that's all. Numerology is ancient, and I want to start by apologizing, apologizing to numerologists. For there are many kinds of numerology, and even the kind that I'm going to give you is extremely complex, and I only am going to give you the basics. And we're going to start with the most ancient that you can find on the planet that is still a system that is taught. And that will be the Tibetan. But the premise is still difficult for some. How can a number mean something? How can it be anything but ink on a page or a spoken word? And if you start thinking about it, every time you see a number, it's normally part of a communication. Whether it's a calculation, or perhaps it denotes a position. If you see something that is page 30, there's a message. Imagine a book with no page numbers. It would be chaotic, for you'd never be able to return to the page that you were reading without some other kind of marker. And so numbers are placed in the book. Doesn't that tell you that the number has a message? The energy of the number of a page says this is the page where things have occurred that are on the page. Not only that, there's a page before me and a page after me that have different numbers. That number on the page then tells a story. And in the story, there's energy. Now this is just one tiny example of how a number would have a message. How a number would tell a story and not just sit there and be a number. This is the basis for generic numerology. That at the simplest way, numbers contain energies that are definable. So much so that you could de derive a, a number and it will tell you a story. Much like the book and the page number. There are generic meanings for numbers. Now the one that I'm going to give you right now that I've never given you in channel to this way will define the simplest of numbers and what they mean. But before even I do that, I will tell you that numerology exists in some systems you would never even think had anything to do with numbers. Have you talked to anyone who can read the tea leaves? <laughs> what are they reading? It's a combination of patterns, but more specific numbers. Or you read the edges or the amount and you derive a meaning based upon the numbers. You might have heard of those who cast the stones. What are they reading in the stones? Let me tell you a secret. They're counting sides like you would dice. 
and they derive a number, and the number then means something. So numerology has many faces. The ancient numerology, that is the simplest, <coughs> is what we're going to describe. When I was 12 years old, my guides told me in seven days I would start to remember other lives. The first The simplest kind would be one through nine. Now, as I tell you the definitions of one through nine as the Tibetans see them, I will also tell you that there are extensions to everything I'm going to describe. And the extensions are the complexity that we will not talk about. Not only that, it seems that we've left out a zero. There are meanings for the zeros, but they have to occur later in a more complex system for you to see why they would exist at all. So let's describe one through nine. Then let's take a look at the age that you're in. Let's take a look at the years that you're in. Let's take a look at some of the names that are surrounding you. Let us see whether there's a confluence of ideas that might be similar, based only on the numbers. There are those who will take an alphabet and assign numbers to the letters. And it won't matter what kind of alphabet, because the basis of numerology would seem to be chance. And yet there is no such thing as chance when it comes to to that which is the soul of this planet. Through free choice, dear ones, you can create whatever you want to. But if you pay attention to that which is already here in the physics, in the numbers, in the colors, in the feelings, in the grids, in Gaia, it all comes together for you. And so systems are everywhere. If you take an alphabet and you assign a number to every letter, then you take your name and add up those numbers, you'll receive an answer. And the answer is an energy that is around you. And you might say, well, that's chance. And it is not. It is not chance even how you were named. <laughs> We have discussed potentials. And even in this session, we have talked about the fact that there really is very little chance if you are plugged in to that which is the metaphysics of the planet. Let's look at this. Number one. Number one is basically new beginnings. It's the beginning of something It is the rewriting, it is the reframing, it means new. It is the first number. That's easy. In fact, all of the numbers are easy, and you can remember them. At their most basic, they're easy. Then it gets more complex. Number two is duality. 
It also responds to free choice. So if you get a number two around something, it tells you that it's going to be filled with decisions. The duality will exist, making it perhaps a more difficult puzzle. Number two is all filled with human free choice. Number three is a catalytic number. If you get a number three around something, you know that the energy moves other things without changing itself. It is therefore a catalyst. Many healers, many teachers will have threes around them constantly. Some have mistook this for spiritual system threes, which also exist. You have one in your own, you say, system of spirituality that is this culture. You split God into three parts. That is a catalytic number because the three parts then move other things. A healer with a three around them would be somebody who exists without changing and everyone who passes through their life changes. That's the three. The four is an earth number. It is community. It is Gaia. It is more things than you can define. But it is the grounded number. You'll have lots of farmers. There'll be fours. Interesting how the four has crept in even to social things. The 4-H club. (laughs) Those who are ranchers dealing with animals. Lots of fours everywhere. That is the energy of the four. Five is change. Raw change. When you see a five around something, it means that the energy of the situation or the place or the address or the year is change. Now there are those already, only with five numbers, who said, I don't really agree with any of this. I can live my life without knowing these things. And you're right. Because you have free choice. You can just steamroll right over all of them. And they won't affect you, not really. Because you are your own number. You're the number of obstinance. (laughs) You are the number that steamrolls over other numbers. That is the free choice you have. You don't have to believe in these things. And they won't affect you, not really. Because you will then steamroll through them. Brian, you mean that if I get a number of change in something, it won't it won't affect me with change? This is difficult to explain, dear one. If you don't believe it and you don't cognize it, that is to say, it is not something that is your reality and your truth, it won't affect you near as much. No, it won't. Because you are almost in another paradigm of your own. My partner was in this way until I met him. He believed none of these things was sensitive to nothing. And so numbers to him simply were numbers. 
and he be them like we're describing. But if you understand these things and you're part of the system and with free choice, you cognize this, you can find out so many things. Because then you are on board and sensitive to what the metaphysics is of the planet. Number six, difficult. It is a spiritual number, a high one. But it really, truly means harmony. So the energy of the six is that of harmony. As you can see, some of these numbers would be wonderful to have as an underlying address, for instance, of where you are or where you're going or perhaps the numerology of a project based upon its name to be a six. So it's cooperative and harmonious. And that brings us to something else. There are many names that are developed only from the numerology. Some humans will change the name they are given, creating a name that adds up numerologically to a better number for them. And you might say, does that work that way? Let me tell you something. If human beings start calling you by another name, that name will contain an energy because they're speaking it, because you changed it, because you had the intent. And yes, it works. Number seven does mean spirituality. All things that are sevens then might have a spiritual overtone or a basis. Good numbers for altars, for other kinds of organizations, for activities, where you actually talk about the things which are meaningful to you and spiritual. Number eight is manifestation and abundance. Everybody wants an eight. And it doesn't have to necessarily be money. For you can manifest health. You can manifest life. Long life. You can manifest a powerful immune system. You can be abundant in the chemistry of your body, which will keep you from having disease. So manifestation and abundance have many meanings, but they're all that which gives you things and as enables you to create things in abundance. Number nine, the active number of the day is completion. Completion can mean many things. It can mean the end of something. But it's completed. So you're done. A nine would be graduation. You are finished the course. The day you graduate would be a good day for a nine. It speaks of the end of something. And it can be mostly the end of paradigms, of systems. It can also be the end of sorrow. It can be the end of a certain way of thinking. In society, it can be the end of an old way. The end of a project. The termination of something that existed before. Now those are the nine. And we have never defined them in this way in a channel. Now, 
this gets complicated. And so we're <laughs> not going to go any further than telling you about the complications. <laughs> First, what happens when you have numbers that sit next to each other on a page? One number affects another, depending upon the energy of its number. Many numbers do not sit next to each other sequentially. You have 481, for instance. The 8, which is abundance, is affected by the 1, depending upon how long it's been there. <laughs> you might even say it's a quantum numerology, because the numbers around it have influence on it. We're not going to talk about that. Each number, are you ready, has its own astrology attributes. Yep. And all of the planets are involved in the numerology, and it changes depending upon the situation, just like astrology changes minute by minute. So if you really want to see the complexity of the systems that not only identify the number of the energy of something, but then goes on to see the astrological attributes of that something, it can then redefine it and take it into paths that make it very, very specific. Those are just two areas we will not talk about. I want to keep this simple, because I want to show you where you are. Let's start with the precession of the equinoxes. There are numbers involved. The way numerology works is that no matter how long a number is, you add it up to one number. Now, there is only one exception in this simplistic numerology to that axiom. So first, no matter how long the number is, get one number. And that's the energy you're dealing with. The exception is when you have two numbers which are identical, which stand alone next to them. 11, 22, 33, 44, 55, all the way up to 99. These are identified as master numbers. The master numbers will have identities and energies of their own. Eleven, for instance, is illumination. The twenty-two is a strong duality. The thirty-three is the most compassionate number that you have. For those of you who saw eleven eleven on the clocks for years, it was a foretelling of illumination to come. Illumination, illumination, eleven eleven. That's what it meant. You don't add the one and the one to get a two. For 11 is the master number. And then you see it twice for emphasis. It foretold, dear ones, for years of the 11-11 illumination shift that is upon you. Light will win. You can see now why 11-11 was only on the clocks so much before the shift and not necessarily afterwards. Not many of you are seeing 11-11 anymore. And if you do, it's just a reminder that you're in the shift that was foretold. 
Now the odd thing about master numbers is that they're only identified to 33. What a coincidence, is it not? That this is the active number of your DNA. 44 is unknown. 55 and beyond will not be understandable. And what the Tibetans said about that is that when your DNA, they didn't say DNA, they said consciousness reaches a certain point of understanding, the master numbers past 33 can be identified. In other words, they contain concepts which are beyond your understanding at the moment, and it's not science. It's compassionate action. It's behavior that you haven't seen yet. It's mastery. It talks about mastery that you don't have yet. And so it's undefined. 33 is defined as the compassion of the master. The highest compassion that is known to exist in humanity is a 33. What did you think when the 33 miners came out of the ground in Chile? Did you know that those who reported it said there were 33s everywhere? Not just the number of the miners, the times of days when they arrived, the numbers of, of, of drilling scenarios, it went on and on. 33 was everywhere. And those who studied numerology knew what was going to happen, that they would all come out of the ground completely and totally healthy and safe, that there would be celebration and joy and tears. The compassion of the Master was there. Even before the drilling began, you could see it coming. You could feel it. They're going to find them. They're going to be okay. And they were. Do you see how some numerology like targets the energy of what's going to take place. The precession of the equinoxes is a 26,000 year wobble of the earth. That is an eight. Because the wobble of the earth is not what we're talking about. It's what happens if you make it past the center point. December 21, 2012. It is the story of manifestation. The abundance that is manifested with that 26,000 year wobble is the earth going into graduate status, into mastery, into DNA, which is going to start to arrive at a higher rate. You're in it. You're past it. It's been manifested. That's why it's 26,000. Did you ever put these numbers together? There's no accidents here. <laughs> the precession of the equinox itself, the time it takes for this wobble to change the sky as it walks through the Milky Way is 36 years. Nine. Stand by for the nines. For the precession of the equinoxes yells nine, 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 nine. It's the end of the old, the beginning of the new. 18 years into it, 9. 18 years out of it, 9. The 9s are king when it comes to the shift.
And it says over and over, the old is going away. Everything you thought was the value you might have as a human is going to change and it's going to be greater than you ever conceived it would be. The love of God is going to pour through your consciousness someday. Babies are going to be born and know who they are. There's going to be a consciousness on the planet above 44, even 55. Which you will start to actually have the the attributes of mastery. You might even master time. Maybe even life itself. Physics will start to be that which you can manipulate. Dear ones, this is high consciousness. And you've seen it in the masters. It's going to take a long time. The ones who seated you went through this exact same thing. They didn't have a precession. They didn't have a wobble of their planet. They had another scenario completely, but it was from the stars. And it had to do with suns that were close to them coming together in a certain way. And when they did, and they only did, in thousands of years apart, something happened and they made the shift. The same shift you did. And their consciousness started to shift and change. Their history was worse than yours. We have said this before. You think you've had marginal genocide with the wars that you've had and the sorrow that you suffer. They had full genocide. And yet they recovered completely from it. The ones who seated you, dear ones, have gone through it more than you did. How long did it take them from their procession, from their shift to where they could see you? I'm not even willing to tell you how long it is because you'll be depressed. <laughs> to think that you might have to, to be there as long. Dear ones, I want you to change your attitude of time. Yes. You measure time by how long you live. That's how you measure it. You look at a lifespan and it has an energy from the number of years. What if I told you that is, that's not accurate because you are eternal. You will always be here. Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime and you'll start awakening in lives that are remembering while you're here. The next time you come, yes, you're coming back. Did you hear me? The next time you come, you will awaken with the knowledge you're not going to make the mistakes you did this time. This is the old soul moving into an energy that's different. It'll be the first time you awaken in the energy after the shift. First time. And it'll be much different than when you awakened the last time. That is to say, when you were born, there was one energy of birth. And from this time forward, when you're born, there'll be another energy. You are going to know you're an old soul. You're going to have the wisdom not to make the mistakes you made this time. People will see you as different. Children are starting to shift even now. And they're going to shift so much and so fast. You'll say there's a day when all of them will be prodigies as you measure them today. It's simply growing up. Instead of being in the playground, now you're, you're in a situation where you, you see each other and you enjoy each other. What happens when you grow up? 
This is what happens when you grow up. From 8 to 18, you come alive socially. You're so different. That's what's happening to humanity. You won't go to war. And you won't kill another human being because you know them. They won't be mysterious. They won't be anything that you would terminate as a solution to a puzzle. Right. And you will look back on that very thing and you'll say that's barbaric to the max. Mm-hmm. And you'd never consider it. So far out of the consciousness of terminating any life, that's who you're going to be. The nine that represents the whole wobble, 26 years, the manifestation culminating into the nines that you see now is the end of an old kind of civilization. Everything you've ever been, human being, has happened in the last 26,000 years. You've always been in the energy of the wobble as it exists now. Mm -hmm. The new wobble has begun. (laughs) You see, it continues to wobble, except this wobbles differently with a brand new number. Dear ones, I want you now to look upon the year you're in, 2016. What a coincidence. It's a nine. There's nines everywhere. Now what does this nine mean? It means that the recalibration energy that took place in 2012 is at an end. That the frustration of trying to find a new frequency to tune into because the shift has created that, that is going away. It means that the sun is coming out in so many of your lives. And the astrology that was given today enhances this. It speaks of the identical same thing that the numerology does. Next year is one. Now the cycle of years will create that. There will be many nines and ones together. But we're talking about right now a nine. It represents tremendous change as well because anytime you wrap something up and you change your paradigm and move into something else, you'll find some emanations of a five. Perhaps yet to be seen, but you'll see it in the astrology. All this about numbers. Who are you right now that you could then look at this and make some sense of it? And I close with this. Mm. Everything that's happening numerologically right now has come to fruition and is painting a picture of new beginnings. You may sit in a puzzle right now that you do not see your way out. And I'm going to give you some advice. You are sitting in a few days in an energy of the one that shouts to you new beginnings. Even if you are beyond that which is cheerful, even though perhaps you cannot even find the joy factor inside you, I want you to build an altar of joy. 
physical or mental. And I want you to go to that altar and thank spirit for what is going to take place and is taking place in your heart, your mind, and your life. And if you do that, you will be sending a magic signal that cooperates with the planet, with the field, with the numerology of the year, and all those things. It'll see your intent, and things begin to shift. This is the beauty of a physics that knows who you are. This is the beauty of a creator who created the physics and knows who you are. You see, they're related. You get that, don't you? Everything is related to everything else. Watch for synchronicities when you start to do this. If you wallow in the old, dear ones, nothing will happen differently. Did you hear that? If you wallow in the old, nothing will happen differently. And you will continue on the same path with the same issues going in the same direction. The altar is the altar of joy. It's the inner child inside that awakens happy and is innocent of the things around them that could, could harm them. But it's not innocence in your case. It's wisdom that can steer around them, that can actually change your own chemistry, that can build things that are going to be good for you. Extended life at the end of fear. Extended life at the end of fear. Can you believe that for you, listener? Can you believe that for you? I want you to build that altar. Do it on January 1st. Do you want to make it physical because you've got somebody with you who won't let you do it? doesn't matter. Make it mental. Put the candles where you want them. Light them as you would. And make each one of them something special that you are achieving. But mainly, it's the joy of compassion and action on this planet. You're seeing God at work. You're seeing you at work. And things will change. Because numerology and the energies that are starting to occur that are similar to numerology and the field and all of that is now starting to collect into a big six. Do you remember what the six was? Tell me what the six was. How many? The big six is on its way. This is you in harmony with the planet. There are some new numbers you're going to see on the clock and they will mean something to you. But they're not going to be global anymore. They're going to be just for you. You're going to start seeing numbers over and over that are just for you and somebody else will have different numbers. Numerology is starting even to become more advanced, more intuitive. It'll tell you stories and paint pictures because it's the energy of the planet. This is who you are. Don't take this channel lightly. Oh, dear ones, because you're moving in to a new beginning from lots of nines. Completing the old way. See it perhaps even going into a trash can, a rubbish bin. Don't have anything to do with it. See it as brand new. The canvas is blank. And you're going to build an altar and celebrate 
the joy that's coming. Could it be any clearer? As usual, these particular channels, if heard by those who have no understanding, will be laughed at. They try to. And those who do that are not in judgment from us. Because God is in them as well. There's different, there's different levels of awakening. Old souls, you've been here so long, you know how things work. That's who we're talking to. Those who don't see this, they'll have their turn. And perhaps they're just new on the planet. They're not buying into any of these things. They're just not ready. When you were children in school, and you were in the, in the last grade of the school, the ones just entering, didn't know anything. And you knew so much. It is no different than that. There is no judgment of those who would walk away and laugh and call you names. Because your intuition and your wisdom says this is real. All of this is real. And then there are those who say, I want to be part of it. <laughs> and when you say that, you cognize it and you are part of it. Welcome to a new planet Earth where these energies can contribute into the harmony of your life. That's it for now. And so it is. And so it is for the moment, everyone. That was a really appropriate one to bring forward. That was from 2016, actually. Yeah, and 2016 is a nine. This is, uh, it's called Cryon. Um, you only have one year left, whatever that means. Well, we'll find out what year that one was put together. Oh my god. Hi everybody, I'm Lee Carroll. I am the original channel of Cryon. I will just provide an outline of the history of the pineal tones. The pineal tones were developed by Dr. Todd Overkides through a remembrance of his Akash. He began teaching others on how to use them for healing and expanding their consciousness. And over several years, he developed a repertoire of many tones. Many years ago, Dr. Todd started to tone in Lee Carroll's meetings. When that happened, Lee had no idea what to make of the funny, strange sounds that sounded like airplane noises coming out of Dr. Todd's mouth. But Cryon was jumping up and down because it was happening. You see, the funny-sounding airplane noises, they have a multi-dimensional overtone structure that creates light within the DNA field when it's sung with intent. Hey, it's Danielle here at Four Patriots with some really great news. 
our all-time best-selling three-month survival food kit finally back in stock. And I'm thrilled to tell you, it's better than ever. Not only does it activate the DNA inside, it activates the Pleiadian part of the DNA. And it starts a process that is a communication with the creator's purpose. For over a decade, Dr. Todd travelled the world teaching others how to sing these strange, funny, full, weird, but very profound sounds and noises known as the pineal tones. In November 2010, Cryon gave further instructions to Dr. Todd about what he should do with the tones. They were to be sung in pairs to create coherence. When sung together, the paired tones create a third energy, which becomes a quantum transmitter, which is entangled with the centre of the galaxy. So Dr. Todd's instructions from Cryon were to create a Lemurian choir, who was to sing a specific combination of tones in a certain order. He was instructed the choir had to sing in either Hawaii or Mount Shasta on December 21, 2012. So many of you were there for that choir and felt the profound energy of this amazing event. Cryon stated that Dr. Todd's memory of the Lemurian choir some 26,000 years ago was shockingly accurate. So it was after the Lemurian Choir that Crime began to reveal information about the nodes and the knolls of the planet. Each node has a matched knoll that create, together they create a push-pull energy that enhances the grids of the planet. The Pleiadians set up a system of 12 major paired energy points that are found at 24 geographical locations. So these 12 energy points have also been referred to as time capsules. The reference to time capsules is actually a metaphor because there's nothing in them. They are capsules that open and they give real-time quantum energy to the grids, which allows high consciousness, invention, and human DNA evolution. Crime said the Lemurian Choir was putting a key in the lock to enable the 12 time capsules, so they could be ready for release. The Lemurian Choir occurred on the node of Maui, Hawaii, and the matching knoll is the Tabesti Mountains in Chad, Africa. So since the Lemurian Choir, three significant events have taken place. The first was the fulfilment of an ancient prophecy, the eagle meets the condor. During the Kriam Kundalini tour of 2013, a channel given in Lake Titicaca preceded by sacred ceremony given by Kahuna Kalei, and Kriam said Kahuna Kalei needed to be there because the energy of the 900 singers from the Mormorian Choir was imbued into Kalei. Those present during this event and those who listened to the channel opened and released the time capsule held between Lake Titicaca in Bolivia and Mount Kailash in Tibet. The second event was in Cancun, Mexico, where Dr. Todd created the Compassion Choir. Isn't it interesting that Todd chose the location for this choir even before Cryon revealed the location of the knolls and nodes? What a coincidence that Dr. Todd chose one of the nodes, the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, 
which has a much knoll in Mount Kilimanjaro, Tanzania, Africa. So that was the second time capsule to be activated. The third event happened very recently, on Sunday night within the last channel of the Crime Summerlight Conference. Crime talked about the push-pull energy that exists within the galaxy. There is a benevolent push-pull energy transmitted from the great central source to all planets of free choice, which have gone into ascension status. Every planet with ascension status has the ability to receive this energy. Crime told us planet Earth has been like a pressure cooker without a receiver. We had to pass a certain marker in consciousness and time before we could be eligible to receive ascended information. Passing the marker provides an allowance for our Earth's receivers to pop up and start a process. And this is why the 12 pairs of nodes and nodes have been identified, because they are the receivers. So far, three out of the 12 pairs have been identified. And Crane said that the planet needs a certain percentage of the pairs to be identified and activated in order for any of the receivers to come online and begin to function. We need four pairs to enable the receiving process to begin. The pineal choirs of the past, plus what happened in Lake Titicaca, have activated three of them. During the last channel of the Crime Summerlight Conference, the matching knoll to Mount Shasta was revealed as Mount Ararat in Turkey. And this was activated by the audience. Many of you were there, and I'm sure you're still calibrating the enormity of this energetic event. During an earlier discussion with Lee Carroll about what actually happened at that channel given on Sunday, Cryon popped into our conversation to tell us that the activation done by the audience was simply turning the on switch of the receivers. And Cryon further said that in order to have them receive anything, they must be calibrated. My natural question to Cryon was, okay, so how do we calibrate them? Cryon's answer was, the calibration of the time capsules is done with the choir that you are about to sing, plus the two choirs that have already happened. So you have turned the key in the lock, opened the door, and now it is ready for calibration. The significance of all of this is that the fourth pair has been brought online this enables the entire process to begin for the planet. And with the calibration of the fourth pair, all four will be receiving appropriate information from the great central source. More of the pairs will be revealed in the future and calibrated by choirs in the future and other specific events on our planet. So we have graduated. We are on our way to becoming an ascended planet. It may take generations to really see this process evolving, but we now have the ability to fast track to a higher consciousness on Earth because that is our desire and that is our intent. Welcome to the Celebration Choir. It's time to celebrate. The only time I channel when I stand up <laughs> is at the choirs. 
And so you will see me occasionally hold on to the microphone so that I don't fall over, which would be inappropriate <laughs> at any time. <laughs> this Oceanside Verbo is about to become the backdrop. For an unforgettable vacation memory. Greetings, dear ones. I am Crime of Magnetic Service. And so here you are again. And the irony and the beauty is basically you have no idea what you're doing. And this is the beauty. Blessed is the human being who does not fully understand the profundity of what is happening, but is guided day by day, seemingly in a vacuum, often in the dark, to follow directions that are sacred, that will then create a path for others to follow. You are the forerunners of the future. And without you following these guidelines and this, the choir, without coming into the full fold of what some of you feel is oddness and strangeness, without that, you would not have what we would call the full calibration of what is to come. Each year, the information may clear for you. Each year, we will then reveal some of the things that were unrevealable in the past. Let us look at a chronology. Let us clear some issues. Before you begin to even sing a note in this celebration ceremony. At the balance of the precession of the equinoxes, 900 of you gathered, and some here today were among them. And this was before any nodes and nulls were identified. This was before any of the information about time capsules was presented, and there you were, truly without full knowledge of why. But you felt the profundity of a message to be sent to who knows where by 900 of you that gathered to sing notes in the air through your voices that carried that which was a multidimensional force, a force, not an energy. An energy exists, a force travels. And the force that you presented singing these human consciousness tones with intent came together to create a third force that sent a message. A forced message, that is to say there were no receivers, there were no transmitters. This planet was isolated. It was a pressure cooker. It hadn't even opened yet. And you opened. This was the beginning. We told you you had turned a key in a lock. Now we explain a little more. 
The transmission that you gave at that moment was to say to the central source and all the ascended planets in the galaxy, we have arrived. We're at the junks of a shift in consciousness. We made it. We did not destroy ourselves and we're ready for more. Intuitively, seeming like at the last moment, Yah-E decided to reverse the polarity of the tones for a reception instead of a transmission. It's a good thing he did. For then you got the message. Message received. And he felt it. He felt it. As simple as this seems, it sets the stage for everything to come. At that moment, without even knowing it, there were at least one to two sets of receivers we now call the time capsules that were starting to feel the activation to come. And there was what I will call a default activation and calibration of the first set. So, the Lemurian choir sent the message, activated a set of time capsules that it had no idea existed, and calibrated them with a default energy. And that reception was then able to go to Yah'i's consciousness for a higher set of tones that he would never have been able to give without that first set being achieved. Now there is a vast difference between activating the time capsules and calibrating them, as was just explained. The activations can be done apart from a choir. It can be done in places you don't know about and people you've never heard of. Small groups on the planet in the right place at the right time, even planetary events can activate a set of time capsules. The activation is like turning on the radio. It's ready to then receive. But like the metaphor of a radio on the planet Earth, you must then turn the dial to find the frequency you will calibrate to the reception that is needed. The reception and the calibration is not known in advance. And that is why Yah-E is involved to the degree he is. He must remember. He must receive in advance in order then to create the tones that will calibrate for the moment, for the planet, what is needed. You've had three choirs. There are four now, four time capsules identified, and the four is the Gaia energy. And the four will enable the twelve to then be started to receive information of calibration so they can also be receivers in the future. Four had to be calibrated. 
in order for this planet to begin receiving anything. It's the percentage of the 12 needed greater than 30, just like your DNA. And so this is the chronology. The time capsules that exist, the four, have all now been activated. One at Lake Titicaca, one with the choir, one in Cancun, and one is about to be. All of them have been activated and calibrated except the fourth in the shadow of the mountain. You are about ready to do that. Now listen, I just told you that you need four to be calibrated before the earth begins to receive anything. And that means that after this weekend, the planet begins to receive. It had to happen in year one. This is year one. Last year was the year of recalibration. Now we start calibration. These things are now obvious and should be to you, especially if you listen again to this explanation. Dear ones, what you're about to do is to calibrate the time capsules that exist in the mountain behind you and in Turkey. And both of those places, the node and the no, right now, are celebrating. And I want you to feel it. And here are my instructions for the day. Do not be consumed with the minutiae. Are you doing it right? Are you doing it wrong? I will tell you that there is a Pleiadian in every chair. <laughs> And they're not listening if you're doing it right. They are just so happy you're doing it at all. <laughs> Do you feel the profundity of the moment? There's sacredness here. There's appropriateness here. There is joy in this place. Celebration is at hand. Let it proceed. And so it is. Oh, that's it. It's over. It only yeah. went halfway. Mm. Keep going. There's probably some more. Okay. I'm not sure. Yep. And now we continue. Okay. And the continuation is with education. <laughs> it's time to reveal what Yai is truly remembering. The Pleiadians play a great role in what you're doing now. That statement alone puts you in a category that is different from those perhaps outside the building. Perhaps for the first time, appropriately in year one, there would be those seeing this that would never have seen it before through the media, which is now being recorded here. And so there would be those who would watch this and wouldn't understand anything. In fact, they would not see 
what you see. They would not understand what you understand. In fact, they may even pass judgment that it's not for them and never will be. And so we will reveal just a little, perhaps, of the common sense that is here to a Pleiadian and what you're doing. You are connecting this planet to the seed biology, the creation story of the planet, of humanity. And therefore, there is an alliance for the first time to begin with communication from that which is the Seven Sisters constellation, from that which is the Pleiadians in the mountain, who are in a quantum state, a time capsule that has no time. A difficult concept indeed. One in a quantum state who has no time is not one who does not understand time, it is one who simply has none. What it means is that they can land any time they want to, their consciousness in your clock. That's the ability. In a quantum state, it is not ruled by a linear time frame, but it is easily manipulated to a linear place if it wants to be. It can be anywhere, at any time. The Pleiadians, you may think, have waited a long time for this. To them... Not really. The celebration with Adama and the others in the mountain is beginning and has started days ago. But they really haven't waited that long in the consciousness of a quantum state. Let me tell you something about the physiology of a Pleiadian. The human being is born with differences in the throat chakra that are biological between the male and the female, and you will even see it. You call the male has an Adam's apple. That is, of course, named after the metaphoric Adam of Adam and Eve, Adam representing the male. That is different between the male and the female on the planet. That is a difference also in a Pleiadian male and female. There is a difference in the throat chakra. The physiology of the vocal cords is different. Men and women on the planet, yes, it is the same, except the woman's vocal cords are shorter, higher, men's longer, and therefore deeper in voice. The Pleiadians have a different kind of scenario. The female has a muscle in the vocal cord, much like on a guitar string, a person, a human, would put their finger on the string to make it higher or lower. The female can do this with a muscle. The female has the attribute of creating sounds that are higher than a human can hear. Now you're starting to have a little indication of why you're making some of the sounds you are. Now I have a revelation. Some of the sounds are the Pleiadian language. Now, let's just give you an example. In Pleiadian, Hiao is one phrase. 
Here's another. One means good morning, and the other one means you don't look so good. <laughs> It's subtle, isn't it? <laughs> Did you notice the That's Pleiadian. The tones are not simply sacred sounds that you are putting together to create other energies. They are Pleiadian greetings, dear ones. You are singing to them in their language. What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> Is it any wonder that they're excited? Not only have you awakened, but you have a Lemurian priest. A Lemurian priest who had a Pleiadian mother who is remembering the tones and the language of his planet that his mother taught him when he was small. That is what you're doing. This is the awakening that the mountain is sensing. It is no wonder they're excited. There's more. it continues. So much beautiful information to impart to you. This is year one. And we keep saying that because there is already a model that has been set many times in this galaxy of what takes place within a planet that has been seeded by another, allowed with free choice to get to a place or not, where it would wake up to its own consciousness and decide to change. I would love to give you a biology lesson. And it's one that scientists may not agree with. And yet there are things they cannot deny that they see. And they search for answers that are not there. You don't have human DNA. Ever since DNA was identified and chromosomes could be looked at closely, there was the awareness of the fusion of chromosome 2. Fused with chromosome 3, some say, gave humanity a completely different set of chromosomes than the common ones of other mammals, especially those who look like you would be apes. You have 23 pair instead of the common 24. And if you stopped right there and looked at that in an esoteric fashion, and we invite you to, there is numerology everywhere. 
or chromosomes 2 and 3 would equal a 5, giving you 23 pairs, which equals a 5, and 5 means change. It's an invitation to change your DNA. Not chemically. For DNA, chemically, is complete. The invitation to change your DNA is quantumly. Consciousness is quantum. It is not three-dimensional. It is an attribute, an element, a confluence with the chemistry that gives you even power over physics. I invite you right now to look at your history. What is the history of the masters of the planet? What did they show you? What did they do? Did they do anything unusual? Did some of them, like, for instance, change physics, walk on water, create things that were not there a moment before? What does this tell you? Are you just going to call it a miracle? Thank you, God, and walk away? Or are you going to say, this was an example of a human being with a DNA that was different, enhanced, perhaps even operating at its fullest Pleiadian level. There was even one early on who chose his own ascension time. Did not leave evidence of death, not even a body. These were the masters of the planet showing you Now I would like to invite you to know more about Pleiadian DNA. Human beings are biased. How would you like to know about high Pleiadian technology? You, human being, are looking for devices, aren't you? You've got to have a outside of consciousness device-driven technology married with what you do corporally in order to give you high technology. What if I told you the Pleiadians never did that? First of all, you should know this. The Pleiadian civilization is ten times longer than yours. Now that varies depending upon which Pleiadian planet you're talking about, and there were three. Well, they had nine stars. And if I told you what it was, you wouldn't understand. Culturally, humanity is far different than other planets. Even cultures within humanity are different. You have what is called human nature. The Pleiadians did not go that route. They did not go down the technology route with devices and things. They went right into consciousness. An elevated consciousness will turn in on itself and marry with physics. It will not go out of itself and create a device. It will create its own technology within itself. There have been critics who would say that Lemurians, no matter how high their mountain was, could never have super cold technology. They could not have had a temple of rejuvenation because they didn't have the equipment. 
That is a human bias, you see. You're device-driven, aren't you? The Pleiadians didn't need it. What did the masters of the planet show you again? What was their device when they created something out of nothing? What was their device that they used to walk on water? What was the device used to ascend at the right moment? The device was consciousness. It was built in. It was elevated consciousness that understood and could manipulate physics. Pleiadians. I've said this before. If you see ships in the mountain, they're illusions created for you because that's what you want to see. They don't need it. Pleiadian consciousness controls physics. They entangle themselves with whatever it is they need to. They can be here or anywhere and be several places at the same time. Physicists, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It is so different from you. Now let me tell you the rest of the story. A Pleiadian mother sings a lullaby to her child. Not just a song. Not something simply passed down and beautiful. The lullaby she sings to her song, the song that she sings to her child, is a healing song. Right from birth, the Pleiadian mother is healing her child imbuing into the child the same kind of biological protection from a very high technology of consciousness that you can't understand without devices at all. Now, what did I tell you the last time I stood here? You are singing the lullaby. You are singing their language. Do you think there is a possibility that it affects your DNA. And whose DNA is it that you have exactly? Do you see what I'm saying? The Pleiadian DNA within you is awakening at the same time the mountain is. This is a healing meeting. Mm -hmm. And I want you to take advantage of it. Your belief enhances every corporeal structure you have. It sees what you believe. It starts to elevate itself because you own the belief. It starts to build bridges in its own consciousness, its own cellular structure that will keep disease away and healing back, which is there. Do I have to tell you how many people are in here? Shall I identify who've come for healing? There's a lot of you. And so I'm just going to tell you, you are in the right place at the right time. It's not just tones. Think for a moment of your ancestors, the ancients. Think even perhaps of your seed biology, singing you the lullaby to heal your body, to live longer. I want you to leave this place differently than you came. And for today, I say,
stories. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what can we say? Rama, do you want to make anything known about what you just experienced? Uh, <laughs> okay, I think I'll do Chris Hedges. <laughs> okay, well, we'll make the shift as best as we can. We're coming into another time-space continuum after that, everybody. But just, you know, be that higher consciousness, even with what we listen to here. Okay, everybody? There's so much going on in the world. Don't you think? When's the last time you had a real bird's-eye view of things? Doesn't news be more than just hours of figuring? Give me 30 minutes. I'll take you across the globe. And in ocean of stories, even the news worth knowing can overwhelm you. Welcome to On Contact. Today we discuss police abuse and torture with the civil rights attorney Flint Taylor. Doesn't really matter uh, who the mayor is. Uh, if the mayor uh, continues to be to fuel uh, this cover-up as exposed as it is here in the city of Chicago as we sit here today, and men and women still remain in the penitentiary who have been tortured, uh, and we continue uh, with other lawyers and community activists and survivors uh, and also uh, families to fight these cases. Uh, here we are in 2021. And the torture started on the verge in 1972, and we still haven't had full uh, resolution of these cases. And the conscience of this city with regard to torture has not been completely cleansed uh, in any regard. Flint Taylor, along with his colleagues at the People's Law Office, has dedicated nearly five decades to exposing systematic corruption, abuse, violence, and torture within the Chicago Police Department, and throughout the city's corrupt political machine. In his book, The Torture Machine, he chronicles the war police have carried out against poor people of color, beginning with the 1969 assassination by the FBI and the Chicago police of the charismatic Black Panther Party Chairman Fred Hampton and Panther Mark Clark. Taylor spent 13 years litigating the Hampton case in the process, exposing the routine torture. The title of his book, The Torture Machine, comes from a field telephone reconfigured by Chicago police to administer electric shocks to those they were interrogating, along with a series of other torture practices, including savage beatings and suffocation with plastic bags. He led the campaign against police commander John Burge, who honed his torture techniques while serving in the army in Vietnam, and who elicited scores of false confessions through torture. 
joining forces with community activists, torture survivors, and their families, other lawyers, and local reporters. Taylor and the People's Law Office gathered evidence from multiple cases to bring suit against the Chicago Police Department officers and the city of Chicago. He was one of the leaders in the successful campaign to end the death penalty in Illinois and obtained reparations for many of the torture survivors, setting human rights precedents that have since been adopted across the United States. Joining me to discuss his book, The Torture Machine, is the legendary civil rights attorney, Flint Taylor. So, Flint, you open with Hampton, uh, the assassination of Fred Hampton, uh, and perhaps you can uh, lay that historical groundwork. Why was Hampton considered such a threat to J. Edgar Hoover at the time, the head of the FBI, uh, and why was he uh, why was he a target? Chris, thank you for having me uh, on your show. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, the Fred Hampton case, of course, uh, is the one case where it is documented without a shadow of a doubt that the FBI and its COINTELPRO program was behind the assassination of Fred Hampton and the murder of Mark Clark. And in terms of why Hampton was targeted, a 21-year-old charismatic leader here in the city of Chicago who was uh, on his way to being a national leader in the party, uh, we can go back to the COINTELPRO documents that were penned by Hoover and William C. Sullivan, his first uh, lieutenant uh, in the Domestic Intelligence Division. And those documents in 1967 and 1968, before Hampton had become the leader that he became in 1969 in the Panthers, talked about uh, neutralizing and disrupting African-American or black leaders and their organizations. And it named Dr. King, it named Malcolm X, uh, it named uh, Elijah Muhammad, Rap Brown, uh, Stokely Carmichael, and all of those organizations that they headed up. But what he also highlighted and underlined was that these organizations had to be stopped in forming coalitions, forming coalitions between black organizations and organizations such as Cotton Lords, uh, the Young Patriots here in Chicago, uh, other uh, organizations not only of color, but SDS and, and radical and revolutionary white organizations. And Hoover was definitely afraid not only of the Messiah, the black Messiah, as it were, but also of their organizations and the power and, a, and the threat of them coming together, particularly in an era where not only black power uh, and black liberation was at the forefront, but also the fight against imperialism and the war in Vietnam. The techniques that the FBI used to assassinate Hampton, uh, and, and you exposed much of this, uh, kind of lay out how they operate. Uh, let's begin with the informant, O'Neill. Uh, and, uh, of course, this was something that uh, was part of uh, Malcolm X assassination. They withdrew the, uh, or they arrested the uh, uh, his bodyguards outside. There were nine uh, informants inside the ballroom where Malcolm was assassinated, uh, and the person who uh, allegedly pulled a shotgun out from under his coat was never charged because he perhaps had FBI links. Um, but talk about, because but you really exposed uh, the mechanisms by which they went after 
happen and finally kill them. So, so please talk about, especially the, the informant that they used and how they drugged him the night before, etc. Well, the informant uh, was named William O'Neill. <clears throat> and he was not only an informant, he was a provocateur. And he was uh, got, got his way up close uh, and personal with the Panthers, and particularly with its leadership, Fred Hampton, Bobby Rush. Uh, and he was reporting directly to the Racial Matters Squad and Roy Martin Mitchell uh, at the FBI. And what we were able to document uh, with the help of the Senate Church Committee on Intelligence back in the mid-70s was that this informant, O'Neill, uh, had uh, mapped out a floor plan of, of the apartment where Fred Hampton and, and Deborah Johnson, his fiance, would be sleeping. Uh, and... Uh, they passed that on, the FBI and its control, to uh, the uh, raiding police officers and the state's attorney, uh, Edward Hanrahan, who planned the raid. And we documented not only later, uh, after fighting years in court, that uh, O'Neill did this, we got this floor plan, but that O'Neill uh, was rewarded for um, the setting up the raid, that he was given a bonus by Hoover and his men in Washington uh, for setting up the raid, uh, $300, as it were, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, and that was, this reward was because of the tremendous value that O'Neill had played, uh, in setting up the raid. Uh, and also we obtained a COINTELPRO document, the counterintelligence document, the program that we alluded to earlier, which claimed the raid, which of course was executed by local police and the prosecutor, uh, here in Chicago was part of the COINTELPRO program. And that document was dated the day before the raid. So that trilogy of documents uh, established not only that the FBI and COINTELPRO was behind the raid on Hampton's apartment, but showed us the importance of the provocateur, William O'Neill, uh, in set, not only setting up this raid, but also in attempting over the time that he was in the Panthers in setting up Panthers to be arrested, setting up Panthers, uh, in, in, in encouraging uh, criminal activities, uh, the kind of classic provocateurism that we saw um, in the 60s with the Klan and the FBI informants and we've seen throughout history with regard to FBI and local informants. So that uh, was one of the major stories that we uh, uncovered during the uh, 13 years of litigation in the Fred Hampton case. Although it was never uh, finally uh, determined who drugged Fred Hampton the night before, was it? No, it wasn't. What um, We were able to have an independent uh, a toxicologist uh, look at the, uh, the blood of, of Fred Hampton after he was murdered. Uh, and she uh, found that there was a large amount of secobarbital in his system. Now, everyone knew that Fred didn't use drugs. So the question is, how did those drugs get into his system? The government and the state fought very hard uh, to discredit the evidence that Fred was drugged. But our toxicologist was very, very independent and, and bulletproof, as it were. So the question became, how did he, how was he drugged? O'Neill, of course, denied it, but he was in the apartment the night before. He had access to Fred. Some people in the uh, survivors in the apartment said that he served 
uh, drinks and, and food to Fred the night before. So circumstantially, it could well have been O'Neill, or it could have been someone else. Like with uh, Malcolm, there were many unidentified informants in the Chicago Black Panther Party uh, in 1969. Uh, we perhaps will never know for sure who drugged Fred Hampton. We just know that there's no way that Fred Hampton would have laid in his bed and been shot through the head after the police came in uh, if, in fact, he had not been drugged. Uh, and the, uh, the toxicology confirms that. And that's a pretty important point that you speak about in your book, that the police are already in the apartment, and uh, and and one of them uh, walks, apparently, just walks in the bedroom where Hampton is prone on the bed and shoots him through the head. Is that correct? Right. We There were two bullet holes through Fred's head. Uh, he, there was blood all over the bed, and Deborah Johnson, uh, who was in bed with him and pregnant with uh, their son, uh, was taken out of that room. And at that point, Fred was still lying there and, and, and hadn't moved, really. Uh, and then she heard two more shots. And before that, she heard an officer say, he's barely alive, he'll barely make it, and then two shots, and then he's good and dead now. So that was the evidence that uh, established the murder. I want to read from your book. This is the reaction. This is in the process of litigating that case. The judge also refused to admit a police radio tape on which unknown officers cheer when it was announced that Fred was taken to the morgue, and on which one said, in unwitting affirmation of our evidence, that is the time to catch them when they are in bed. We also offered as evidence the chilling picture of smiling cops carrying Fred's body out of the apartment. Um, this really uh, was part of a war. I mean, we, we don't know much about it. So this the litigation that you did is extremely important in, in giving us a window and a, a small uh, uh, piece of activity by the FBI. But this was being carried out nationally. Uh, and, of course, I, I think you would probably agree uh, the vast part of this activity, despite the Church Commission, it probably to this day remains unknown. Would that be correct? Well, yes. There, there were raids across the country. Most of them were locally uh, or originated in the sense that police uh, led the raids. We see it in L.A. only four days after uh, the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. We see it in Chicago, several raids, mostly police raids, but some FBI raids. But if you use that template that was used here in Chicago, that the FBI was behind the police raids, as well as orchestrating their own raids, uh, and their own arrests, and their own provocateurism, and all the kind of uh, tools and techniques of, of disruption and illegal and unconstitutional conduct that COINTELPRO uh, used, uh, then you see a broader, broader uh, plan, uh, which was basically uh, embraced publicly by Nixon, uh, by John Mitchell, uh, the Attorney General, and by Jaris Leonard, his... Uh, uh, head of civil rights, quite ironically, uh, and Hoover, all of whom who targeted uh, the Panthers uh, not only uh, secretly, but also uh, called them out publicly as the greatest threat uh, to this country uh, and talked about how they had to be stopped. Well, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the police war against people of color with civil rights attorney Flint Taylor. <laughs> Hold on, everybody. 
Wow. Including. You know me. I'm famous for my views, and you'll get them in the news. And me. Yours truly, Scotty Nell. Welcome back to On Contact. We continue our conversation about the police war against people of color with civil rights attorney Flint Taylor. Uh, so you go on from the Hampton case. I mean, there's much that you uncover, uh, uh, including, of course, the systematic use of torture. Uh, and you uh, then go after the police department, uh, the Chicago Police Department. But this let's not limit it. I mean, uh, you know, police departments in major cities are uh, also carrying out these kinds of techniques. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Burge. But uh, what I find fascinating is that transference of knowledge, especially in the case of Burge, people who had served in the military in Vietnam uh, had been uh, present or complicit in the torture uh, techniques that we're using, especially this field telephone that uh, disappears on the cover of your book, uh, brought these techniques back uh, into the inner cities and used them against American citizens. Uh, so perhaps you could speak about uh, torture as a technique, we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, across the country, without doubt, thousands, if not tens of thousands of uh, people, again, mostly poor people of color, railroaded into prisons on false confessions. You have uh, heroically uh, exposed some of those uh, false confessions and been able to free people. But, but tell us how, you know, what's happening behind the scenes? Uh, you know, what are the techniques that, that they use, and, uh, and, and how, how, how did it become institutionalized? Well, uh, the Burge torture uh, was somewhat unique in the extreme that it, that, that it took in terms of electric shocking people and suffocating people, dry submarino, as it were, and, and uh, uh, mock executions, the kind of techniques that uh, were internationally used, and not only in Vietnam, uh, that where Burge learned this, but, uh, you know, in South Africa under apartheid, in Central America, in those regimes. But it was not thought to be used here in this country. But Burge brought it back and used it again and again and again over a 20-year period against African-American suspects uh, in Chicago on the South South. Uh, but uh, the broader question that you ask is uh, these techniques or similar techniques to get false confessions or to get confessions some of which may be true, some of which may be false, some which, who knows. But uh, torture, of course, it cannot be countenanced no matter what it's used for. Uh, and torture, as defined by the United Nations, uh, is much broader than just using electric shock or suffocating someone. Uh, is of course, using coercive tactics, whether it be uh, psychological or whether it be physical, to obtain confessions or to, 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 to punish and, of course, that's what we see every day uh, in the police stations across this country. You get confessions and send men and women, particularly men and women of color, uh, to the penitentiary. And that, of course, has been a major aspect of mass incarceration over the years. Uh, and that was a mass, uh, an important aspect of, of uh, what happened and what continues to happen, not necessarily with electric shock, and suffocation here in the city of Chicago, but detectives are still uh, coercing uh, confessions, uh, confer uh, coercing uh, false confessions, and people are still being sent to the penitentiary uh, on the basis of these confessions. 
uh, you chronicle in the book many cases of people who uh, are innocent, profess their innocence, uh, but finally are so broken uh, that they agree to sign just to stop uh, the torture. Yes, definitely. Uh, we started out with one uh, remarkable case, the Andrew Wilson case, uh, an African-American man who was charged and ultimately convicted of killing two white police officers. And he was brutally and repeatedly tortured with all the techniques that I previously mentioned. Uh, and we went to trial and represented him on, an, on a civil rights case claiming that he was tortured by Burge and his men. Uh, and during that case, uh, an anonymous police source, who we dubbed Deep Badge, uh, told us that, hey, you're not just looking at one extreme case. This is a pattern and practice of racist, white supremacist torture that everyone in the police department uh, of power and the state's attorney of Cook County, who was at that time Richie Daly, who went on to be the longtime mayor here, they all knew about it. They all countenanced it. They all used uh, those confessions uh, to send people to the penitentiary and to death row. And so over the years, we uncovered, and some of those cases are chronicled uh, from their testimony in my book, over 125 cases of African-American men uh, who were tortured under Burge's 20-year regime. And during that period of time, he went from a detective fresh from Vietnam and the tactics that they used on the POW camp that he worked on, uh, detective, the sergeant, the lieutenant, the commander. Uh, and uh, as commander was when we were taking him on in federal court. And the evidence that we were able to uncover led to a reinvestigation, led to him being fired, and ultimately, decades later, led to him being sent to the penitentiary for, for a lying uh, about torture. And yet during that whole period when you were publicly exposing systematic torture, then State Senator Barack Obama did not utter a word, uh, and uh, as you point out in your book, endorsed uh, Daley, uh, who had uh, been the Attorney General overseeing this empire for uh, the mayor's office. You notice that? You have to know, everybody, that they would have killed him no matter what, somewhere, sometime, if he didn't. Just saying. For uh, the mayor's office. You notice that, yes, uh, in the book. Um, it was, um, at the time, I didn't think quite so much about it because Barack Obama was just Barack Obama. He was a state senator. He was doing some uh, decent things in terms of reform of the death penalty, but he never spoke out against the death penalty. And my daughter heard him speak when she was in sixth grade, and she came back and was wondering why he wouldn't uh, come right out against the death penalty because the kids in the sixth grade at that point were definitely against the death penalty, or many of her classmates and she were. But, yes, uh, when you look back on it, uh, we had a few politicians who were uh, progressive and courageous enough to stand with us as we fought through the many, many chapters of, of exposing the police torture and trying to bring some modicum of justice. Unfortunately, uh, Barack Obama wasn't one of those people. Well, he took the seat. Uh, he defeated one of them, didn't he? Well... He uh, ran again. The only yeah, he took a defeat from Bobby Rush. Uh, the only time Obama yeah. ever lost was against former uh, Panther de uh, Defense uh, Minister Bobby Rush, who of course was a co-leader with Fred Hampton, and 
escaped uh, his own assassination because he didn't happen to be in the apartment on the night of December 4th. And Barack took him on, and, and Bobby soundly beat him in his, I believe it was his, I forget what kind of race it was. It might have been a state senator race or, or whatever. But uh, I think he learned his lesson about how to pick his spots after after Bobby beat him uh, on his own turf. Let's talk a bit for the last few minutes about the culture of the police, which you know very well. Uh, all of these charges are coming out, and police are holding fundraisers for Burge. Uh, the torture is now publicly verifiable. Uh, there's this code of silence within the police. Uh, talk to us about the institution itself and its, uh, it, it's kind of orientation to the outside world. Well, Chris, as you know, you can trace the history of policing uh, to, to the South and, and the slave patrols, and you can trace it to, to uh, the anti-labor uh, uh, thugs that, that were policed uh, in, in the early 1900s, and that culture has continued. And that culture, as uh, African Americans uh, became more front and center in, in, in the attacks, uh, they became uh, the focus uh, of, of the police and the police culture. And that culture, of course, the code of silence, covering each other's backs, no matter how racist or, or, or violent the conduct of the police is, uh, is a trademark of that culture. And that kind of culture is something that starts at the top uh, with the powers that be, uh, and, of course, you can analyze it in terms of the protection of property under capitalism, you can analyze it in terms of what the police are sp- supposed to do. And they are, in fact, in the communities of color and poor communities, uh, an invading force, an oppressive force. Not a force that serves and protects, but a force that uh, imposes the laws of the power structure and the white supremacy uh, that is so endemic uh, in society. So uh, when we talk about reforming police, we need to take more of a look at some of the more fundamental changes that, that people in the streets are talking about in terms of abolition and defunding. Well, one of the things at the end of the book that I found fascinating is you talk about the amount of money uh, that cities, in essence taxpayers, put out to defend uh, police officials who carry out torture, uh, you know, lethal attacks. Uh, you said, uh, according to public records, which I have obtained and updated since 2005, the scandal had cost the city and county and taxpayers $140 million by the end of 2018. The federal tab for investigating Burge and his Confederates and for prosecuting Burge was an additional unknown amount. Burge had collected $900,000 in pension money. Chicago police officers implicated in the torture scandal had collected an additional $31 million in pension, pushing the still mounting total past $170 million. Well, um, I guess I need to update my book because that, that meter keeps running. But I <laughs> guess that now we're getting close to $200 million. And what's interesting is not only uh, did Daly as the mayor... Not only did Rahm Emanuel, as the mayor, continue in one form or another to, to fund the defense of these cases in court, but now we have Lori Lightfoot, who ran on a progressive uh, approach, and there was a torture, torture case that she put to trial 
rather than to settle in the last year or two, cost the city another $10 million. Uh, so it uh, doesn't really matter uh, who the mayor is. Uh, if the mayor uh, continues to be to fuel uh, this cover-up as exposed as it is here in the city of Chicago as we sit here today, and men and women still remain in the penitentiary who have been tortured, uh, and we continue uh, with other lawyers and community activists and survivors uh, and also uh, families to fight these cases. Uh, here we are in 2021, and the torture started on the verge in 1972, and we still haven't had full uh, resolution of these cases, and the conscience of this city with regard to torture has not been completely cleansed uh, in any regard. Great. Thank you. That was civil rights attorney and author Flynn Taylor on his new book, The Torture Machine. No wonder we did all the meditation. That's a very big one, everyone. And those of you who have been listening here, we, you know that I was a witness to that murder of Fred Hampton. It's just uh, about five blocks from the location, which was right across the street from the high school. And all the high schoolers watched it. And if the thing we can be happy about is that, Rama, you've been told too, that accountability is what's happening now. Yes. Okay. So we'll take a break. And we'll be back with our music and Richard... And Tanya, Gabrielle, and Kay Pacha, and a really good look at the stars. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. This is such good energy that we keep on moving out into the world. May we all pass every test. See you soon, everybody. Namaste for now. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Now we can do it, but pass the talking stick again to you, Richard. <laughs> All right. That sounds better. Good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough it's it's tough to talk when you hear yourself on a half second delay coming back in your ear. Anyway, uh oh, what a week it was for me. Um now, we had full moon on Monday, right? And it was early Scorpio. So, Tuesday, the moon was still in Scorpio, right? And then Wednesday and Thursday, we had Sagittarius moon opposite Gemini. And that brought frustrations with my phone company. I got my bill and they screwed it up. And then Thursday, I planned a trip for groceries to town. And I had a flat tire attached to the mailbox. Like, you know, 
I didn't even get to the paved road. I was only going like 15 miles an hour because it's gravel road out to the mailboxes. So I had my tires. It was about 10.30 in the morning. He won the day. Richard, you're breaking up. I can't help that. It's probably because of the increased canopy, you know. The leaves are still, you know, leaves don't stop growing this time of year. <laughs> okay, that's better. It's a little better. Uh, let me, that's right. Yeah. I know how to, I'm standing right, yeah, I'm standing in the right place. Anyway, so my week was, was very frustrating. So, you know, hopefully the moon's in Capricorn by now. That'll give, bring a little relief for me, anyway. I don't know about the rest of you. You know, this... I don't know whether it's Saturn and Jupiter in Aquarius. What the what those energy effects are, are doing to you guys. But they're square by Scorpio, right? And my Taurus is empty you know, in my name chart. Right? And it doesn't really... It doesn't seem to be doing anything. Aquarius, Leo, I've got... Solo Pluto over there in Leo all by itself doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be playing at all. Of course, Pluto is you know one of those real high high frequencies. Um, but anyway, Uranus brought me another unexpected adventure, and uh, I ended up you know I got two brand new tires on my truck you know, and uh, that was Friday you know so I was I was at at the tire store Friday when they opened, got tires. And uh, I just couldn't do a damn thing today except take it easy and relax and, and get ready to plant beans. I'm going to plant beans tomorrow early. The, 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 the row where the beans go was real dry, so I put uh, about four gallons of water, you know, two of my watering cans full, two gallons on each half to dampen the soil and, you know, get some moisture in there. And so we're going to plant beans tomorrow. So that's what I've got. Uh, hopefully this, this week will be a little easier. I mean, it's like I, I want to be adventurous and in the 70s. The things have been in the 50s. The weather's but the rest of the planet is just giving me a hard time this week. So let's go. And uh, see, maybe I'll get another clue as to what the hell is messing with my flow. You know, it's like, I had a good flow going. And then, you know, got pissed off at the phone, and then I had a flat tire. Richard, I don't know. We we can't hear you. I don't know what it is. Doug, can you kind of fix things? Cause we're we're okay. I hope I can hear. Yeah, you everything fine. sounds good on this end. Okay, because it was breaking up there again. Okay, so are you ready for us, or did we miss something? Yeah. 
Puerto Pacha. I want to know what's going on. Sagittarius just went into Sagittarius, emerged out of the depths of Scorpio there for a couple of days. Whoa! <laughs> Did you die? <laughs> Are you resurrecting? Ooh. Yeah, baby. So you know, squares Jupiter today in conjunction the Sun and Mars, uh, making uh, an interesting yod uh, for a moment this afternoon, at least where I am. And then uh, you know, by Friday. She's going to go into Capricorn, join together with Pluto, right? Coming into this opposition with Mars, of course, first. And uh, and then, you know, by Sunday, she goes into Aquarius and is going to hit, uh, you know, uh, Saturn, right? Mm-hmm. Come into a square with Sun, Mercury, and Venus, and... All those happy little guys down there. Now, you may just think I'm at the river, but what? What? What is this? Aha! Aha! Do you see what I see? This is not just a river. This is a sacred coming together of rivers. It is the confluence the indigenous people always saw the confluence as the very sacred place. And this particular river is the middle fork of the American River. And this particular river is the North Fork. I haven't been here for many years. I used to raft down both of these freaking rivers. They are absolutely gorgeous. Coming all the way down from the Sierra Nevadas, Tahoe coming together, joining together. Anyway, uh, you know, this is a big week. i got a lot to talk about. There's a lot to say. Uh, sun conjunct Uranus basically all week. It is exact on Friday, same day that the moon uh, opposes Mars. Look out for Friday. Hallelujah on Saturday. You know, uh, that moon does come into a trine with Uranus, Sun, Venus. So that's more exciting than, uh, you know... Uh, debilitating and traumatizing. <laughs> Sunday, Mercury comes into this nice trine. Okay, you know, with Pluto. Venus is in this nice sextile with Neptune. So there's some good stuff going on here. But, you know, the overall thing is that, you know, the sun is square Saturn exactly on Monday. So you got this situation where, you know, uh, 
the sun is, you know, the center of the solar system, man, and it, you know, and it's in alignment with Uranus and square to Saturn. And you know, that is what I'm going to be talking about today. That is uh, what the mantra comes out of today. That is what our songs come out of today. Uh, you know, this week, uh, this whole energy. And of course, it, you know, it will be shifting up. Mercury does move into Gemini, you know, by next week. And, uh, you know, that will be followed by Venus uh, shortly thereafter. But uh, for now, yeah, it's pretty intense. All right, let's give this a shot. I mean, uh, I'm not in the wilderness. I mean, this is California, man. Almost everywhere you go, there's some people. <laughs> no, just kidding. There's plenty of wilderness left in California, too. It's a beautiful place. But, yeah, I got the bridge bag there. I think that's a road. There may be some cars interrupting the Pele report. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't that the nature of life these days, getting interrupted Getting our peace and tranquility of our personal home life, you know, intimate life or whatever, kind of like intruded upon. It's just like, oh, you know, Pluto up there in Capricorn, Saturn in Aquarius, you know, whether it's the state or external authorities or personal authority figures, people in your lives, you know, trying to control you, run you, tell you what to do. It's like big time. Man, oh man, baby, what have we attracted and created here to evolve through, grow through, learn through? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. <laughs> what it's all about and what the stars have to say. I got a whole bunch of songs you know that I, I mean I'm getting into this now. You could almost I could almost come up with like three or four songs every week for the moon going through the different signs. <laughs> uh, this song will be for the moon in Sag, and then we got another song when she goes into Capricorn. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's endless. Chop 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 chop. Take the whole and divide it into tiny little pieces. But anyway, uh, you know, for me, really, uh, one of the major songs that comes out with this uh, sun conjunct Uranus square Saturn, you know, and I don't know if I put this out there before, but obviously it's what? King Crimson, 21st century schizoid man. That's a little intense. You know, some of you may not really go for it. It's not like the positive kaipacha, you know, giving nice positive messages. <laughs> but guess what? You know, we're kind of in this uh, state right now. And I've got some other songs that, you know, if you're feeling that Mars in Cancer and uh, Sun Uranus, you know, you go for that song. But then... You know, moon moves into Capricorn, and it gets a little sentimental, a little nostalgic. And, when, and the one I really can't get off my, you know, how you get these songs in your head is Linda Ronstadt, Blue Bayou. Ah, oh, man. 
such a beautiful song, beautiful voice. I got the link for that in the notes below. Then the, you know, then you know the, you know, then she moves into Aquarius, and I'm thinking, well, I, you know, a little bit of like maybe Neil Young. I've got, are you ready for the country? Because it's time to go. Do 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 do. do. Yeah. You know, and then, and then of course Pisces it goes on and on, but you know, so I got you know I got three songs this week, <laughs> just one mantra, just one mantra. I'll get to that mantra, but in addition to these songs, I found a very interesting uh, video. It was sent to me by uh, you know a fellow uh, worker, and it's a little disturbing in one sense because it's from the John Birch Society. <laughs> a very conservative right-wing think tank, which I don't really put myself in that, you know. But what he talks about uh, you know, is very, very powerful. He's very intelligent, well-learned, well-read, and has some very good points. And, and, and what he's talking about is collectivism and individualism. And he goes on how Nazism and fascism and communism and all this, you know, know, this is all collectivism. Okay, you know, and it's the deep state and it's, you know, it's the great reset and it's what's, you know, all this, you know, uh, you know, powerful, powerful stuff, you know, coming up, you know, and trying to control Make everybody wear masks. Make everybody get vaccines. You know, get a vaccine passport. Or you're not allowed into this or that. Blah, 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 blah. You know, this is collectivism. You know? And, I mean, he takes it for da, 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 And he takes it farther into this place of the need for individualism. Individual freedom. Individual rights. Personal liberty. You know, Boom. I, you know, and it's just like you can, I, I, I can easily relate. I can easily value, uh, you know, uh, some of the points that he's making in there. It's very trippy, you know, because I don't really, you know, anyway. So all I can say is, you know, it just so is so perfect for this axis of Aquarius ruled by Uranus. Okay, which has to do with collective consciousness, global corporations, politics, okay, internet, world wide web, all the billionaires and Google and Facebook and Zuckerberg and Gates. You know, this is all Aquarius 11th house kind of stuff. And Jupiter going through there, you know, for this whole year, making the billionaires more uh, trillionaires, (laughs) you know tripped out Saturn going through there you know and this kind of is this kind of thing today where I talk about you know the hammer coming down boom you know you conform to the new normal or you're not going to travel or you're not going to get into the gym or you're not going to watch a movie or you can't go out in public or you you know it's like hurting the sheep you know, it's freaking intense, right? And so the, the the backlash 
you know, the Springer side of that is, of course, what? Leo. Individualism and individual rights. The lion, the lioness, the king and queen of the jungle. I, me, mine. I create. I'm original. I am unique. I want to play, gamble, risk. My life is my own. Don't tell me what to do. It's like this very powerful individualism. And so, you know, we can see this as an axis. These are polarities. And the sun coming around to Uranus in Taurus, I, I'm going to put Taurus, Uranus in Taurus, far more around, you know, the energy of, of course, it's one of the first six signs. It's more subjective, and it's my money and my freedom and my values, and this is where it's time for us to dig into, you know, our own resources and it's a need to survive, baby. We need to invent. That's why you know the mantra today gets, we need to tap into our own personal genius to work this shit out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it is about, you know, and the, the challenge here is that Uranus is the planet of extremes. And we can find ourselves even flip-flopping back and forth from one extreme to another, from the red to the blue, from the right to the left, from the liberal to the conservative, from the needs of the collective outweigh the needs of the few, to the freedom of individual personal self-expression is number one primary. So this is a very interesting, you know, I think it's something that we are wrestling with, of course, all through particularly 2021, because Uranus is in square to Saturn. Oh, Saturn in Aquarius is perhaps the thumb, you know, trying to hold us down, okay, you know, the institutions trying to dictate personal behavior. And Uranus and Taurus is saying this is a time where we need to step out and step up. And I, you know, I need to like really stand in my own truth. Boom. And this creates a clash. This creates a lot of tension. It came in January, first of all, was, you know, the primary, you know, square. Then Saturn and Uranus are going to be going retrograde. It's going to come back again through the summer, and it's not really over until the end of the year. So the whole year of 2021 is what I like to call the square is creative tension. Creative tension. Don't forget, you know, my, my, my saying for 2021 is it's the great year of initiation, gestation leading to creative manifestation. And this is Taurus, this need to go in. And then sometimes this may have to do with the need to separate. Are you ready for the country? Because it's time to go. And of course, you know, I mean, I'm 
in some ways gone, but, you know, uh, there's always, <laughs> I feel like, small communities that are self-sufficient, that are close to nature, that are growing their own delicious biodynamic organic food, you know, and that are, like, really kind of outside the drum, you know, that's getting beat of, you know, everyone needs to now conform. That's kind of been my thing. That's the first line. I feel like <laughs> escaping or rebelling. <laughs> but wow, yeah, you know, this uh, moving into the world of censorship. Uh, one of my friends just got censored on Facebook. I have opened up a bit shoot uh, channel because I do feel that there are things I'd like to talk about and uh, things I would like to say that I see in the stars that are not, uh, that, you know, I can't really uh, say here uh, on, on my YouTube channel or my Facebook or whatever. It's a little bit of a shame. It's kind of disappointing. Could even be upsetting. <laughs> I'm going to keep it kind of clean and generic here for you today and also point out that all of this Taurus energy and survival energy has to do with my personal, physical, financial well-being. And the Mars in Cancer is my home life and my personal world. And there may be things out there that we cannot change, that we cannot modify, that are beyond our control. So it's best to start at home. So I got this great uh, little video sent to me today by Kat, uh, you know, uh, foods, you know, just kind of foods to eat to help with this process of enlightenment, to help with the process of awakening. We are what we eat, what we put in, we become. Let's start at home, start within, Start with our diet, start with our exercise, start with getting our vitamin D straight from the sun instead of taking pills. <laughs> Just freaking absorb it, baby. <laughs> you know, and eat it. <laughs> you know, eat it. Ow! <laughs> Taurus is simple, man. You know, simple Simon says. You know, eat healthy, exercise, get outdoors, you know. And it affects your state of mind. And your state of mind is really highly important, very, very important at this time. Which leads me to the other, you know, I was just reading up a little bit on the old yoga last night, you know, and it was interesting how the, the sage spoke about how the Bhagavad Gita was downloaded. Arjuna is on the battlefield you know, ready to, you know, to go into battle against his kinsmen, relatives. And that's happening, you know, in my family, maybe happening in your family. There's polarization going on, you know, even within the bloodlines. And he calls out, right? And Krishna freaking... You know, what this guy was saying was that the Bhagavad Gita was downloaded to Arjuna right there on the battlefield before he then charged 
into the battle. So Krishna is speaking to him, and the Bhagavad Gita did not stop the battle. Araman is coming. Okay, we are facing, you know, some real, real challenges, collectively and personally. And we are not to just, like, run, hide, sit, and meditate. Okay, I don't want to, I don't, you know, support so much as escaping, as much as inventing and innovating and finding this middle territory. And that's where this tapping into the genius, this tapping into the genius to me, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, a lot of it is that Uranus, the ruler of Aquarius, has to do with stepping outside the box. Stepping outside the conventional or the norm. Getting in our helicopters or our UFOs, raising ourselves up (laughs) and seeing the evolution and the planetary consciousness evolving from a higher perspective. And when we come to that sun, Uranus, you know, and Jupiter in Aquarius, you know, in the late mature degrees of Aquarius, we come into a place, okay, of really looking at, and, and what I want to say is not to label, to categorize, to pigeonhole, and say, oh, you know, uh, he doesn't wear masks. He doesn't want to wear a mask. Oh, well, that puts him over here. That means that he, you know, voted for Trump and, you know, is against the Democrats and Black Lives Matters and Deep State and da 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 You know, that makes him this, you know. Or he's anti-vaccine. Oh, well, that makes him, you know, this and this and this and this, you know. You know, or, you know, he talked about, you know, she talked about Black Lives Matters. Well, they must have voted for Biden and, you know, they don't know anything and, you know, da, 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 you know or they want this. So they must be into conspiracy <sighs> theories. And I mean, we there's so I, I'm blown away by how the rainbow, <laughs> the, the spectrum of colors the, the 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 huge spectrum of beliefs and approaches to life and responses to authority and government and responsibility and individual how these there's a there is no end if there's eight billion people there's eight billion different realities and approaches to life. We are unique. If you want to honor individualism, then I would say that, you know, a place to start is to not, you know, just look at shit in black or white, blue or red, and push people in your life, as well as in the news, to just say they are that, and they are that. And like ease the judgments a little bit here, you know, Gemini, North Node in Gemini is diversity of opinions and and out of this diversity, then we can come to the table and create collective laws and rules that honor individual, you know, 
minorities or minority beliefs, minority skin color, minority, you know, whatever. It's just like, wow, wow, you know? So uh, check out that, that video below and see a little bit more what I'm talking about, this collectivism and individualism. This guy is obviously uh, wanting the individualism, but I'm also saying, well, Aquarius, we're moving into the age of Aquarius. It is a little more collectivism. Yeah. And what we have to do is expand that collectivism to allow for individualism. So it's not either or. It's both and more, baby. <laughs> Jeez, I think I was talking fast there for a little while. There was something else, you know, just something else I wanted to bring. What was it? You know, it's just that, oh, I don't know if I want to end on an unhappy note, but just a little reminder that when we were in the age of Pisces for 2,000 years, the last 2,000 years, the age of Pisces created the shadow was Virgo. The opposite of Pisces, the age of Pisces, you know, burned witches at the stake. Herbal healers, you know, and the, and the Catholic, you know, or the, the Christianity, you know, you know, created not only the Crusades, but they wiped out the Mayans. And the Christians went down to Egypt and destroyed all the amazing artwork of the ancient Egyptians, smashing all the noses off of the, I mean, it's disgusting. You know, during the age of Pisces, how Virgo, you know, the powerful feminine, you know, was suppressed and sidelined and destroyed and killed. I mean, it was... Ah! I hate to say it, but now we're moving into this age of Aquarius for 2,000 years, more than that. And age is actually 2,160 years, but, you know, we don't have to get too techie. <laughs> it's beyond our freaking life anyway. <laughs> The opposite of Aquarius is Leo. And I got to say, uh, I don't want to say who's going to win or lose this game, but individualism, creative self-expression, self-determination, liberty, these are definitely going to be severely restricted, challenged. The hammer's coming down on it, baby. And there's something that, you know, each one of us personally and perhaps at least in little communities of sea people need to carry the torch. And it might be for a couple thousand years. Ah! (laughs) I'm feeling the need to escape or rebel the more the hammer comes down. I need to tap the genius within to create more common ground. I think you know what I'm talking about. 
we got to somehow brainstorm so we can find a common humanity. And a beautiful thing about that is what? Taurus. Gaia. We all share the same beautiful planet. We've got some common ground. It's our rivers. <laughs> it's our land. It's our food. It's our water. Let's start there. Let's start in a very simple, you know, just like, come in, come home to health. And to nature. And I think we can all. I don't think there's a human being alive that does not enjoy a beautiful sunset. That does not want to sit by a beautiful river. Or walk through a beautiful forest. Maybe we can start with art. And we can start with beauty. We can start with love. These common things that are common to humanity and build slowly. I guess. <laughs> Seems to happen slowly. It'd be nice to build it quickly, but <laughs> it's like moving a mountain, isn't it? Ow! Anyway, that's enough for today, right? Ow! <laughs> I'm feeling what? I'm feeling the need to escape or rebel the more the hammer comes down. I need to tap the genius within to create more common ground. May that common ground come to you in your most calm deep meditations downloaded from Krishna. Not from your ego, left brain, your curial thought forms, but from your Sagittarius, Jupiterian, intuitive, expanded consciousness. Namaste. Aloha. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. How the rainbow Talking tick to you, Richard. All right, just just a quick word. Yeah, I feel better now knowing how weird the uh, planetary system is uh, working on us. So I guess I could say it. It was personal when the when the universe. And what it did to me this week wasn't personal. It was uh, just the solar system effects. So, 
Okay, okay this is 23 minutes. Here we go. Here we go. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist, and welcome to Star Codes, where we are looking at the new moon in Taurus coming up on May 11th, and there's such a beautiful 11 code that is developing with this new moon. Now, it happens at 8 p.m. Universal Time, that's in London, and that is 3 p.m. Eastern Time, New York, 12 p.m. Los Angeles Pacific Time, so right on the dot on the hour. So this is a really positive new moon in Taurus. It's attracting a lot of self-growth and expansion. And that focus is a really enhanced by the number 11. It not only happens on May 11th, but it also is coinciding with three planets at 11 degrees, one of which is actually in Taurus, the sign of the new moon, and that is Uranus. Uranus is in Taurus at 11 degrees. Mars and Chiron are also at 11 degrees. So this creates a quadruple 11 code since it happens on May 11th. And that's pretty amazing. That's a Four doors opening, four gateways opening into present moment awareness and opportunity and double new beginnings. So talk about a fresh new sense of starting something that you've never done before. I mean, this is really moving into the unknown in a big way. And remember, Uranus is, is part of this whole 11 situation and Uranus is in Taurus the, the sign of the new moon, Uranus is about breakthroughs and new beginnings and the future and starting fresh and seeing new horizons, right? So May is also a 10 universal month and 10 reduces to one. So there are a lot of ones in the energy, in the air, and that initiates brand new, exciting developments as every new moon does every month. But this is really <laughs> a new moon that is magnified to the nth degree. Now, the sun and moon will be at 21 degrees in Taurus, and that creates another beautiful code because we are in 2021, and, of course, we're in the 21st century. So this also indicates that around the time of this new moon in May, we will feel more of the energy of the number 21 which is the number of truth and joy. So the truth shall set you free, and living a life of joy is really the key to any life that feels at peace and abundant and content. So Taurus is the sign of abundance. So Taurus actually governs being content, being content with your financial flow, with your environment, having pleasure in your life, feeling grounded, feeling secure, having values that you really feel comfortable with, that you've integrated into your life. And so this amazing star code is bringing wonderful opportunities for you to align with abundance, with wealth, and also to recognize that you naturally resonate with joy when you let go of the mind's idea, the egoic idea of, of what you want, and just surrender to what truly is showing up for you in a natural way. Now, this new moon creates a trine 
from both the sun and moon, which of course are together in Taurus, 21 degrees, to Pluto and a sextile to Neptune. And so this is wonderful for empowerment, accepting transformation. Um, you know, the trying to Pluto is very much about uncovering things, the truth, but also allowing transformation to just wash over you and therefore giving you a lot of confidence because you are literally not resisting what is going on. And the sextile to Neptune ignites this bountiful embrace of any expansion, any spirituality, galactic awareness, unconditional love, abundance. Neptune is a very abundant planet because it encompasses embracing everything beyond the horizon. It's a water planet and it's the higher octave of Venus. And Venus is part of this Taurus new moon experience because Venus rules Taurus. So the fact that Neptune is activated helps all those qualities of Venus the beauty, the love, the abundance, to be even more enhanced. We also have a trine from Mercury to Saturn, which is very helpful because it helps us concentrate. Um, we can create a lot of progress because our mind is thinking in very common sense, practical ways. We have a lot of perseverance. And then finally, remember those other two planets, Mars and Chiron at 11 degrees, aside from Uranus. Mars and Chiron are forming a square to each other, and that's significant because Chiron's when it's when it's in any sign, it sensitizes the sign. And Chiron is spending eight years in Aries right now. And so Aries is the sign that Mars rules. So when Mars squares Chiron in Aries, it is really putting an exclamation mark on you wanting to spend energy on healing and health, and acknowledging the sacred warrior within you, and understanding how to express frustration. Mars represents this energetic force, and so we do have a force, a divine force, right? And so when we tune in and trust that grace is guiding us on our journey, the grace, the love that, that the healing planet Chiron represents, then if we are, if we do get caught up in the illusion, and, and of course we, we end up doing that, right? Because we are humans and it's partly why we're here to learn. Uh, there's always grace. There's always that, that beauty that shows up with great benevolence and great love. And to just to trust that grace is the energy of the universe. That grace helps to deliver your destiny and fulfill it. And Mars is very keyed in on wanting to fulfill <laughs> what the plan is, right? So your plan for this lifetime was developed by your soul with the help of other benevolent beings before you entered this lifetime on Earth. And your plan, of course, includes your gifts, your lessons, your opportunities, certain destined events and meetings with people with whom you have agreements, soul agreements. And this Taurus new moon gives you the peace of mind and the security that really helps your plan to unfold beautifully. So your soul's plan, of course, is a blueprint, but it doesn't have all the details, right? So we can look at the energy forecast and we can give a sense of what is unfolding in the planets and the numerology 
but it is up to you to create the details. You fill in the choices and you determine the circumstances, right? So for instance, if your choices led you to live in a particular place or city, that location will provide you the setting, the people, the environment that your soul must then work with to manifest the overall divine plan for your life. And these circumstances were chosen by you after you were born. So the order and security represented by Taurus, which is an earth sign very connected to not being flighty and, and missing out, but literally sticking to the plan and, and being secure in that understanding that there is a divine order, that provides a framework through which you design the nature of how the opportunities will unfold, how your destiny, uh, those events that are destined will unfold. So what you did not have a choice about were your parents, the time of birth, the place of birth, with set and play, your whole astrology, numerology blueprint, your soul blueprint for the lifetime, but that didn't include the specific events, right? So the how your life, the how, the whole question of how you're going to fulfill everything that is energetically put in play is largely unknown to all of us. And the point then is, with also the 11, 11, 11, 11, is to stay utterly present and play it by ear so that you can intuitively, with 11, intuitively arrange the opportunities, the meetings, the lessons, any other circumstances to fulfill your plan as best you can with the existing conditions. As a result, your soul must be in touch with you closely throughout your life. And that being in touch comes through your heart. That comes through your intuition. And Venus, which rules Taurus, is very connected to that sensory perception, that love. So Uranus in Taurus, the sign Venus rules, is activating our intuition as well. Uranus is a very intuitive planet. And so it becomes second nature now where Uranus spending many years in Taurus, right? So it's becoming second nature for us to turn to our intuition and feel the security because of Taurus, feel the, the, the sense of confidence and security in doing so. And so this new moon in Taurus is very important because it lines up with this quadruple 11 code, the number 21 for the 21st century, the truth shall set you free. There's a lot here that is pointing to a greater awakening to trusting that intuition because your life will run peacefully when you trust your intuitive hunches. So divine grace's most dynamic way for guiding people's life is, is through that intuition, which works really, really well. You can respond very easily to your own intuition. If your mind doesn't interfere, that's the big the, the kicker here is if your mind is taking over the decision-making process or basically is the big elephant in the room and nothing else will fit in, then you, you, your intuition is, is not even heard, right? So intuition includes not just the ability to sense, but it includes nudges to do things and say things to others as well because people will deliver messages to other people especially if the deliverer of the message doesn't have 
an ulterior motive or an opinion about what is being delivered or whom is being delivered to. So the quadruple 11 code symbolizes that transmission of insights. The, the 11 is like two antenna, right? So it's a transmission of energy, transmission of insights, communication from source. And 11 is a double one. It's a portal. It's a gateway. And it can also stand for two people. And so 11 reduces to the number two. One plus one is two. So it means that divine grace can work through anyone, even as a messenger being totally disinterested or unrelated, you know, a stranger um, can actually be one of those transmissions from the divine to you. So someone unknown to you can tell you something or does something that helps change your direction or even change your life. And this happens all the time. So fortunately, there are many ways for your divine plan to be fulfilled. And if you look at this divine energy, this this grace as a hidden hand that puts certain information, certain opportunities, certain people in front of you, which you can say yes to or say no to, right? That is your free will. Let's say that you say no to an important opportunity, for example. Then this divine energy, this divine grace will provide other options, other suitable arrangements, and it actually will arrange circumstances in your life to help you see the benefit of saying yes to the original opportunity. Um, or something else may happen. So in this way, the plan for your soul will play out in in a way that is truly remarkable. And you'll find many opportunities that will be difficult to dismiss. And it will also be very difficult to say no to opportunities that don't make sense. So pursuing those, there will be energetic forces from the divine order that will prevent that as well. And again, that is just part of the overall unbelievable miracle of the the soul's plan that you put into place. So just like Mars square Chiron creates a force, this divine hand of grace, which arranges and even prohibits certain events in your life and in the world is also a real force. And it's not to say that we're puppets or marionettes being pulled, you know, the strings being pulled, um, because you can always go against the energy. But the the whole point of this divine force is to manage the comings and goings in your life and keep them moving in a certain direction according to your soul's plan. And also the larger plan for Earth and even the universe, the whole. So Uranus and Taurus, which is an Earth sign, reminds us that these non-physical forces exist and how they're integral to living a flowing, peaceful, harmonious life in the physical dimension of Earth. So there's both free will, which is very much represented also by Uranus, and something unimaginable that is helping to unfold your life in the highest vibrational way possible in life in general. So you have this design within a greater design and as to how your design unfolds is up to your free will. So everyone on earth plays a part just as all non-physical beings and other dimensions play a part. And that means you play a part in other people's destiny as well. 
And, you know, we can go on and on. It just expands, expands, because everyone who's ever lived on Earth has played a part as well. And that's how expansive and immense this is. And it encompasses players that we never imagined even existed, including on other planets and other universes, infinite number of universes and dimensions. So fortunately, we don't need to understand how this works or be even aware that it is happening to live our life and to live our experience. So trusting that life is being guided by these extremely wise and benevolent forces, beings, is important. So to trust that you are in good hands, that grace is profoundly intelligent and wise, that you are loved and honored deeply, and to know that this is happening beyond your imagination, this love. Now, if you don't sense how loved you are, it is going to be more challenging for grace to be present and operate in your life. So grace is always present, but to acknowledge grace is to activate the positive flow. Meaning if you're lost in the illusion, believing you're not loved, you're not lovable, that you're alone and you're abandoned in an uncaring universe, it will be difficult for you to take advantage of all the opportunities and the abundance that's available to you. In other words, you won't recognize what is being offered and be willing to receive what is being offered. So if you filter out the positive and ignore or misinterpret people who are helping or any, anything that's coming your way, kind words, encouragements, gentle nudges, gifts that life brings, Grace is offering you these things, and if you reject them or ignore them, you won't see the goodness in life. And when you're lost, divine grace still tries to help you. It's still present, tries to help you see the truth of of the situation you're in. But these forces can only do so much to help you as long as you're not asking or looking for them, the forces, or others to help. So one way I... That would be a good way to to just realize how the divine is active in your life is to look at the beautiful so-called synchronicities, coincidences, like, you know, maybe you've been wanting to travel to a certain country or tropical island, whatever the case may be, and your friend uh, shows up, uh, says, you know, she and her family are going and invites you on the trip. And so that dream comes true. Or you don't know how to do something and you look it up and you search on YouTube and voila, you have a step-by-step guide. So the universe always provides. So you always want to follow up on finding those resources, right? Another example is If you need a roommate and you get a call from a friend who just found a place and, you know, is looking for somebody to share with her, or you have a relative who gives you money for a few months while you find a job so you can pay rent, all these things in the past that may have happened to you. You have a health concern and you meet someone with the same issue who's found some answers and happily shares those or someone offers you a new job just as you're getting really tired of the job you're in and you know that that works seamlessly or you've read something and you realize you want to learn more about the subject and that subject becomes really important in helping you with a part of your life 
So there's many ways to, especially, you know, we have this incredible resource on the internet, which is how we're connecting with each other. And so you can join programs or Facebook private pages, whatever the case may be. You can join a group and maybe it has monthly meetings and you meet a person who then becomes very, very close to you, right? Or speaking of friends, your friend may give you a ticket to an event, a concert, and she last minute can't go and you end up going and, and meeting somebody, maybe the love of your life, right? So these things happen all the time. We just forget. And so it's just that they're blessings from the universe and acknowledging that life is very benevolent. And so if you happen to miss an opportunity too, that's significant, you'll be presented with another opportunity later on, right? So it's, it's, that's the thing. There's bounty, there's abundance, and Taurus really represents that, that bounty and abundance and that pleasure and that trust. So embrace it all because divine grace allows you to make any choice you want to make while presenting you with many possibilities to choose from. So step through that 11 portal. It really is about being present and noticing and listening and, you know, you're free to live inside your head if you want to, your ideas about yourself, how you want your life to go, all this being caught up in the future or, or the past, or you can live the life that you are being given, right? This is the key. If you live the life you're being given, then you are living in tune with grace and you are listening to present moment. So, Try not to live through somebody else's expectations of you that have been hand-me-downs or try not to live someone else's life that you admire. Find your own true happiness because you want to live the life that is meant for you, that your soul has chosen, and that will give you the joy and peace. So when you feel that inner contentment, right, you know that this is divine grace that is rewarding you for saying yes to your destiny. That's why you feel content. You're finding your place in the universe. You're actively engaged in it. So have an amazing Taurus new moon and be sure to discover your soul code, which gives you so many clues as to who you are at soul level at starcodeclass.com, my free masterclass that I created for you that gives you the secrets of your birthday, birth certificate name, and your astrology birth chart. So enjoy that free masterclass at starcodeclass.com, and I will see you in next week's Starcodes podcast. Lots of love. Thank you, brother, for your service. Uh, oh, I think I'll, uh, I'll, well, I'll on the conference call. Thank you, Richard.
Thank you. We'll see you on the conference call. And Rama. Uh, the number is 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. See you there, everybody, and then we'll be back here at the top of the very next hour. Back to BBS Radio, best radio there is. Come and join us and see us here tonight, right now, for the next hour on the conference call. See you there. Namaste. Are we done? Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah. Oh... Everybody, it's just like we're on the path, Mm. on the new, and you want to play that next? Okay, can you put this somewhere, maybe on the floor or something, just out of the way? So then, oh, where are they? Oh. Mm-hmm. oh, right in my arms here. Okay, Rama wants to play something. It's called Nephilim at Mount Hermon. You know, when we were living up there with our friends, um, you know, he got the Magellans. Um. But there was a Mount Hermon right there. We used to walk to mm, it. Hermit's. Hermit's oh, that was Hermit's Pit. Hermit's Peak. Okay, see. Yeah. Okay, Mount Hermit. So thousands of years ago, a mission was sent to Earth in which human-looking... Oh, before I go into this, I just wanted to make a comment. Our brother Jerry was talking about uh, a question about what the color of the people of Egypt were and... There is a book we have, and I think it predates all that debate because it's many more than 8,000 years ago, but um, that there weren't any white people at all on the planet. And I think I've brought this up before. And there were no white people at all in Europe, and certainly none in the West. Uh, And that was all. Uh, the history books were changed, everything. And it was an experiment that they did to, um, you might say, separate people by color. And it was racism stuff. Yes, that had to do with Anki In and Lil and... Before that, I mean, this mm, is a long time ago. Maybe so, yeah. And so, uh, now that's not to curse white people either. It's just that the, uh, fallen angelic presence used the color white to, uh, as we call it in the modern day, Americans accept, exceptionalize us, you know. Uh, yet, uh, no, the, the case is that, uh, Go get out in the sun, everybody. <laughs> get a little color in your skin. But um, so the Nephilim. Um, 
thousands of years ago, a mission was sent to Earth in which human-looking beings were to act as guardians or watchers, simply observing early civilizations. Yet something went wrong. Some of these beings mingled with the human population, unintentionally creating a race of giants, six-fingered beings we call the Nephilim. Ricardo Gonzalez describes the events that took place at Mount Hermon, one of two massive time portals on Earth, where these beings landed and gave rise to historic events that have shaped human history, including the ascension of Yeshu as the establishment of a secret shamanic order that has persisted through through the ages. So let's do this. Here we go. 24 minutes. All that in 24 minutes, okay? <laughs> It's coming. Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we are with Ricardo Gonzalez, Peruvian author and researcher who has experienced multiple direct contacts with an extraterrestrial species called the Apuyans. Today, we are talking about the contact portal on Mount Hermon. Ricardo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes, I've had the opportunity to go to Israel more than once. It's a fascinating place. On one occasion, I had the chance to visit the sacred mountain of Israel, Mount Hermon. It's more like a chain of mountains beyond Israel, which also includes Lebanon and Syria. It's a very dangerous place with significant military presence because it is a tri-border area. The Israeli military actually has a base at the summit of Mount Hermon. But according to information I have, the military there is not just protecting this tri-border, but also some type of singularity or phenomenon a portal that can be found on Mount Hermon. At another time, you asked me if there was a difference between dimensional portals. There are dimensional portals that may provide information, others to have a personal experience there. And as we discussed in another interview, some have galactic jurisdiction, if you will. Is there an entry point there that also goes through the three countries that you're aware of? The whole area of Mount Hermon mountain chain is special. But the main singularity is found in Israeli territory. It's a time portal that connects to different times of the Earth and that connects to other realities far beyond our world. For this reason, that place was chosen in the past to be at the center of several historic events, including one of extraterrestrial origin. Tell this is one of the big stargates in that area. And the reason it's dangerous is because Lebanon, Syria, and Israel do not get along. Tell us about that. A long time ago, thousands of our years, 
A mission of extraterrestrials was sent to Earth. These beings looked human, with human-like appearance, like us. These beings are known in experience contact as guardians or watchers. These guardians or watchers' purpose was just that, to observe and watch over humans in that Middle East region. But these beings made a mistake. Even though they were very developed extraterrestrials and had a very specific role, they found themselves involved with an external influence, an unknown influence that upset them and caused them to make mistakes. These beings chose to land in what is now known as Mount Hermon because it is one of the most important time portals in this world. At that time, they then mixed with the daughters of humankind, the daughters of Earth. These beings were not angels, like a lot of the ancient scriptures say. We're talking about cosmonauts from other worlds. So these beings from other worlds mixed with the women of the Earth because they were anatomically compatible. In the scriptures, their hybrid children are described as a race of giants, three generations of giants, where one of them were named Nephilim or Nephilai. The important thing about this case that happened on Mount Hermon is that it preceded other hybridization episodes that happened in different parts of the world, generating a prohibited race of giants, children of extraterrestrials and earth women. In a very old text known as the Book of Enoch, it is said that 200 beings descended on Mount Hermon. Their commander was named Samyasa, and he, with all the group under his command, taught forbidden knowledge to the humans, aside from creating hybridization with Earth women. When this occurred, the extraterrestrial alliance that was monitoring our world separated these beings from the process of our world. Because of this mistake that they made, they were relieved of their duties, and the giant children were gathered together and taken to lands far from where human beings lived. Because the giants should not mix with the human process, because they were children of extraterrestrials. But some of these giants wanted to live with humans, because they were also human, because their mothers were human. But the alliance that was monitoring planet Earth isolated them and gathered them in an archipelago of islands in the Atlantic Ocean, isolated from the rest of the cultures of the world. But at some point, these giants began to leave their confinement and tried to mingle with humanity again. That race of giants is extinct now. They disappeared. Humans hunted them down and allowed them to become extinct. However, nevertheless, something very important happened. These giants also created hybridization with some women of the earth and transferred part of that first hybridization that happened on Mount Hermon. The original giants of Mount Hermon were born with polydactylia. And is this the Anunnaki story? When we speak of the Anunnaki, we're actually referring to an old Sumerian legend because Anu was the deity of the heavens. And those who came from the heavens and arrived on the earth could be called Anunnaki, in other words, extraterrestrials. With that, indeed, they were sons of Anu, sons of the heavens. In fact, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, it says that the sons of heaven, the children of God, 
When they saw how beautiful the daughters of man were, they came together and bore giants. The Bible also mentions that they were born with six fingers, six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. In other words, 24 digits in total. Something very interesting in this genetic mutation, if it occurred that way. So we're talking about an extraterrestrial species with a human appearance that we could relate to the myth of the Anunnaki, who joined certain groups of human beings and bore giant children, which placed the Homo sapiens evolutionary process at risk. And this started on Mount Hermon. Then it was repeated in other areas of the Middle East, including North Africa, like in Algeria or Egypt. However, the story has somehow continued even to this day. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, traveled to Mount Hermon, and it was on that mountain where he experienced his transfiguration. It was not on Mount Tabor like many Christians currently believe. It was on Mount Hermon, because in fact, the scriptures mention that Jesus was with his disciples by Caesarea Philippi. According to ancient scriptures like the Bible, Jesus was around Mount Hermon before going up to the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration is Mount Hermon. Jesus went up it in the company of some of his disciples, and on the mountain height, two figures appeared. One of them was Elijah, and the other was Moses, two individuals who had already had contact experiences in the past who had had their encounters with the chariots of fire of the angels. In fact, some of his disciples wanted to erect three tents for Jesus and his invisible or bright companions. Peter, the disciple, was completely shocked seeing Jesus walking with these luminous beings. Why did all of this happen there? Because it's a time portal, and important people from other times met with Jesus then. After this ascension to Mount Hermon is when the final and fundamental part of Jesus' mission began. Jesus went to Mount Hermon because he was looking for water. The water there on Mount Hermon is very special for these dimensional portals. We can't forget that Jesus began his public ministry at the Jordan River, where he was baptized by John the Baptist. The Jordan River originates at Mount Hermon. Jesus, after being baptized, goes to the source. So on Mount Hermon is where Jesus had that contact, and with that contact, he attempted to seal the mistake of the 200 angels from the past. We're talking about 200 extraterrestrial beings made a mistake on that mountain. The giants were born, and thousands of years later, Jesus was going to that same mountain to close something that had been opened. Now there, we find one of the most dangerous military places in the world. This is obviously not a coincidence. But I do insist on something. The legacy of the Brotherhood of the Six Fingers that comes from this lineage of giants is still alive today in shamanic circles. And it is one of the biggest, deepest secrets of the dimensional portals. Who are these shamans and what is their practice and message? We don't have to go too far to understand it, Emery. There's a place that I'm sure you know very well here in your country, New Mexico. Many things have happened there linked to UFO phenomena. But much before the existence of all these cases of crafts that crashed in New Mexico, very important Native American communities existed 
indigenous to the area, shamans, who left very special marks and signs in petroglyphs. For example, in their petroglyphs, there are references to strange entities and also markings of hands with six fingers. For example, at Three Rivers Park, right? Yes, I'm very familiar with this, of course, because you know I'm from there. And the most amazing things, I can definitely attest to the petroglyphs because I've seen them myself there with the six fingers. How does New Mexico connect to Mount Hermon? The connection, first of all, is historical because if we consider what the Bible says, the book of Enoch that I was referring to, in the context of extraterrestrial information that I affirm that I have received, the first giants with six digits appeared on Mount Hermon. From the descendants of these giants emerged the anomaly of six fingers that has been inherited over time up to our day. When someone in a shamanic circle is born with six fingers on either their hand or foot, they are considered to be a child of the gods, not knowing the story of Mount Hermon, of course. But in their shamanic beliefs, a boy or girl with six digits was a child of the gods. They were special. Within the shamanic circle, when a special place was found, where a child with six digits with psychic abilities had identified a vortex to mark that place and not forget it, they would leave an imprint with six fingers in cave art, either with petroglyphs or with paint, not only in New Mexico, but specifically throughout the Americas. Many places of contact that are known in the Americas have petroglyphs or paintings of hands with six fingers. This is also related to a more recent migration that happened in the Americas from the east, where the last guardians of knowledge from the Altai Mountains in Siberia in the last Ice Age, according to what our historians believe, they crossed over to America, going all the way to South America. What's the connection between Jesus and these extraterrestrials from Mount Hermon? There's a very profound connection between Jesus in the flesh and extraterrestrial contact. But before I delve into this topic, allow me to say a few things. For the people who are watching me now in this interview, I am very respectful of all religious beliefs, but I also believe that our religions have often manipulated our historical events. I have a deep respect for the great people in the history of humanity, like Moses, Buddha, or Jesus, for example. I consider Jesus to be an actual historical figure, beyond faith and religion and what was later created. And I say this with the deepest respect. Having said that, Jesus is one of the most important hierarchies of this planet. For these beings from other worlds, these extraterrestrials, Jesus is one of the figures of this earth who has shown them truly how illuminated humans may be. According to them, his birth was planned. His life was monitored. Jesus was not an extraterrestrial. But according to the information that I have received, extraterrestrials were observing the historic events of his life because they knew that the things that happened to Jesus were going to be extraordinarily influential in the earth's history. Jesus' life is full of peculiar events linked to the UFO phenomena. 
starting with the star that was guiding the wise men to his birthplace. Aside from what some astronomers believe about an alignment or other celestial signs, we're talking about an actual bright object in the sky that was moving and that was stopping, guiding the three wise men. All Jesus' life was followed by the extraterrestrials, and Mount Hermon was a culminating event. I feel that the friendly group of extraterrestrials that I've spoken about wanted Jesus to be able to close something up on Mount Hermon, the mistake that was made by the other group of beings. This would mean that the portal on Mount Hermon would be closed and secure. But every so often, there are small cracks of time in that portal. When these open up, events are affected on our planet. I have information that there is an active crack right now on Mount Hermon that coincides with all of the world events that we are facing right now. But this time there's no Jesus to come seal it up. Humanity itself has to take action to withstand this influence. I know how all this sounds. I know that it sounds crazy. But if you research the story of angels and Jesus' life, you can contrast it with ufology and extraterrestrial contacts you will be very, very surprised. So why do you call this place a portal of time? Basically, Emery, all portals that are within dimensions are time portals. But there are some special points on planet Earth that are great time portals in and of themselves because in those vortexes, different historical realities are superimposed. Not just the Earth's timeline, but also other historic timelines beyond the Earth itself. Those vortexes on Earth that have this special power, I call those the great portals of time. The two biggest ones that I have seen, Mount Hermon that I'm mentioning now, which I haven't experienced yet, but I have this information, and the other one that I have experienced at the heart of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. So this crack that you speak of, who is behind that? Obviously, it's not an influence that as humans we would consider friendly or positive. It is an influence that has the signature of the fallen angels of Mount Hermon and also of some of their giant children who were jealous of humanity. And that energy is trapped in this world. It can confuse, it can interfere, and it is one of the black books of ufology that has inspired a lot of conspiracy theories and books, exaggerating or distorting things. But Mount Hermon continues to be the mountain of time, and Israel the country of the clock of prophecies or anything that can possibly happen in the future of humanity, is reflected there like a mirror. The water that is consumed in Israel comes from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon also represents the conflict with neighboring countries, situations that at some point humanity has to overcome. For some reason, the extraterrestrials chose that place to land. And for some reason, like I already mentioned, Jesus of Nazareth also chose that mountain. So this crack in the mountain, you know, what is this? I'm speaking of a subtle influence of energy that every so often flows from places like Mount Hermon. I remember a passage in the scriptures, in the Bible, specifically Ephesians 6, when it speaks of war among human beings. It's not against entities of flesh and bone, 
but rather against celestial powers. If these negative energies are coming out of Mount Hermon, are there any energies going back into Mount Hermon? The cracks that may be opened in Earth's time portals are like a sponge phenomena. When a sponge is full of water, you can squeeze it and the water runs out. It's a crack that emits energy or influence, like we're seeing now. But if you take the same sponge and you put it in water, it absorbs it. So these cracks in time also absorb our mental energy. As a human species, if our mental energy is unorganized or dark, we keep the anomaly or crack active. The time portals, as I call them on the planet, and I'm referring to the great time portals such as Mount Hermon, when they energies periods of anomaly, where they do begin to filter some of the energy that they have trapped there, they generate this phenomenon of recycling our emotions. And it doesn't happen like in the times of Jesus when a very conscious being like him can confront a portal. Not even with our current technology. It has to be through a shift in consciousness of a very important segment of our world population. If we stop feeding these cracks with fear, concern, disorder, violence, obviously we will be able to transform everything, feeding the planet with a higher, much more positive vibration. Mount Hermon, I want to emphasize this, is not a negative portal. It's just a great portal in time where very dramatic things happen like the falling of angels, the origin of the giants, and very illuminating events such as the transfiguration of Christ. In other words, portals behave according to facts. In this time in our history, Mount Hermon in Israel is the key to the times to come. For example, there is important symbolism with the figure of Jesus. It's believed that when Jesus was born, there was an alignment between Jupiter and Saturn that was very powerful and could be seen, like a great light in the sky. Saturn represents Kronos, time, and Jupiter represents the great master, the teacher, the one who brings order. So a great teacher of time had been born. This is one of the interpretations of the Star of Bethlehem. In my opinion, the Star of Bethlehem was an extraterrestrial ship, but there was also an alignment. This just happened again. It happens every so often on our planet, but for it to be visible at night, 800 years had to go by so that you could see Jupiter and Saturn meeting in our skies. In the year of the pandemic, we had a series of signs, eclipses, the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, the activation of various volcanoes like Krakatoa in Indonesia. Climate change is also intensified. And when all of these types of signs are organized in a group, it almost always coincides with a time portal functioning on Earth. But a big one, like Mount Hermon. There's a story that we still haven't fully understood about Mount Hermon and the extraterrestrials. Because there was an agenda that was never fulfilled, that was interrupted by these extraterrestrials' mistake. Then this army of giants appeared, putting the human experience at risk. It generated another anomaly in our timeline. Part of that history that we don't know is still closed inside the Library of Time of Mount Hermon. That's all that I can say on television about that. So where do we go from now? What, what's your thoughts on that? We don't know exactly. 
Usually when a time portal is emanating this type of energy, it is generally for short periods of time according to our perception. A few years or sometimes a few months. While that is happening, the world is turned upside down. But it is also an opportunity to listen, to get in tune with ourselves. It's almost as if a great library in Egypt or another ancient country were closed. With all its windows and curtains closed, not allowing you to see inside that library. And then suddenly something happens. And a curtain was left open. And if you approach the window, at least you can see from there what books are inside that library. At least those that are close enough for you to see. If your vision is such that you are able to see a book open on a table, possibly you can even read a fragment, a line from the pages of the open book. That happens with the great portals of time. There are immense libraries of Earth's events that are humanly impossible for us to read. But you can at least comprehend a sliver of that reality. And for what? Is it just out of spiritual or intellectual curiosity? Jesus himself gave the answer. I will give you knowledge. I will give you the truth. And the truth will set you free. Knowledge liberates. Ricardo, thank you again for being on the show. It's always a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Amory. My name's Emory Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Okay. How about, uh, what would you like to do next, Drama? Um, I mean, you want to do Joseph Campbell next? Or? Yeah, lift it up. Okay, let's do our brother Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. Yes, it seems like it's time to revisit this brother. Okay, this one is uh, The Power of Myth. Bill Moyers and mythologist Joseph Campbell compare creation myths from the Bible and elsewhere. Campbell compares the creation story in Genesis with creation stories from around the world. Because the world changes, religion has to be transformed and new mythologies created. All right, let's see what this wise being has to say. We lived in the winter in the wilderness between the Naimo and the West Coast, like North Central Vancouver Island. And we played him, keep us in contact with the world. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. This is the song of the world from a legend of the Pima Indians. In the beginning, there was only darkness everywhere, darkness and water. And the darkness gathered thick in places, crowding together and then separating crowding and separating. 
and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And this is from the Hindu Upanishad. In the beginning, there was only the great self reflected in the form of a person. Reflecting, it found nothing but itself. And its first word was, this am I. Joseph Campbell wondered that in almost every culture on earth, you can find stories that tell of virgins giving birth to heroes who die and are resurrected. Osiris, Tammuz, Adonis, Jesus of Nazareth, parallel stories of suffering, sacrifice, and redemption. And why did certain sites take on holy status, one religion following another, on the very same spot, believers coming century after century for healing, or for some other blessing from their different gods. The pyramids on the Nile, the ziggurats of Mesopotamia, the Aztec shrines, the cathedrals of Chartres and Notre Dame, all pointing beyond the visible plane of existence. Buried deep in our DNA, Campbell concluded, no matter who we are, is the need to worship, to believe, and the capacity for reverence. Religion, with its symbols and rituals and stories, is the way we mortals try to connect to that unseen world. Raised a Roman Catholic, Campbell's own life experiences made him a maverick in search of the sublime. Over the last two summers of his life, in hours of conversations recorded in the library of Lucasfilm in California, we talked about how mythology can still awaken a sense of awe, gratitude, and even rapture. Why myths? Why should we care about myths? What do they have to do with my life? Well, my first answer would be, well, John, live your life. It's a good life. You don't need this. Uh, I don't believe in um, being interested in subjects because they're said to be important and interesting. I believe in being caught by it somehow or other. Uh, but you may find that uh, with a proper introduction, this uh, subject will, will catch you. And so, uh, what can it do for you when it does catch you? These bits of information from ancient times, which have to do with the themes that have supported man's life, built civilizations, informed religions over the millennia, have to do with deep inner problems, inner mysteries, inner uh, thresholds of passage. And if you don't know what the guide signs are along the way, you have to work it out yourself. But once this catches you, there is always such a feeling from one or another of these traditions of information of a deep, rich, life-vivifying thought that you, you want to give it up. So myths are stories of, of the search by men and women through the ages for meaning, for significance, to make life signify, to touch the eternal, 
to understand the mysterious, to find out who we are. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive. So that uh, the life experiences that we have on the purely uh, physical plane will have resonances within that are those of our own innermost being and reality. And uh, so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. Uh, that's what it's all finally about. And that's what these uh, clues help us to find within ourselves. Myths are clues? Myths are clues to the spiritual potentialities of the human life. What we're capable of knowing within? Yes. And experiencing within? Yes. I like your definition. You changed the definition of a myth from the search for meaning to the experience of, the experience, of meaning. Experience. The experience of life. The experience of life. The mind has to do with meaning. In here, what's the meaning of a flower? That Zen story of the Sermon of the Buddha when his whole company was gathered and he simply lifted a flower. And there's only one man, Kashyapa, who gave him a sign with his eye that he understood what was said. What's the meaning of the universe? What's the meaning of a flea? The, uh, it's just there. That's it. And your own meaning is that you're there. Now we are so engaged in doing things to achieve purposes of outer value uh, that we forget that the inner value, the, the rapture that is associated with being alive is what it's all about. Now, we want to think about God. God is a thought. God is a name. God is an idea. But its reference is to something that transcends all thinking. The ultimate mystery of being is beyond all categories of thought. My friend Heinrich Simmer years ago used to say, the best things can't be told because they transcend thought. The second best are misunderstood because those are the thoughts that are supposed to refer to that which can't be thought about, you know, and one gets stuck with the thoughts. The third best are what we talk about, you see. <laughs> and the myth is that field of reference, metaphors referring to what is absolutely transcendent. What can't be known. What can't be known. Or can't be named. Yes. Except in our own feeble attempt to clothe it in language. And the ultimate word in our language for that which uh, is transcendent is God. Do you remember... What went through your mind the first time you saw Michelangelo's creation? By the time I uh, became aware of that, my notion of divinity was uh, not quite so personal, you know. The idea of God, that he's a bearded old man of some kind with certain not very pleasant temperament. That is, I would say, a sort of materialistic way of talking about the transcendent. It's just the opposite of it. found uh, on an island in the harbor of Bombay from around the 8th century. This is a wonderful cave. You enter the cave from a, a bright sky. Of course, moving into the darkness, your eyes are blacked out. But if you just keep walking slowly, gradually the eyes adjust, and this enormous thing, it's about 19 feet high and 19 feet across, 
the central head is the mask of eternity. This is the mask of God. Mask of eternity. That is the metaphor through which eternity is to be experienced as a radiance. And these other two figures? Whenever one moves out of the uh, transcendent, one comes into a field of opposites. These two pairs of opposites come forth as male and female from the two sides. One has eaten of the tree of the knowledge, not only of good and evil, but of male and female, of right and wrong, of this and that, and light and dark. Everything in the field of time is dual, past and future, dead and alive. All this, being and non-being, is, isn't. And what's the significance of them being beside the mask of God, the mask of eternity? What is this sculpture saying to us? The mask represents the middle and the two represent the two opposites and uh, they always come in pairs and put your mind in the middle most of us put our minds on the side of the good against what we think of as evil it was Heraclitus I think who said for God all things are good and right and just but for man some things are right and others are not. You're in the field of time when you're man. And one of the promises of life is to live in the uh, realization of both terms. That's to say, I know the center. And I know that good and evil are simply temporal apparitions. Well, are some myths more or less true than others? They're true in different senses, do you see? Uh, here's a whole mythology based on the insight that transcends duality. Ours is a mythology that's based on the insight of duality. And so our religion tends to be ethical in its accent. Sin and atonement, right and wrong. It started with a sin, you see. In other words, moving out of the mythological zone, the garden of paradise where there is no time and where men and women don't even know that they're different from each other the, the two are just uh, creatures and uh, God and man are, are practically the same he walks in the cool of the evening in the garden where we are and then they eat the apple the knowledge of the pairs of opposites and man and woman then cover their shame they're different God and man they're different Man in nature is against man. I once heard a wonderful lecture by Daisetsu Suzuki. You remember this wonderful old Zen philosopher who was over here? He, he was in his 90s. He started a lecture in Switzerland, I heard, in Nascona. He stood up with his hands on his side and he said, God against man, man against God, man against nature, nature against man, nature against God, God against nature. Very funny religion. <laughs> now, in the other mythologies, one puts oneself in accord with the world. If the world is a mixture of good and evil, you do not put yourself in accord with it. You identify with the good and you fight against the evil. And this is a religious system which belongs to the Near East following Zarathustra's time. It's in the biblical tradition. Uh, all the way in Christianity and Islam as well. This business of not 
being with nature, and we speak with a sort of derogation of the nature religions. You see, with that fall in the garden, nature was regarded as corrupt. That's a myth for you that corrupts the whole world for us. Uh, and every spontaneous act is sinful because nature is corrupt and has to be corrected, must not be yielded to. You get a totally different civilization, a totally different way of living, according to your myth as to whether nature is fallen or whether nature is itself uh, a manifestation of divinity and the spirit being the revelation of the divinity that's inherent in nature. Don't you think that Americans, modern Americans, have rejected this idea, this Indian idea, this ancient idea of nature as revealing the divinity because it would have kept us from achieving dominance over nature? Uh, yeah, but that's the biblical condemnation of nature that they inherited from their own religion and brought with them. Uh, the, uh, God is not in nature. God is separate from nature, and nature is not God. And this distinction between God and the world is uh, not to be found in, in basic Hinduism or Buddhism either. I'll never forget the experience I had when I was in Japan. To be in a place that never heard of the fall of the garden of Eden. To be in a place where I can read in one of the Shinto texts, the processes of nature cannot be evil. When every impulse, every natural impulse, is uh, not to be corrected, but to be sublimated, you know, to be beautified. And the glorious interest in the, in the beauty of nature and cooperation with nature and coordination so that in some of those gardens you don't know where nature begins and art ends. This to me was a, a tremendous experience and it's another mythology. Speaking of different mythologies, let's just have a little fun here. I, 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 I took these from your atlas. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll read Genesis. I'll read from Genesis and then you identify and read from the from the corresponding oh, text. Oh, yes. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, this is from a legend of the Basari people of West Africa. Unumbote made a human being. Its name was man. Unumbote next made an antelope named antelope. Unumbote made a snake named snake. And Unumbote said to them, The earth has not yet been pounded. You must pound the ground smooth where you are sitting. Unumbote gave them seeds of all kinds and said, Go plant these. And Genesis 1 and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And from the Upanishad, then he realized, I indeed am this creation, for I have poured it forth for myself. In that way, he became this creation. And verily, he who knows this becomes in this creation a creator. That's the clincher there. Okay. When you know this, then you've identified with the creative principle yourself, which is the God power in the world, which means in you. It's beautiful. What do you think we're looking for when we subscribe to one of these theories of creation, one of these stories of creation? What are we looking for? Well, I think what we're looking for 
is a way of experiencing the world in which we are living that will open to us the transcendent that informs it and at the same time informs ourselves within it. That's what people want. That's what the soul asks for. I mean, we're looking for some accord with the mystery that informs all things, like what you call that vast ground of silence, which we all share. Yes, but not only to, to find it, but to find it actually in our, in our environment, in our world, to recognize it, to have some kind of instruction that will enable us to see the divine presence. In the world and in us. And in India, this wonderful Anjali, this greeting, you know what that means? No. That's the greeting of prayer, isn't it? That's what we yeah. use for prayer. They greet you with that. That's greeting the God that's in you as you come in. These people are aware of the divine presence. When you enter an Indian home as a guest, you are a visiting deity and you feel it by God the way they treat you. Uh, it's, um, it's something in the way of a hospitality that you don't get where you have simply one person and another person. It's a recognition of the identity. But weren't people who told these stories and believed them and acted on them asking far more simple questions, you know, who made the world? How was the world made? Why was the world made? Are, are these the questions that these creation stories are trying to address? No. Uh, it's through that answer that they see that the creator is present in the whole world. Do you see what I mean? Uh, this story that we've just read, uh, I see that I am this creation, says the God. When you see that God says he is the creation and then you are a creature, well, the God is within you and the man you're talking to also. And so there's that realization, two aspects of the one divinity. Accord again, harmony again. Wonderful thing. Let me ask you some questions about these common features in these stories, the, the significance of the forbidden fruit. Well, there's this standard folk tale motif called the, the one forbidden thing. <laughs> Remember, Bluebeard, don't open that closet, you know, and then one always does it. And in the Old Testament story, God gives the one forbidden thing, and he knows very well. I, now, I'm, now I'm interpreting God. Uh, he knows very well that man's going to uh, eat the forbidden fruit. But it's by doing that that man becomes the initiator of his own life. Life really begins with that. I also find in some of these early stories uh, the human ten tendency to uh, find someone to blame. Uh, let, me yeah. read, let me read Genesis 1, then I'll ask you to read uh, one from the Basara legend. Right. Genesis 1, and God said, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I, you talk about buck passing, it starts very early. Right. And then there's the Basari. It's been tough on serpents, too. <laughs> no talking day. Snake said, we too should eat these fruits. Why must we go hungry? Antelope said, but we don't know anything about this fruit. Then man and his wife took some of the fruit and ate it. Unumbate came down from the sky and asked, who ate the fruit? They answered, we did. Unumbate asked, who told you that you could eat that fruit? They replied, Snake did. <laughs> it's the same story. It's the same what story. do you make of this? That in all of these stories, the principal actors are pointing to someone else 
as the initiator of the fall. Yeah, but it turns out to be Snake. And, and, and Snake in both of these stories is the symbol of life throwing off the past and uh, continuing to live. <laughs> Why? The power of life, because the snake sheds its skin, just as the moon sheds its shadow. The snake in most cultures is positive. Right. Even the most poisonous thing in India, the cobra, is a sacred animal. <laughs> and uh, the serpent, the Naga, the serpent king, Nagaraja, is the <laughs> next thing to the Buddha. Because the serpent represents the power of life in the field of time to throw off death. And the Buddha represents the power of life in the field of eternity to be eternally alive. Now, I saw a, a fantastic thing of a Burmese priestess, a, a snake priestess, who had to bring rain to her people by calling a king cobra from his den and kissing him three times on the nose. There was the cobra, the giver of life, the giver of rain, which is his life, as a divine, positive, not negative figure. The Christian story has turned it around because the serpent was the seducer. Well, what, what that amounts to is a uh, refusal to affirm life. Life is evil in this view. Every... Every natural impulse is sinful unless you've been baptized or circumcised in this uh, tradition that we've inherited, for heaven's sakes. By uh, having been the tempter, women have paid a great price because in mythology, some of this mythology, they are the ones who led to the downfall. Of course they did. I mean, they represent life. Man doesn't enter life except by woman. And so it is woman who brings us into the world of polarities and uh, a pair of opposites and suffering and all. But I think it's a really childish attitude to say no to life with all its pain, you know? Uh, to say this is something that should not have been. Schopenhauer in one of his uh, marvelous chapters, I think it's in The World's Woman Idea, says life is something that should not have been. It is in its very essence uh, and, and character, uh, a terrible thing to consider. This business of living by killing and eating. I mean, it's in sin in terms of all ethical judgments all the time. As Zorba says, uh, you know, trouble, life is trouble. That's it. Only death is no trouble. And when people say to me, you know, do you have uh, optimism about the world, you know, how terrible it is? I said, yes, just say, it's great. Just the way it is. But doesn't that lead to a rather passive attitude in the face of evil, in the face of You wrong? participate in it. Whatever you do is evil for somebody. But explain that for the audience. I mean, you say yes to that which you... Well, when I was in India, there was a man whose name was Sri Krishna Menon, and his uh, mystical name was Atmananda, and he was in Trivandrum, and I went to Trivandrum. And... Uh, I had the, the wonderful privilege of sitting face-to-face -face with him as I'm sitting here with you. And the first, question, the first thing he said to me is, do you have a question? And uh, because the teacher there always answers questions, he doesn't tell you what anything, he answers. And um, I said, yes, I have a question. I said, since in Hindu thinking, all the universe is divine, 
is a manifestation of divinity itself. How can we say no to anything in the world? How can we say no to brutality, to stupidity, to vulgarity, to uh, thoughtlessness? And he said, for you and me, you must say yes. Well, I had learned from my uh, friends who were students of his that uh, that happened to have been the first question he asked his guru, and we had a wonderful talk for about uh, an hour there on this this theme of the affirmation of the world. And it uh, confirmed me in a feeling I have had that who are we to judge? And it seems to me that uh, this is one of the great teachings of Jesus. Well, I, I see now what you mean in one respect. In, in some classic Christian doctrine, the world is to be despised. Life is to be redeemed in the hereafter. It is heaven where our rewards come. And mm. if you affirm that which you deplore, as you say, you're affirming the world, which is our our eternity of the moment. That's what I would say. Eternity isn't some later time. Eternity isn't a long time. Eternity has nothing to do with time. Eternity is that dimension of here and now, which thinking in time cuts out. This is it. This, this is, is it. This is mine. If you don't get it here, you won't get it anywhere. And the experience of eternity right here and now is the function of life. There's a wonderful formula that the Buddhists have for the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva, the one whose being, Sattva, is illumination, Bodhi, who realizes his identity with eternity and at the same time his participation in time. And the attitude is not to withdraw from the world when you realize how horrible it is, but to realize that this horror is simply the foreground of, of, of a wonder. And uh, come back and participate in it. All life is sorrowful, is the first Buddhist saying, and it is. I mean, it wouldn't be life if there were not temporality involved, which is sorrow, loss, loss, loss. That's a pessimistic note. Well, uh, I mean, you can't say yes to it and say it's great this way. I mean, this is the way God intended it. um, You don't really believe that? But this is the way it is. And I don't believe anybody intended it, but this is the way it is. And uh, Joyce's wonderful line, you know, uh, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. And the way to awake from it is not to be afraid and uh, to recognize as uh, I did in my conversation with that Hindu guru or teacher that I told you of, that all of this as it is, is as it has to be, and it is a manifestation of the eternal presence in the world. Uh, The end of things always is painful. Pain is part of there being a world at all. But if one accepted that isn't the ultimate conclusion to say, well, I, I won't try to form any laws or fight any battles or... I didn't say that. Isn't the logical... Couldn't one draw that, though, the philosophy of nihilism? Well, that's not the necessary thing to to draw. Uh, You could say, I will participate in this row and I will join the army and I will go to war. I'll do the best I can. I, I will participate in the game. It's a wonderful, wonderful opera. Uh, except that it hurts. Yeah. And that wonderful Irish saying, you know, is this a private fight or can anybody get into it? Uh, the, uh, this is the way uh, life is. 
and the, the hero is the one who come, can participate in it decently, in the way of nature, not in the way of personal rancor, revenge, or anything of the kind. Let me tell you one story here of a samurai warrior, a Japanese warrior, who had the duty to avenge the murder of his overlord. And he actually, after some time, found and cornered the man who had murdered his overlord. And he was about to deal with him with his samurai sword when this man in the corner, in the passion of terror, spat in his face. And the samurai sheathed the sword and walked away. Why did he do that? Why? Because he was made angry. And if he had killed that man, then it would have been a personal act. Another kind of act, that's not what he had come to do. Let me tell you what happens to me when I read these stories, no matter the culture of their origin. I feel first this sense of wonder at the uh, spectacle of the human imagination, simply groping to try to understand this existence. Does that ever happen to you? I tell you, uh, mythology I think of as the uh, homeland of the muses, the inspirers of art, the inspirers of poetry. And to see life as a poem and yourself participating in a poem is what the myth does for you. What do you mean a poem? I mean a, uh, a vocabulary in the form not of words but of acts and uh, adventures, which is uh, connotative, which connotes something transcendent of the action here and which yet informs the whole thing. So you always feel in accord with the universal being. Well, the interesting thing to me is that far from undermining my faith, your work in mythology has has liberated my faith from the cultural prisons to which it had been sentenced. It liberated my own. I know it's going to do it with everybody who really gets the message. Every mythology, every religion is true in this sense. It is true as metaphorical of the human and cosmic mystery. But when it gets stuck to the metaphor, then you're in trouble. The metaphor being? Well, Jesus ascended to heaven. The story is he ascended bodily to heaven. The story is that his mother, still alive, asleep, ascended to heaven. So this is metaphorical of something. You don't have to throw it away. You only have to find this what it's saying. What do you think it is saying? What it's saying is he didn't go out there. He went in here. This is where you must go too and and ascend to heaven through the inward space to that source from which you and all life came. That's the sense of that. But aren't you undermining one of the great cardinal doctrines of the tradition of classic Christian faith, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus prefiguring our own and overcoming the body with a higher physical truth. Well, that would that would be what I would call the mistaken reading of the symbol. That's reading it in terms of prose instead of in terms of poetry. That's reading it and that's reading a metaphor in terms of the denotation instead of in terms of the connotation. You, you understand that? It's a purely literary problem. And the poetry gets to the unseen reality. That which is beyond even the concept of reality. Uh, it's that, that which transcends all thought. It's putting you there all the time. 
and in some way giving you a, a line to connect with that mystery which you are. And the myths do it, by gosh, they do it. Now, according to the normal way of thinking about the, uh, the Christian religion, uh, we cannot identify with Jesus. We have to imitate Jesus, but to say, I am God, as Jesus said, is for us uh, blasphemy. However, in the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, He who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. Wow. That's Buddhism. Mm -hmm. We are all manifestations of Buddha consciousness, only don't know it. And the Buddha, the word means the one who waked up, bought to wake, woke up to the fact that he was Buddha consciousness. And we are all to do that. To wake up to our Jesus within us. This is blasphemy in the normal way of thinking in Christianity, but it's the very essence of Gnosticism and of the Thomas Gospel. And heaven, that uh, desired goal of most people, is is within us? Heaven and hell are within us, and all the gods are within us. This is the great realization of the Upanishads of India already in the ninth millennia, ninth century B.C. All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are uh, magnified dreams. And what dreams are, are manifestations in image form of the energies of the body in conflict with each other. And uh, that's all myth is. Myth is a, uh, a manifestation in uh, symbolic images, metaphorical images of the energies within us, moved by the organs of the body in conflict with each other. This organ wants this, this organ wants this, the brain is one of the organs. So when we dream, are we fishing in some vast ocean of mythology that it we... It goes down and down and down. And you can get all mixed up with complexes, you know, things like that. But you're standing on the, uh, the uh, Lord of the Abyss, really. There's a Polynesian saying that frequently comes to my mind, standing on a whale fishing for minnows. Um, we are standing on a whale. The ground of being is the ground of our being. And uh, outward turned, we see all these little problems here, but inward we are the source of them all. That's the big mystical teaching. You've seen what's happened to primitive societies that are unsettled by white man's civilization. They go to pieces, they disintegrate, they succumb to vice and disease. And isn't that the same thing that's been happening to us since our myths began to disappear? Absolutely it is. Isn't that why conservative religious folk today are calling for a return to the old-time religion. That's right. I understand the yearning. In my youth, I had fixed stars. They comforted me with their permanence. They gave me a known horizon. They told me that there's a loving, kind, and just uh, father out there looking down on me, ready to receive me, thinking of my concerns all the time. Now science, medicine, made it a, a house cleaning of belief. And I wonder what happens to children who don't have that fixed star, that known horizon, those myths to sustain. All they have to do is read the newspaper. I mean, it's a myth. But what the myth uh, has to provide, I mean, just on this immediate level of life instruction, the pedagogical aspect of myth, it has to give life models. And the models have to be appropriate to the possibilities of the time in which you're living. And our time has changed and it's changed and changed and continues to change so fast 
that what was proper 50 years ago is not proper today. So the virtues of the past are the vices of today. And the, uh, the many of what were thought to be the vices of the past are the necessities of today. And the, the moral order has to catch up with the moral necessities of actual life in time, here and now. And that's what it's not doing. And that's why it's ridiculous to go back to the old-time religion. A friend of mine composed a song based on uh, the old-time religion. Give me the old-time religion. Give me... Let us worship Zarathustra just the way we used to. I'm a Zarathustra booster. He's good enough for me. Let us worship Aphrodite. She's beautiful but flighty. She doesn't wear a nighty, but she's good enough for me. And uh, when you go back to the old-time religion, you're doing something like that. It belongs to another age, another people, another set of human values, another universe. So the old period of the Old Testament... No one had any idea that the world was a little three-layer cake and the world consisted of something a few hundred miles around the Near Eastern centers there. No one ever heard of the Aztecs, you know, or of the Chinese even. And so those whole peoples were, were not considered even as part of the problem to be dealt with. The world changes then the religion has to be transformed. But it seems to me that is what we are in fact doing. That's here. in fact what we better do. <laughs> But my notion of what uh, the, the real horror today is what you see in Beirut, where you have the three great Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and because the three of them have three different names for the same biblical God, they can't get on together. Mm. They're stuck with their metaphor and don't realize its reference. So each needs a new myth. Each needs its own myth all the way. Love thy enemy, you know? Mm. Open up. Don't judge. Given what you know about human beings, is it conceivable to you that there is a point of wisdom beyond the conflicts of, of truth and illusion by which our lives can be put back together again? That we sure. can develop new models? It's in the religions. All religions are true for their time. If you can find what the truth is and separate it from the temporal inflection, just bring your same old religion into a new set of metaphors. And you've got it. Do you see some new metaphors emerging in the modern medium for the old universal truths that you've talked about, the old story? Well, uh, I think that the uh, the Star Wars is is a is a valid mythological perspective. And the problem of is the machine and the state is a machine. Is the machine going to crush humanity? Or serve humanity. And humanity comes not from the machine, but from the heart. Look, help me take this mask off. But you'll die. I think it was in the uh, Return of the Jedi when Skywalker unmasks his father. The father had been playing one of these machine roles, a state role. He was the uniform, you know? And the removal of that mask was an undeveloped man then. It was kind of a worm. By being executive of a system, one is not developing one's humanity. I think that uh, George Lucas really, really did a beautiful thing there. The idea of a machine is the idea that we want the world to be made in our image and what we think the world ought to be. 
Well, the first time anybody made a tool, I mean, taking a, a stone and chipping it so that you can handle it, that's the beginning of a machine. It's turning out of nature into your service. But then there comes a time when uh, it, it, it begins to dictate to you. <laughs> I'm having a bit of trouble with my computer. <laughs> I just bought one a couple of months ago, and uh, I, I can't help thinking of it as having a personality there because it talks back and it, it behaves in a whimsical way and uh, all of that. So I'm, I'm personifying that, that machine. To me, that machine is... Uh, uh, almost alive. I could mythologize that darn thing. There was a wonderful story about, I think, President Eisenhower uh, when the computer was first being built. You remember that story? Eisenhower uh, went into a room full of computers and um, he puts a question to the, these machines. Is there a God? And they all start up and there's all those lights flashing and wheels turning and things like that. And after about ten minutes of that kind of thing, a voice comes forth, and the voice says, now there is. <laughs> well, I um, bought this wonderful machine, IBM machine, and it's, it's there. And I'm, I'm rather an authority on God, so I identified the God. <laughs> and it seems to be an Old Testament God with a lot of rules and no mercy. <laughs> you... Uh, you will you catch you picking up sticks on Saturday, and you're out, that's all. But isn't it possible to develop toward the computer, the computer you're wrestling with at this very moment? Uh, isn't it possible to develop the same kind of attitude of the Pawnee chieftain who said that in the legends of his people, all things speak of Tarawa, all things speak of God? It wasn't a special privilege revelation. God is everywhere in his works, including the computer. Well, indeed so. I mean, the miracle of what happens on that screen, you know, with, with the, the have you ever looked inside one of those things? No, you can't believe it. It's a, it's a whole hierarchy of angels, all, all on, on, on slaps. And uh, those little tubes, uh, those are miracles. Those are miracles. They, they are. One can feel a sense of awe. Well, I've had a revelation from my computer about mythology, though. You buy a certain software, and there's a whole set of signals that lead to the achievement of your aim. You know, and uh, once you've set it for, let's say, DW3, <laughs> and, uh, if you begin fooling around with signals that belong to another system, they just won't work, that's all. You, you have a system there, a code, a determined code that requires you to use certain terms. Now, similarly in mythology, each religion is a kind of software that has its own set of signals and will work. It'll work. But suppose you've chosen this one. Now, if a person is really involved in a religion and really building his life on it, it, he better stay with the software that he's got. But a chap like myself, who likes to play with the software, I can uh, run around, but I probably will never have an experience comparable to that of a saint. But do you think that the machine is inventing new myths for us, or that we with the machine are inventing new myths? Is the machine becoming... No, the myth has to incorporate the machine, just as uh, the old myths incorporated the tools that people used. The, uh, the forms of the tools and so forth are associated with, uh, with power systems that are involved in the culture. We have not a mythology that incorporates these. The new powers are being so to say, uh, surprisingly announced to us by what the machines can do. 
we can't have a mythology for a long, long time to come. Things are changing too fast. Uh, the environment in which we're living is changing too fast for it to become mythologized. You must realize... Is, how do we live without myths then? Well, we're doing it. The individual has to find the aspect of myth that has to do with the conduct of his life. There are a number of services that myths serve. Uh, the, the basic one is opening the world to the dimension of mystery. It, if you lose that, you, you don't have a mythology to realize the mystery that underlies all forms. But then there comes the cosmological aspect of myth, seeing that mystery as manifest through all things. So the universe becomes, as it were, a holy picture. You are always addressed to the transcendent mystery through that. Then there's another function, and that's the sociological one, of validating and maintaining a certain society. That is the side of the thing that has taken over in our world. What do you mean? Ethical laws, the laws of life in the society, all of Yahweh's pages and pages and pages of what kind of clothes to wear, how to behave to each other, and all that. You see, in terms of the uh, values of this particular society, but then there's a fourth function of myth, and this is the one that I think today everyone must try to relate to. That's the pedagogical function, how to live a human lifetime under any circumstances. Myth can tell you that. And there's a wonderful story in, in, uh, in one of the Upanishads, uh, the Brahmavivata Upanishad of uh, Indra, <clears throat> this uh, god who is the counterpart really of Yahweh. He is the god... Uh, patron of a certain people and of historical life and time with all kinds of rules for people to live by and that sort of thing. And uh, there was a time when a great monster uh, named Vrutra had uh, closed all the waters of the earth. And so there was a drought, a terrible drought, and uh, the world was in very bad condition. Well, it took this uh, god, Indra, quite a while to realize that he had a box of thunderbolts there, and all he had to do was drop a thunderbolt in Vrutra, and that would blow him up. And when he did that, of course, he blew Vitra up and the waters flowed and the world was refreshed. And he said, what a great boy am I. So thinking, what a great boy am I, <clears throat> he goes up to the cosmic mountain, which is the central mountain of the world. And so he decided he would build a new world up there, a new city. And particularly his palace was going to be a palace worthy of such as he. So he calls Vishvakarman, the uh, main carpenter of the gods, and gives him the assignment to build this palace. So Vishwakalan goes to work, and in very quick order, he gets the palace into pretty good condition, and the, uh, Indra comes. But every time Indra arrived, he had bigger ideas about how big and grandiose the palace should be. And finally, Vishwakalan said, my gosh, he said, we're both immortal, and he ne and there's no end to his desires. I'm caught for life. So he decided to go to Brahma, known as the creator. And, and complain. Well, now Brahma sits on a lotus. Uh, this is the symbol of divine energy and divine grace. And the lotus grows from the navel of Vishnu, who is the sleeping god whose dream is the universe. Mm -hmm. So here's Brahma on his lotus, and uh, Vishwakarman comes to the edge of the great lotus pond of the universe, and uh, down he tells his story. Brahma says, you go home. He says, I'll fix this up. <laughs> so next morning, at the uh, gate of the palace that's being built, uh, there appears a beautiful 
blue-black boy uh, uh, with a lot of children around him just in admiration of his beauty. So in comes the boy. And Indra on his throne, he's the king god, he says, uh, young man, uh, welcome. And uh, what brings you to my palace? Well, says the boy with a voice like thunder rolling on the horizon, I've been told that you're building such a palace as no Indra before you ever built. And he said, I've uh, surveyed the grounds and put things over. It seems this is quite true. No Indra before you has ever built such a palace. Well, Indra says, uh, Indra's before me, young man. Uh, what are you talking about? The boy says, Indra's before you? He says, I have seen them come and go, come and go. He said, just think, Vishnu sleeps in the cosmic ocean. The lotus of a universe grows from his navel. On there sits Brahma, the creator. Brahma opens his eyes. A world comes into being. Governed by an Indra, closes his eyes. The world goes out of being, opens his eyes. A world comes into being, closes his eyes. And the life of a Brahma is 432,000 years, and he dies. A lotus goes back, another lotus, another Brahma. Then think of the galaxies beyond galaxies in infinite space. Each a lotus with the Brahma sitting on it, opening his eyes, closing his eyes with interest. There may be wise men in your court who would volunteer to count the drops of water in the oceans of the world or the grains of sand on the beaches, but no one would count those Brahmas, let alone those Indras. And while he's talking, there comes in parade across the floor of the palace an army of ants in perfect range. And the boy laughs when he sees them. And Indra's hair goes up and he thinks, he says to the boy, why do you laugh? And the boy says, don't ask unless you are willing to be hurt. And Indra says, I ask, teach. The boy says, former Indra's all. Through many lifetimes they rise from the lowest condition spiritually to highest illumination. And then they drop their thunderbolt in Vritra and they think, what a good boy am I. And down they go again. And then um, Indra sits there on the throne and he's, he's completely disillusioned, completely shot. And he thinks, oh, let's quit the building of this palace. He calls Vishwakarma and says, you're dismissed. You don't have to. So Vishwakarma got his uh, Intention. He's dismissed from the job and there's no more house building going on. And uh, Indra decides, I'm going out and be a yogi and just meditate on the lotus feet of Vishnu. Mm-hmm. But he has a beautiful queen named Indrani. And when Indrani hears this, she goes to the priest, the uh, chaplain of the gods, and she says, now he's got this idea in his head. He's going out to become a yogi. Come in with me, darling, and we'll sit down and and I'll fix this up. (laughs) So he talks to Indra. They come in, they sit down before the king's throne. 
And he tells him, now, I wrote a book for you some years ago on the art of politics. Uh, you are in the position of the king. You are in the position of the king of gods. You are manifestation of the mystery of Brahman in the field of time. This is a high privilege. Appreciate it, honor it, and deal with life as though you were what you really are. And with this set of instructions, Indra gives up his idea of going out and going out as yogi and finds that in life he can represent the eternal in the way of a, a symbol, you might say, of uh, the Brahman and uh, the, the ultimate truth. So each of us is in a way the Indra of his own life. And uh, you can make a choice either to go out and in the forest and meditate and throw it all off, or stay in the world and in the life either of your job, which is the the kingly job of the politics and achievement, and as well in the love life with your wife and family, you are realizing the truth. Now, this is a very nice myth, it seems to me. Do we ever know the truth? Do we ever find it? Well, each person can have his own depth experience and some conviction of being in touch with his own ananda, his own being true consciousness and true bliss. Mm -hmm. But the religious people tell us we really won't experience it until we go to heaven, you know, until you die. I believe in having as much as you can of this experience while you're alive. My bliss is now. And I think in heaven you'll be having such a marvelous time looking at God that you won't get your own experience at all. <laughs> That's not the place to have it. Here's the place to have the experience. Here and now. Here and now. Profound stuff, everybody. And I just was saying, one of our brothers on the conference call, he's uh, reversing his, you know, aging process. His silver hair is becoming dark, the natural color again. Um, there are others that he has been 
working together with um, the different um, healthful aids and some people have reversed their aging process a good 25 years by now already. So this is 2021 and that discussion was in 87, 88, 89. Those are mm. just an interesting difference in the time sequel. So, mm -hmm. okay, Rama, that's a different one. Yeah, it Which, just jumped out at me. Is that one that you didn't print out? No, it's there. Maybe. Oh, okay, Rise of the Gods, our brother Matthias de Stefano. Okay, this is, as alien beings came to Earth to guide the people of Atlantis, they were seen as gods. These alien beings accepted this because they knew that everyone is a projection of God, as is the sun, moon, and earth, which founded the trinities of Atlantean mythology. Matthias de Stefano explains how a conflict arose between E.T. factions to control humanity or help guide them into higher status of being. So they're fighting over us. That's just lovely. The controlling ones created the limited beliefs that these gods and their temples <clears throat> were the only way for humans to connect with the divine. The guiding beings they tried to teach us that the divine is represented in all things and that we are divine projections ourselves. These mm. concepts of the divine incarnated as the 12 families of Atlantis, as well as 12 prominent deities of Egypt. We still see these conflicts played out in holy themes of the modern world. So this is again our instructor and host, Matthias De Stefano. Here we go. Rise of the Gods. This is uh, 26 minutes, everybody. become gods and goddesses on earth. I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. In this episode, we will dive into the origin of our mythology. The society we have today was created through the ideas of polytheism and monotheism. Monotheism... ...through Christianity and Judaism and Islam and polytheism through the ideas of Rome and the civilization they created through the Republic and the Empire, and Greece, the idea of philosophy. So these two paths through understanding the divine on Earth 
were taken from different ideas that came from the from just one spot. Monotheism was trying to explain how the universe was just one mind, one being expressing in many different ways, and these ways were the faces of the polytheism that honor every one of them in order to be related and to download information of God in different perspectives and different dimensions so everyone could have a way we could connect with the wills with the wisdom with the love of God in different perspectives this main idea of how polytheism and monotheism were built in history of of humanity was also bounded to the idea of other beings coming from different planets and different stars. That is why we sometimes had confusion when we talk about gods, goddesses, and priests and priestesses. The idea of human gods on Earth was created in Atlantean time, and it was guided by the Arturians and the Orion people. So we could recognize the power that we had within in our blood and in our cells through the DNA. They said that every god in reality was just a projection. So what we have to do was to honor the sun as a projection of God. And after that, we had to become the, the sun ourselves. So the seek of enlightenment was to transform humans in suns, in moon, in stars on earth. The main concept of the universal God and goddess was to understand that the divine was divided in different levels of consciousness. So every dimension has a way to understand the divine. And in the matter, the divine was understood through nature. Nature was the first code to understand how everything worked and how the universe worked. Life was coming through water, so we put a divine into every water and we split it in different levels of water. The sea god, the rain, the lakes, the river. So we had different perspectives of what the water was. That happened also with the fire with earth, with air, and every concept of nature, like plants, like animals, had their their way to be understood through the different shapes to get to the main core. And that is why for us, the biggest concept of gods were the ones coming from the sky. Moon, sun, the stars, those were the concepts that created our realities on earth. And we thought they were separated we understood that the skies and all the concepts in the unreachable reality were the most divine, and then the ones we could touch were the ones that were created in order to us to be in touch with the realities above. That's why we compare the flowers with the light of the sun, and we reach the enlightenment of the sun through the petals of the flowers, and that's where the idea of chakras and enlightenment came from. So for us, the different realities that we have seen every day that we uh, that helped us to understand the power of creation in this reality would help us to understand the 
idea of that we were all connected through this God in different shapes. So this was something that every human since the very beginning when we started to realize who we were on, on earth, this was the concept that bound us all, that every human in every part of the world understood that all the concepts from above, the sun, the moon, the stars, were the ones creating this reality on earth. And they were creating us through their image. So that is why when in history, the Aesir, the Nemnir, Alithir, and other beings from the Confederation and not from the Confederation, all of them started to come to this planet from the skies. And that made the idea for humans to understand that if those people came from the stars, so they are gods from the stars. They are the ones bringing that creation, that information. That created for us the idea that those beings coming from the sun, from the stars, from the moon, were the beings that represented the divine on earth. And that is why we begin to treat them like gods and goddesses. For the first time in humanity, when we started to recognize the divine, we use vibration words to define the energy of every god. So that's why we call the giver of the spirit, like A-N, An, and other words like Mu, like Ath. They were concepts of humans to put some vibrations in the understanding of everything. Ha, Ar, Ing were words that represented the divine in like a package of information. When we were saying Ar or An, we were talking about the sky. So we were every word or every information that we were willing to to give to our kids, to other cultures, when we would say are or on, these two words will represent all information in just one small sentence. So this vibration would represent the whole package of information of the skies. So when Isaac came and they saw that we that we were naming these concepts of gods of the universe with different vibration, with different names, so what they did was to to say to people that they were those an, ar, ing, those vibrations of blood. So every one of them took the name of the gods, of the divine that we tried to understand. So when we were willing to talk to the sun, now we had to go to a temple. And this temple was the house of this being So they would say, if you want to honor the sun, you have to come and give something to me so I can give the message to the sun. Mm-hmm. And this, this created an idea of pyramidal civilization in which the divine was only achieved through the gods on earth. This disconnected humanity from the process of the Trinity, from the process of the reality that we we're trying to achieve in the divine. And it created the idea that these gods and goddesses were the only ones that we could talk to 
to whom we could relate to. So that's why we weren't scared of them. We took them like gods and they could do whatever they wanted with us because we understood that they were those messengers of gods here on earth. During the process of creation of humanity and the society of humanity, this Aesir, this Anunnaki was spreading in the world. They were trying to conquer every human species and every human idea of the creation. So that's why they were against the first two species that were trying to help us with the wisdom. Those were the Nemnir and the Sophir. The Nemnir were the voices of nature on earth. So they were called the giants or the gods, the, the first gods on earth that were the keepers of information of this planet and the nature. The here were the next ones that gave us information of the tree of life, the wisdom of how everything was created. So that's why the snake was related to this tree that gave us the fruit of wisdom. And they worked by themselves alone in separate regions. So they were really difficult to to get, they were really difficult to, to be in touch with. So the concepts of Nemnir and Sophir for humans were, were really difficult to achieve. So that's why Aesir were so important for humans because they were related with uh, humans most than other species and they claimed to be the protectors of humanity even if a half of them were trying to control us. So that's why the Aesir started to fight the first species like Nemnir and Sophir so they could rule the whole world. Yeah. And they, they claim themselves like those protecting humans from the species like snakes and the giants. Aesir took the idea that humanity understood that they were gods and because they came from the skies and they start to control every civilization and every species that they were creating like the messengers of, of the divine. They became the middle point to connect the self with humanity. And, and that's why when humans were ready to become the species to, to control the planet, the other new giants came to this planet who were the Arturians, the Orion people, and Syrian people. These people came after all the mess that Aesir had created in this planet, and they said, we are the new messengers from other dimensions. We are bounded to the fifth and the sixth dimension, and they were just using you to reach their own goals in this planet. So that's why they were split in those who were protecting humanity and those who were pretending that they were protecting humanity. And they send them all to what we now call hell, which is in the underground. The keepers of the underground would take them in the underground cities so humans could be rulers of the new civilization, of the new world. That's how Arturians, Orion people, and Sirius people, they became the new gods for humans. But they were not called gods. I remember one of them that we used to call Yusa. 
and he, she was someone that was called a god on earth that was, that she was teaching to, to people how to relate with the divine on the stars. And I remember one of the Atlantean people asking her in the temples of the desert, why are you allowing that people call you God if you are not a God? And she would say, I never said to them to be called God, but I am a part of God. So I don't have any problem with people believing who I am because I am. So they were teaching people how to become gods. And if they would say they were not gods, we would never want to reach their their same level of consciousness. We wanted to be like them. So that's why they allowed people to call them gods so we could reach the idea of how to be a god. So that's why Arturians, Orion people, were called gods, but they were not forcing people to be called like that. These beings... They prepare humans to make the path to become gods and goddesses on earth. And these teachings, after the Aesir were, were sent to the underground, these teachings created the idea of civilizations becoming divine on earth. And that's why they taught their sons, the sons in Mu, in Hem, uh, and Hef, Atlantis, they they taught them how to do the path to become divine on earth. And those were the first priests and priestesses that incarnated the concepts of the divine of other dimensions on earth. And that's how the people from Atlantis, for all the humans, became also the concepts of gods. They were not trying to be called gods, but they were guiding people to become gods. So that's why they allowed every human, to call them gods on earth, human gods. The main representative of gods that we have in the Atlantean times were Osiris, Isis, and Horus. This trinity for us is the most important because it's the latest one on being created and is the one that shaped the idea of who we are today as a society. These were three priests and priestesses from Atlantean times that were the incarnation of the concepts of the mother of the divine, the father of the divine, and the creation itself, the sun, the light, which will be Horus. This family, these three people, were living beings, human beings, that represented the concepts of the divine that are the first time they call in different ways. We call this trinity of divine like Shu, Tefnut, and Geb, and it was the creation between heaven and earth. And these gods were not people, they were concepts of nature. After that, we had the feminine time of creation where we could call the goddess Nut, Mahat, and Hathor. Nut, Mahat, and Hathor would be this feminine trinity that represented the stars, the sky, the seven laws of the universe, and the mother itself who creates every law and every star in the sky. So this trinity was brought to our material world through the Aesir, through the ancient concepts of, of, of uh, the divine, 
and that made that every woman representing the divine on earth would be part of Hathor, Mahat, and Nut. That made Isis, the priestess of Atlantis, the incarnation of what we call the Holy Mother. The image of Isis was the incarnation of this divine mother and Osiris was the incarnation of every god through fertility. So Osiris had to go through all the creation like he was representing this idea of God being bred in every part of reality. So all the concepts of the divine was fertilizing the whole river Nile. This idea became a myth in which Osiris was cut in different pieces so it could be seated in every part of the Nile. And then Isis, the mother, would put all these parts together to create the enlightenment, which would be the sun, Horus, the sun that represented the unification of every part. But they were people that represented these histories through the temples where they were living in. For us in the past, the divine of the sky was the divine of sun, then the divine of the moon, and the divine of earth. The trinity of the sun was the concept that we name like Ra, Amun, Atom. And these were the three steps in which the light was expressed in the universe. But then we had the moon, the one that put all the order on this reality, which would be Nut, Mahat, and Hathur. And from them, they created the earth, so Shu, Geb, and Neftut. And these this three levels of consciousness and concepts of the divine were incarnated in the families of Atlantis in three also different levels of these three divines, which were for the sun, the trinity of Osiris, Isis, and Horus. For the moon, it was the trinity of Jahud, Jeshet, and Hornub. And in the earth was the trinity of Seth, Neftis, and Anubis. These three trinities were the priests and priestesses incarnating the concepts of the divine that we had from the very beginning. And they were the Atlantean people that tried to teach to humans how to understand the concepts of light in the moon, light in the, in the earth, and light in the sun. So that's why the feminine aspect of the Divine Mother incarnated in Neftis, Isis, and Sheshet was the Divine Mother that we still today call like Mother Mary. All the concepts of the divine were, were transcendent from the polytheism to the monotheism, so we could still have it. The God that is spread around all the universe in different parts, which we call God, was put it in the womb of this Holy Mother and create the, the sun that represent the darkness, the light, and the wisdom. So we had the Holy Spirit incarnated in the sun and lighted 
of the universe that today we call Jesus Christ. But for ancient, for ancient ones, they were called the Trinity of Hornub, Anubis, and Horus. For Atlantean people, the families, the 12 families, represented the trinities that the divine created here in different levels of consciousness. When the divine was split in many thousands and millions of parts, there were just 12 structures that represent them all, that united every aspect of reality. So these 12 structures in different dimensions that in six dimension were the six positive realities of Elohim and the six negative realities of Elohim, they structure the idea of, of, of the divine in different concepts that were brought to our reality through the constellations. So every human knew them because of the constellations. And when the Aesir and other beings from, from the galaxy came from those constellations, we attached them to 12 different gods and goddesses that were related to the information of this 12. And when Thalan had these 12 kids to create the first humans that were after that modified by the, the Arturians and the Orion people, they created the concept of the 12 families that created the priests and priestesses that represented the divine on earth in a human shape. That's how we have 12 concepts of the divine in different dimensions, 12 people from the stars represented here on earth, the alien that were called gods and goddesses, and then we have the 12 families from human beings that were called the priests and priestesses or gods and goddesses in human shape. These, these different families or concepts were treated them uh, like trinities. So they were 12 trinities that represented the houses of the stars on earth through blood and through DNA. These 12 houses were represented by one, the sun, the other one, the, the moon, and the other one, the underground, which was the darkness. Then we have the four pillars, which is earth, water, air, and fire. These four houses gives the other three that represents the trinity of the divine, which is the will, love, and wisdom. And they are all bounded by two houses called the space and time. These 12 phases of reality, these 12 trinities that were born through the blood of the Aesir and also the, the Arturian people, they created in matter the keepers of this information of these houses through blood. And that is why they were related with the gods and goddesses on earth, because in their own blood, they had the patterns, the, the, the story, the history of their families coming from the stars, from the portals in those constellations. So that's why they were called gods and goddesses on earth in human shape. So the concepts and the ideas that we have of gods and goddesses today is really mistaken by history because the concepts of gods were taken by different beings, aliens, priests, to try to explain in different times, in different levels, in different temples, different schools, 
what they really represented. And that is why when we think about Egyptian gods and goddesses, which were the first ones with the Sumerian people to organize the pantheon of, of all the gods, what we have about them is this idea of a divine that represented through people that came from the stars and people that were alive in ancient times. That is why we cannot understand the divine through the people and the gods that were living in history. We have to go farther and beyond the concept that they represented. There were not many gods in history. There were many people, humans, and people from Aesir Anunnaki that represented a concept of the divine that every being had in the whole universe and that they were just trying to explain it or represent it so humans could understand it and be ruled by it. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. In the next episode, we will explain how these priests and priestesses could channel information from other dimensions. Oh my. Okay. So what do you want to do next, Commander? Um the guy consciousness why. Okay, so <clears throat> Okay, this is uh One is where has it gone here? Oh, did you find it? No, but I do have it. Um, well, the one that we have, the other one that we have is 41 minutes, Rama. Yeah. And it's 11.22. Wasn't that an amazing number? Oh, I found it. Yeah, well, uh, are you saying that we're not going to play the other one then because there's not enough time? Yeah. We're not going to play the 41-minute piece? No, this is 32 minutes. Yeah, and I'm saying is that there's only one other one left. Oh, And that one is 41 minutes, and that's the one where are you aware of the connection between consciousness and soul? Mm. There may be a quantum view to explain this. Okay. And if you want to play that one, we should probably play that now. Okay. You want to? Well, I'm not convinced yeah. you, I'm just asking. Okay. You want to do that one? Yeah. Okay. Let's get started. Here we go. Dispersion, anxiety, and trauma. Much of our modern pain. Oh, not that one. I'm sorry. Quantum leap to the other side. Yeah. Are you aware of the connection between consciousness and the soul? There may be a quantum view to explain this. Mark Anthony bridges the scientific and spiritual perspective. 
of what he terms the electromagnetic soul, which unifies us all. And when, as we die, saying so, the soul quantum leaps from the material world to the other side, which is considered the collective consciousness. Watch as the as he organizes the thoughts of Newtonian theory and the quantum view by correlating studies of biophotons, quantum leaping, and the relationship of death to the infinite. Let's see what he has to say about that. Okay. Sana Simhar means still wins the day. <coughs> in terms of his answer to that question. Welcome to Beyond Belief. Mark Anthony is the psychic lawyer and author of the bestsellers Never Letting Go and the Evidence of Eternity. Mark is a fourth-generation psychic medium, an Oxford-educated trial lawyer who has tried more than 300 jury trials and is a member of the U.S. Supreme Bar. Mark, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. It's great to be here. What's new with the trial lawyer who is a psychic at the same time? I've got my next book in the pipeline and uh, got a number of projects, and it's great being here on Beyond Belief. What's the next book called? Well, we have a few different working titles, so uh, a publisher and I are going back and forth on those right now. All right. Well, as we get into it, I want people to actually have a look at a video where you explain exactly what you do. I'm Mark Anthony, and I'm known as the Psychic Explorer. I travel to paranormal, mystical, and sacred sites around the world. It's overwhelming how powerful this place is. I'm also a trial attorney. What could be scarier than a lawyer who sees dead people? And I see evidence to explain the unknown. My whole left side, I feel like someone's breaking my arm. As a psychic medium, I must provide evidence transmitted to me by spirits to prove the authenticity of the contact. Now I'm getting cold chills and tingles. <laughs> how did a psychic lawyer have that happen? Yeah, how did this happen for you? Well, both my parents have mediumistic abilities, and it runs in the family for generations. All right. And I was actually very much considering a career in the clergy, which is not unusual for people that are mediums. We're drawn to the spiritual. Right. But I felt that, that it would be too confining, too many rules and regulations, so I ended up going into law instead. Not that there's too many rules and regulations right. there. <laughs> Big difference. Quite a bit. Did your parents encourage you to get into the psychic world? Uh, actually, they. it was such a fact of life. When I was a child, they wanted me to keep it quiet. And they said, you can talk about it to us, but people outside of the family won't understand. Or they'll think you're strange or something. Like yeah, that. They think think that you're strange. And uh, my father's sister, Marjorie, was an extremely gifted psychic medium. And the problem is her husband, who was very religious, uh, felt that she was doing the work of Satan. And what would happen, mm-hmm. or what happened, is she warned him about going to work one day. 
and he worked at a steel plant in Pennsylvania, and she didn't want him to go. He worked in this machine shop there. Well, that day, George, a a crane was lifting thousands of pounds of steel beams, and the cable snapped, and it flattened the, the machine shop, killing everybody there. So he would have been there. And you think you'd have been grateful, but instead he felt that she was doing evil work and he had her involuntarily committed. And really, yeah, and they subjected her to electroshock therapy for over four months. Jeez. Yeah, and until she never saw spirits again. They forced her to stop. They forced her to do this, and that's how it was looked at in those days. You know, so psychics and mediums have been persecuted for centuries, and so when I was a little kid, my dad didn't want that happening to me. Right. And it probably would have. It, it, it could have. Now it's openly discussed. You are no longer a trial lawyer. You've decided to devote your entire career to the psychic realm. But when you were, did you use these psychic abilities in any of your cases? It's part of my skill set and who I am. So it certainly did come up, particularly during jury selection, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, the uh, segment before we actually begin putting witnesses on the stand. Right. Both the prosecution, defense, or the plaintiff and the defense get to ask the prospective jurors questions so we can narrow down to make sure we have a fair and impartial jury. And that's where it really started um, becoming very useful. So what does a psychic lawyer think about consciousness? Consciousness is the energy of who and what we are. In spiritual circles, in people of faith, it's called the soul or the spirit. Consciousness is used by philosophers, psychologists, and scientists. And that's the essence of who we are, our personality, individuality, our likes, dislikes, our observations. And consciousness is eternal. It's pure energy. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating, George, about consciousness is that It is capable of perception beyond our five physical senses of sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. Our consciousness is also capable of perceiving dimensions beyond our physical material world. Why isn't science dabbling with this? The interesting thing is that neuroscience is the study of the brain. And the official position of neuroscience, George, is that consciousness is created by chemical reactions and electrical impulses within the brain, but they're completely at a loss how to explain why. In fact, if you read a neuroscience book, there will be 900 pages on functions of the brain and maybe two or three paragraphs about consciousness. And we have to instead look at the brain as what it is, a carbon-12 and salt resonator floating in water. So it's like a computer hard drive. And a hard drive on a computer doesn't create the programs on it or the data. It merely hosts them. And I believe it's the same with our brain. It does not create consciousness. It merely hosts it. The consciousness pre-exists the brain, comes into the brain, and when the hard drive brain crashes, in other words, when we die, it gets uploaded to a higher frequency. As long as we keep getting uploaded, that's all that matters. As long as we keep getting uploaded. What is quantum paradox? Quantum, well, first off, with quantum physics, um, people like to throw that the word around as, as a buzz phrase. Tough word, too. Yeah, and we know from, from science that everything's made of molecules, which are made of atoms, which are made of electrons, protons, and neutrons. But on the most basic level, everything is composed of quanta, which is pure electromagnetic energy. So the most fundamental building block of everything in existence, and that's you, me, the air we're breathing, the light, 
the, our planet, the nuclear reactions in the sun, or everything is electromagnetic energy. And the quantum paradigm is that we can leap from one dimension to another instantly. Instantly. You know, George, we all have days where we don't feel like we're all here. And that's because we're not. And if we look at the Schwarzschild quantum lattice theory, back in the early uh, 20th century, Carl Schwarzschild, good friend of Max Planck and Albert Einstein, sure. he theorized that electrons would disappear from one location, appear in another, without traversing the matter in between. Now, this has been recreated in laboratories. So, subatomic particles are quantum leaping to another dimension all the time. That's amazing. Well, it is, and if you take the energy that's in our brain, our soul, particles of that, because it's electromagnetic energy, are quantum leaping to this other dimension. And now, George, we know from quantum entanglement that when two subatomic particles go apart, they remain connected, entangled, and something that happens to one immediately happens to the other, even if, as scientists theorize, they're a billion miles apart. That is dramatic. On the Mystery Teachings uh, Gaia show, uh, physicist Dr. Teresa Bullard talks about this paradigm. Let's take a look at these two paradigms, Newtonian versus quantum, and how they differ. The Newtonian paradigm is based upon the ideas of determinism, separatism, reductionism, and materialism. In essence, this says that everything can be isolated and reduced to its individual parts which must function in a linear, logical, clockwork way. It says that things should be predictable and controllable, and it cuts us off from spirit and choice. And it encourages separation, which fuels ego and greed. We don't need to look far to see how this old paradigm has led to a world out of balance. What about the quantum paradigm? What is it? And can it help us improve our situation? In a quantum view, things are complementary, contextual, conscious, and connected. These quantum principles turn the Newtonian paradigm completely on its head. Now, while strange and exotic, quantum theory is the most successful physics theory we have to date. We live in a quantum universe, from the smallest of particles to the largest structures of intergalactic space. Quantum principles underlie everything in our universe. We, too, are quantum beings. One of the most exciting and promising aspects of quantum physics is that it says that the universe is participatory, meaning our choices matter. Even our thoughts matter. Mark, break down what you just said. Well, first we have to look at Newtonian reductionism and Sir Isaac Newton was, he's one of the superstars of, of the Enlightenment. Sure. Brilliant guy. Way before his time, too. Way before his time. In fact, during the Great Plague of 1665, he self-quarantined and he used his time for good, uh, he, he put his time to good use. He invented calculus, the laws of optics, and the laws of motion. By self-quarantine. By self-quarantine. I should learn that. But, he felt that everything could just be reduced to a miniaturized version of itself. But you can't blame Sir Isaac for that because he didn't have the benefit of 20 and 21st century technology, which could take us to the subatomic level, 
which is now quanta, because I'm pretty certain that if Newton had the technology of today and was able to make the discovery that everything on the most basic level is electromagnetic energy, then he would have agreed um, agreed with this because everything is interconnected. And that's what I was discussing about with quantum entanglement, that you, me, everything is connected through electromagnetic energy. And this is something that um, Albert Einstein was talking about, that there is no matter. There's only energy which vibrates at different frequencies so as to be perceptible to the senses. So when we hear from all the great spiritual teachers about how we're all brothers and sisters, how we're all interconnected, they were absolutely right because we are on that basic electromagnetic level. That's fascinating work. Now, when you deal with disability, how does that enhance your psychic abilities? What how do you does mean that work with disability? Your psychic abilities. Oh, when I work with, with my psychic abilities? You have no disabilities, do you? Um, <laughs> we, you know, we all have disabilities somewhere. I can talk to dead people, but don't ask me to change the water pump in your car. Okay. <laughs> okay so. um, this completely ties into psychic abilities. I refer to our soul as the electromagnetic soul, because that's a 21st century term to describe who and what we really are, which is pure consciousness that is eternal electromagnetic energy. And so when I open up my brain to higher frequencies, think of our world as AM radio, the other side as FM radio. And I'm bringing up my brainwave frequency out of AM Spirits are lowering their frequency from FM. We get a frequency match. Once again, we're interconnected. Mm -hmm. It's merely an alignment of frequencies, and it's all based on quantum physics. Biophotons, what are they? Biophotons are fascinating. And, you know, you ever drop something on your foot, like a bowling ball, and immediately you know that it hurts. It's hurt. And it it, it hits our brain so fast. It your little toe. Absolutely. And we know that it's not chemical because that would take too long. And our nervous system uses electricity. So it's using, you know, it's moving at the speed of light. Well, biophotons are ultra weak photon emissions within our individual cells. And they were first discovered back in 1923 by Alexander Gervik in Russia. And now we know that our cells emit flashes of light and they communicate with each other. In fact, in 2012, MIT Technology Review issued a report indicating that biophotons are the basis of cellular communications. And it's amazing because Albert Einstein once said that we are all beings of light. Well, he was correct because now we know on a cellular level that we communicate through flashes of light and therefore our body is in essence a matrix of light. How did they know we had biophotons in the 1920s? How did they know this? Well, Alexander Gervik was way ahead of his time and, and he started looking at these through intense microscopes. And now the, um, with the electron microscope, which right. any any uh, self-respecting lab has. Or did we have it in 1920? I, I don't believe so. that they had no. this then. And so um, it was looked at as junk science, pseudoscience, and it was a theory, right. but Gervik stuck to his guns. And But now we do know that this exists. And the thing is, George, it's different than bioluminescence, like a firefly. Firefly, and there's certain types of fish, they glow. 
Biophotons are ultra-weak photon emissions, which are are invisible to the naked eye, uh-huh. but they still exist. And they form the basis of cellular communication, not just in humans and animals, but also in plants. In fact, in the last few years, scientists have found out that it appears that plants, particularly trees, even of different species, seem to be communicating when their root systems touch each other, and it all comes back to biophotons. When we die, we leave our physical bodies. Yes. But what happens when we die, in your opinion? Energetically, what happens is the electromagnetic soul, the who and what we are enshrined in our body, transfers from quantum leaps from the material world to the other side. Now, the other side, which I also refer to as the collective consciousness, is think of your soul as a drop of water. So when you die, that drop of water leaves your brain and plunges into the eternal sea of souls. I call it the collective consciousness because the EMS, electromagnetic soul, is connected to other souls, connected to other souls, connected to other souls. So it's this infinite, vast database. We've all heard the euphemistic saying, we're all cells in the body of God. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what that is. And so when we die, we quantum leap from this world into the collective consciousness. And that's why when communicating with spirits, many times a spirit will come through and provide information that far exceeded anything that he or she knew in this world, that's because they're patched into this cosmic Internet. Mark, you've heard of the mentalist Uri Geller. Well, he talks a little bit about the energy within the human body. Let's watch. Albert Einstein, 1924, spoken about this, comes up with this amazing scientific equation, E equals MC squared, where... Albert Einstein proves to the world scientifically that everything is made from energy. Even this chair is energy. It's vibrating certain frequency that to us feels solid. But he also proves that energy cannot be destroyed. So if Albert Einstein proves scientifically that energy cannot be destroyed, the question must be asked, okay, we are energy. So what happens when we die? So you can't kill the energy. What happens to our spirit? What happens to our soul? What happens to our mind energy? And I very simply believe that when we die, our energy, our our spirit, our soul, leaves our body like the tens of thousands of stories you have from millions of people around the world that they left their body they weren't ready to die, and they came back to the body. They went through the, the tunnel of light and the, the music, and they were just about to enter that other side, the realm, heaven, paradise, call it whatever, and they were drawn back into their body. There are millions of stories of spirits communicating with their loved ones, dogs, cats, animals, humans, children. I mean, come on. It's, it's a fact that that people accept that ghosts do exist. I would assume you would agree with Uri. I I don't find anything that I disagree with him. He was right on point. Now, with the energy that exists after we die, where does it go? Well, that's the collective consciousness, and, and it's a dimension that's parallel to ours. 
According to string theory, there's more than one universe, and within universes, there are several dimensions. And that's why I like to use the analogy of AM and FM radio. They're two systems that coincide side by side. They are both based on energy and frequency. I happen to be on both, by the way. I know that. <laughs> and so, so let's say you're listening to Coast to Coast AM, but it's broadcast on an FM station in certain mm-hmm. markets. That okay. Happens. So see, the frequencies overlap, but, and, and that's exactly it is that Albert Einstein was correct, as Yuri Geller said, that there is no matter, there's just energy which vibrates at different frequencies. And also, uh, Yuri was quoting the, I believe it's the second law of thermodynamics, that energy can either be created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. That's correct. And it moves on. Now, what are the ghosts? When he mentioned ghosts, we all believe in ghosts. What's happening with that? This is energy coming back? What is it? Well, there's three schools of thought on what a ghost is. One is that it's a spirit that immediately um, transfers to the other side, and that's the school I subscribe to. Then there are people who feel that ghosts are somehow trapped here, ergo hauntings. Um, I don't necessarily subscribe to that theory. And the third is that a place that is haunted or very strong with the force, if you will, is actually a residual energy echo. In other words, if you go to a place that's, um, uh, well, from my own experience, when uh, I went to Dachau concentration camp when I was 19, I was visiting Germany and you know, I was with a bunch of college friends and, you know, we were a bit hungover sure. and, uh, I wasn't prepared for what happened. And when I walked into the concentration camp, all of a sudden I found myself surrounded by all these shrieking spirits yeah. and I could see the striped garb. And, and I remember I collapsed on, on my knees and I was shaking. And one of my friends, he was from my hometown and he kind of knew about my family and all that. And he goes, all right, buddy, we're getting out of here. And he just pulled me up and got me on a bus. And he goes, look, dude, I don't know what happened, but something happened. I don't believe that those spirits are trapped there, but when something intensely traumatic happens in an area, it creates an energy echo. So it's no more a sentient spirit than your reflection is in a mirror is you. And that's why people that do clearings or exorcisms or whatever of a particular place, they're essentially breaking that echo, deflecting the energy off because based on the Thousands of readings I've done. George, at this point in my life, I've done readings for over 15,000 people. And in each reading, particularly the one-on-ones, at least six to seven spirits per person comes through, oftentimes more than that. Yeah, so um, maybe 100,000, 200,000 spirits I've communicated with. They know full well. The second they, they are done with this body, they revert to a purely energetic, eternal state, and they're aware of it. That's why I don't believe ghosts are trapped here. What is the electromagnetic soul, the EMS? Yes, the EMS, we are eternal consciousness. And if you look at all the great um, spiritual teachers, from Krishna through Moses, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, uh, Yogananda, Paramahansa, St. Francis of Assisi, the Native American teachers, All the great belief systems teach us that the soul, who and what we are, pre-exists the body, comes into the body, moves on after the body dies. And like we were just discussing, energy is neither created nor destroyed, 
only transferred from one form to another. So based on my research, I developed the term, the electromagnetic soul, to describe who and what we really are, which is pure consciousness, which is eternal electromagnetic energy. It's all energy. Ergo, the electromagnetic soul. Which is terminal lucidity. What is that? Terminal lucidity occurs in about 10% of the cases where somebody is completely non-responsive prior to death, could be due to brain damage, uh, Alzheimer's, meningitis, strokes. They are not responsive at all, and their condition is terminal. And then right before they die, George, usually in the last few minutes, they wake up and they recognize people around them think and stuff like that. And it's things, amazing. and they're completely lucid and coherent. And um, this term, terminal lucidity, was developed by Michael Nam, who's a German neurobiologist. I have uh, always thought about the deathbed t- discussion of Stephen Jobs, Apple Computer, and his last words were like, oh, wow, oh, wow. Yes, oh, wow. Sam Keniston the comedian who died in a uh, tragic uh, car yes. crash going back between L.A. and Vegas, was petrified of dying and didn't want to die. But right at the moment of death, in front of our witnesses, he went, okay, okay, and died. What is that? That's known as a deathbed vision. And the deathbed vision is when somebody who is actively dying all of a sudden their frequency aligns with the frequency of the other side and they're able to perceive spirits. The scientists it's real, isn't it? It is real. The scientists who study this, George, they are convinced that it's not a hallucination. I myself have observed this on a number of occasions because in my capacity as a medium, I'm often called to, to the bedside of people who are dying, and I can assure you, it is real. They are actually seeing the spirits who are coming to welcome Not a hallucination by any means. It's not a hallucination. Near-death experiences. We have heard lots of them. Yes, we have. Eben Alexander, the things that Raymond Moody talks about. What's your take on those? Near-death experiences are real. I had one when I was four years old. Oh, you did? What happened to you? I did. Um, It's a fairly lengthy story, so I'll give you the condensed version. version. The cliff notes. Um, I had... uh, a real bad blood infection from impetigo called septicemia, and I went into cardiopulmonary failure. Oh, my God. And my mother was frantic, and she ran outside and, and started screaming, my baby's dying, and our neighbor just happened to be a fireman, and he runs across the oh. street, starts doing, comp- yeah, starts doing compressions just as an ambulance uh, pulls up because my sister had called an ambulance. On the way to the hospital, they slammed the uh, door, and the ventilator hose got caught in the door. So oh then I stopped breathing and I went into a cardiac arrest. And so my mother was in the ambulance with them and they said, we got to get this open and we got to get, and she said, I'll do it. So the, the, the paramedics holding on to the gurney that, that I'm on, he's holding on my mom's waistband. She cries the door of the ambulance open, gets her foot and yanks gets it the, in. And meanwhile, I get catapulted out of the ambulance. I'm seeing it going down the highway. And all of a sudden I go into this bright white light and there's these people there. And the thing is, George, they look translucent, like, like a, um, a clear version of people and they glowed from the inside out and they were really nice to me and I wasn't afraid of them. And 
then they said, you're going to be okay, Mark. You're going to be okay. And then I heard uh, and saw an even brighter light, and I heard the words, eternal light, eternal life. Then I hear, clear! And I'm back in the ambulance because they hit me with their defibrillator patterns, and they shocked me, I guess, out of the other jarring feeling. It It, it was. And and later in the hospital, um, they hit me with heavy-duty IV antibiotics. And when I came out of it, I I remember asking my parents, what is eternal? I remember mom and dad looking at each other. And what I didn't realize at that point, my dad, years before, had had not one but two near-death experiences and then when I was a teenager, so they knew what was mo- going on. Yeah, this has been part of part of my my family. And so what happens is in an NDE in your death experience, your electromagnetic soul leaves your body and it touches that higher frequency of the other side. Right. And you will encounter deceased loved ones, the divine power, dare I say, the word God, and then you return. And since the dawn of recorded history, there have been accounts of these resurrections for people who died and then came back to tell about it. I mean, Hippocrates in ancient Greece wrote about this. Plutarch in ancient sure. Rome recorded these. And uh, they are they're very real experiences. Dr. Raymond Moody, who we just mentioned, of course, talks about shared death experiences. Very commonly at the scene where somebody is dying and the family members are assembled around the bed. As the person in the bed passes away, the bystanders themselves have experiences that are identical to those that are reported to us by people who are resuscitated after almost dying. For example, the bystander may say that as the person in the bed dies, they see something leave the body. And this is very often described as a light like a globular, grayish, golden light. I hear this very often from physicians, for example. Then other people at the bedside may say that as the individual in the bed dies, the bystander themselves say that they leave their physical bodies and they feel that they go part way with their dying loved one toward this light. And then at a certain point, they come back and rejoin their body and their loved one goes on. Or people may say that as the person dies, the light fills the room, like this amazing bright light. Or people will say that they see apparitions of the dying person's uh, dead relatives and friends come into the room as though to escort the dying person away. And another very common thing I hear is that the geometry of the room shifts in some way that they find impossible to describe. I hear people say, for example, that they suddenly realize that they were looking at something in the room from an impossible angle, or that they couldn't see the um, the geometrical markers in the room, like the walls and such. He is so efficient when it comes to near-death experiences, isn't he? Oh, Raymond Moody is, he's, he's the best. Guy. He's he's awesome. And he makes it so understandable, too. Absolutely, he does. I've um, witnessed shared death experiences a number of times. And what happens is the electromagnetic soul is in the process of transferring from this side to the other side. And with this frequency alignment, bystanders 
which can be close friends and family, but also hospice workers, healthcare providers, they start getting caught up and they begin to observe what the dying person is experiencing. What are spirit contacts? What is that? Spirit contacts all involve the electromagnetic soul, but they're all different forms of interdimensional communication, okay. where we are raising the vibrational frequency of, of our brain to align with the frequency of the other side. And spirit contacts can be where you have a dream and a deceased loved one comes through. And that's because when you go from the beta state that we're in right now, right. and there's four different types of brainwave frequencies, you go from beta to alpha to theta, and then delta is much, much lower. But on the alpha-theta border, your brainwave frequency is conducive to the alignment with the other side. And that's why the most popular form of interdimensional communication is in the dream state. And you'll know it because it feels real. For some reason, people like me can voluntarily do this, and scientists still haven't figured that out. But also when people encounter places uh, that are very mystical and spiritual, or perhaps all of a sudden you do see or feel or hear the spirit of a deceased loved one, we're all capable of these of these experiences. It doesn't mean everyone's a medium, right. but everyone is capable of having a mediumistic experience. And are there different ways of spirit contact, different forms? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's through a medium. There's when the spirit connects with you directly. Those are all what I call frequency beacons. Okay. Think of, once again, we're all energetically interconnected, and think of everyone that you know, both on this side and on the other side, being part of like a three-dimensional spider web. And if you're grieving somebody, you send a vibration along that tether. Spirit picks up on it, and the spirit will be drawn to you. Conversely, you may be driving down the road, and all of a sudden, you're compelled to turn on the radio. And on a commercial during Coast to Coast AM, they're playing your the song that makes you think of that person That's you right. love. That's right. It happens all the time. It happens to all of us. Would this be considered interdimensional communication? Absolutely. These are all forms of interdimensional communication. People tend to think of the collective consciousness, the other side, as being some distant, nebulous uh, destination, when actually, vibrationally and energetically, it runs parallel to our universe. Very similar to what Dr. Randy Weitenheimer talks about on the Gaia program, Undisclosed. So we expand on that. They can enter into areas that uh, are populated, is what I refer to it, so that each of the dimensional uh, categories can have their own um, rules, their own laws, their own existences, their own populations, their own uh, deities, their own uh, humans, if that's what you want to use, or their own animals, the whole thing. And, and again, <clears throat> this has been referred to through mythology, through Native American teachings, uh, and that is an, an awareness of the extension of uh, reality into areas that we uh, may not have scientific method to validate. And uh, I love that because uh, they not may not be able to be validated scientifically, but it doesn't mean they don't exist. It might be from another dimension, the eighth dimension, or whatever number you want to put on it, but once it comes here, it has to fall under the three-dimensional laws and rules of our dimension. 
So it ha- you know it, it has to take that form, would you say? Yes, and and uh, more importantly, it would have to take take on the laws of our perception. So we're not receptive to ultraviolet and a few other extensions of the electromagnetic field, but it doesn't mean there's not existence there. So when you see uh, see things you can't explain, uh, the idea is that somehow you have either uh, traversed outward or they have traversed inward to the point that there's a point of contact. And, uh, you know, mythology-wise, they used to call it the veil is lifted. Uh, there's just all these references about where people have knowledge of things that don't have physical existence as we know it. It doesn't mean that they don't exist with some physicality because all consciousness, once it manifests, has some physicality to it, even if it's just photonic, even if it's just an electron. Uh, so we don't think about electrons or uh, subatomic particles have a consciousness, but it's like if they have a reality to them, they have consciousness or consciousness exists within them. So now, the same thing if we were going to venture out in the universe, is why wouldn't we expect to see things uh, uh, that are physical in nature? And at the same time, why would we uh, be blind to the fact that it's much more than we can perceive with the current level of receptors that uh, our physical bodies are capable of? I'm amazed, Mark, how many truly magnificent experts there are out there in these fields, like him. Well, the truth is the truth, and there's such an overlap because those of us who study the other side and the afterlife, we begin to see that it all comes down to quantum physics. And I've never felt that faith and science are mutually exclusive. To me, the ultimate objective of science is the discovery of God. People who don't believe. They don't believe in near-death experiences. They don't believe in mediums. They don't believe in the psychic realm. Do you try to reach them? What do you say to them? It's funny because I've done readings for people who didn't believe, and when they left, they definitely believe. (laughs) Um, A funny story. I was doing a reading for this lady, and she brought a friend of hers, and her friend sat there the whole time all bottled up. And I call that the no-no-no syndrome. Right. It's where you reject everything it's um, and it's like a deflector shield technology, which Boeing has actually patented. It's no longer just for Star Wars really? or Star Trek. Yeah, both the U.S. UK militaries um, are developing deflector shields to protect tanks and military equipment. NASA, the European Space Agency, and others are working on developing electromagnetic barriers around spacecraft to deflect debris. And harmful radiation, oh, that's which smart. Also, yeah, because and, and the um, radiation is another form of electromagnetic energy. So, if you go into spirit communication with "I don't believe," "I don't believe," or "No, no, no," or you're so overcome with grief, right? You're without meaning to. You're raising a deflector shield, and what we have to do is bring those down. So, I was doing a reading for this woman, and all of a sudden, it was at the very end of the reading, and I said, "Your father's here." 
and he's imitating Woody Woodpecker, and he's going, guess who? Like that. Exactly. So the woman I'm doing the reading for goes, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Well, the lady sitting next to her is all bottled up. Tears shoot out of her eyes. She goes, oh, my God. It was her father. It was her father. She When I was a little girl, he tucked me in, closed the door, then he'd always open and go, guess who? She sent me more clients than you can imagine. She was a believer. Absolutely, because she had the experience without expecting it. And how could I possibly make something like that up? Do a lot of people reject this belief system? There's always going to be people who reject things. Um, and they they call what uh, what we're delving into here junk science or pseudoscience. But what we have to remember, George, is that the science fiction of today often becomes the scientific reality of tomorrow. In 1926, Nikola Tesla gave an interview, and he said, one day the entire world will be a gigantic brain and we'll be able to see and hear each other and communicate with each other on a device small enough to fit in uh-huh. a man's breast pocket. He was a genius. He no was a genius. And you know... What's so funny about that is scientists of the day called it junk science. They made fun of him. But today, a cell phone is a reality of our life. And I like something that astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson said. The beauty of science is that you don't have to believe it for it to be true. Exactly. What message would you like to impart on the world right now? If I had any message for people, it's that... The divine power that we call God exists. The afterlife exists. Our soul, our electromagnetic soul, is an immortal living being that we can communicate with the electromagnetic soul and that we will be reunited with our loved ones when it is our appointed time to enter the light. How do our viewers find Mark Anthony? Evidenceofeternity.com, same as my web, my uh, my book, Evidence of Eternity, it's the uh, same as my website, evidenceofeternity.com. Mark, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. It's a pleasure. God bless. I've known Mark Anthony for years. He's been on Coast to Coast, the radio show with me for years. And folks who call in just love him. He's a psychic lawyer, but he's the real deal. I'm George Norrie, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Okay. So, do we want to jump into this last one? Or maybe we'll do that next week. Well, yeah, we can do it next week. So. Let's take a look. Oops. This week on Gaia. Whoops. <laughs> Let's take a look at what our sister Caroline has to say with our uh, our friends, the collective, the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elements, Fairy Elders, Angelic Legions, and archangels known as the collective. Today we wish to share an excerpt from our book, Earth Life Challenges. 
the collective speak on dealing with trauma and life changes. This is from chapter four on facing earth troubles and disasters. It answers a question sent to us from a light bearer. The question is, planet Earth appears to be going through hell. Um, uh, maybe, but yes, did you, did, did you do that, Rama, just now? Do what? Oh, brother, brother Doug, can you, can you give a little call to our sister Rainbird? Hope you can hear me. Otherwise, you can call in a minute or two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I'm here. Oh, she's just sitting there chatting away, Rama. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was that. Um... <laughs> okay. Well, well, I'm glad you're here. Let's. Thank you, Commander. Doug, and thank you, Rainbird. Okay, so again, the question. Planet Earth appears to be going through hell. War, destruction, poverty, starvation, terrorist attacks, and illness. These only begin the list of horrors. Has the time arrived as humanity is able to digest the phenomenal reality of just how simple it could be? to shift the Earth's vibration. Is it time to enter the next thousand-year cycle, an age foretold with peace and light and beauty? Uh, Thus the collective comes in and says, this is one of the greater questions of your age. For it has to do with far less, it has to do far less with when and rather how Earth and her beings may may rise in vibration to begin experiencing a far higher reality than we have seen in eons of our time. We would say that one of the reasons we are experiencing this dissatisfaction we feel with how Earth is functioning now is that we are ourselves aware of our own ever-increasing vibration. We have an increasing awareness of how beautiful the earth life could be as the majority held a higher consciousness. This extends beyond the current challenges of dealing with extreme weather and climate change, armed conflict, violence, on the streets or in the home, and illness and disorders that we know intuitively have been cured, though the cure is kept hidden from the public. This issue extends into the entire realm of each person's sole purpose and why, why we are here. As we move into this issue, as we lift above the chaos that is Earth's current frequency. We we enter a completely different realm. For as we are no longer asking, when will we get it? When will we finally surrender our guns for peace? Feed the house, everyone, 
Be in-house, everyone. See the divine light in one another and fall in love with that. At that point, we have left behind our attention to what is to outer circumstance. We have then reclaimed our magician's ability to envision, to think in terms of what we will create next. We are, in fact, asking a far simpler question. One of the few we ever need to ask, what did I come here to do? How do I serve humanity? How do I serve humanities and my own higher good? How do I naturally live in the energies of joy, of peace, divine love, so that others pick up on the beauty of that? and aspire to live there also. Even as we and millions of others are asking those questions, Earth is now entering the next age or cycle on her timeline. And it is an age that extends very far beyond the thousand years we mention. And to usher in this beautiful era of the Sat Yuga, as the Hindus call it, a time of unprecedented peace, prosperity, progression, and beauty. We need not wait for things to improve or wonder why things are moving so slowly. We would call upon every heavenly help we could conceivably imagine, as well as our intergalactic brothers and sisters and require their assistance at levels unknown and unheard of since the fall of Earth into the third dimension. And more than that, realize our own connection to these great beings. It is time to come out of the feeling that so many looking to the heavens have sunk into over the eons, this feeling that though we have cried out for help, none is coming to us. Earth herself cried out for help as the weight of this form of existence became too heavy, too painful, too damaging for her to carry out any longer. And the answer that came from higher realms was us. We heard Earth's cries and we volunteered to step forward and say yes, committing to living yet another Earth life on the most pained and troubled planets in the solar system. Yet another Earth life. We stepped forward with the mission of anchoring higher light on the planet in human consciousness in this entire quadrant of the galaxy, all for the purpose of not only establishing divine love as the new normal for Earth life, yet celebrating it. This is why we remind light workers or spiritual seekers, light warriors, star seeds, choose any label we like. They are all too small to hold our true vibration. That we are not passive recipients of what flows before us as we observe life on our planet any more than we need to be passive recipients of what is happening in our own lives. 
as co-creators, we are here to change or influence something that we see has low vibrational purpose and intention. We are here to realize each time we see a condition, thought, or emotion that is crying out for healing, renewal, or a new life, that we are the one who can hit, hit it to a higher level, lift it to a higher level, even as we are convinced that it was our vibration that created that condition in the first place. This is why we cannot go it alone. How much time do we have for those last two pieces, my darling? Mm. Dear ones, we are in a human body. And the frailty and limits of that experience are considerable, and particularly as we walk the ascension path. Everything unlike pure love is now rising to the surface to be healed or transformed, while we experience cellular heart, mind, and etheric transformation. For that journey, and for all Earth's journeys, you, we need help supports, encouragements, inspirations. Call out for them. Demand them from our higher self. We will not be abandoned. We will be led to exactly what we need as we will only ask for this assistance. We recommend too many that they listen to, to inspiring high vibrational music as ever they feel to be at a low frequency in heart, mind, body, or spirit, or simply as a part of our day. These can be found online on youtube.com, on certain websites, or purchased as recordings. We recommend reading inspiring books that encourage us to turn our thoughts and energies, our focus and attention, to abundance, joy, fulfillment, love, and living out our life purpose in joyful ways. The best of these books will, as with the one we are now reading, hold higher energies that do the job of lifting our outlook to where we see ourselves not as the passive receiver of Earth's current conditions, rather as a powerful influencer, one who helps to set the tone for how the world sees itself and what it sees as necessary, possible, and real. Our vibration alone influences thousands of people. We are even now bearing out a transmission of light and higher energies that reach thousands of miles beyond where we now sit. As we want to see more peace in the world, we must exude that vibration as the new reality. We strongly suggest that we release all need to watch anything that is not peaceful, to cease watching any film, television, news reports, videos, music, which often is not music, rather chaotic entertainment, hmm. that portrays or describes acts of violence, whether between a few people or between whole countries. Really? 
even economic news that takes a downward turn can feel to be a form of violence. I was just going to say, uh, we didn't play a few other things tonight. Jeremy Scahill mm-hmm. had another 36 minutes here. And uh, I think Penny found a transcription of it as well. Uh, I was just going to say, as we do listen to it probably next week or something, mm-hmm. we look through the eyes of the envisioner, the influencer, as to how we're not going to go like a battle ram and say, you naughty kid, this and that and the other. There was plenty of stuff he did in the almost 50 years of his time. Uh, actually, it was 49 years, and in the last 49 years, there was four years that he wasn't in the political landscape. Yet, there's the rest of us. Uh, by the way, Caroline's got a picture of a starship here, and there's no way you can miss it. Look at that, Rama. Mm-hmm. Might want to kind of put that somewhere where more people can see it. So even economic news that takes a downward turn can feel to be a form of violence as our subconscious will be quietly calculating. As we listen to the news report or commentary, how many thousands or millions of people will be affected by a sudden downturn in the markets? There is so much in that one phrase alone, oft repeated in the media, that is intentionally designed to lower our vibration, to set us into anger, hopelessness, feelings of loss. That is reason enough to no longer listen to news reports. We are aware that there are alternative news outlets, programs, and reports that are insightful on spiritual levels and that seek the true nature of that which is being reported in the mainstream media. Yet carefully watch our vibration. As we listen to these, are we, are we heartened by them or disappointed? Are we feeling empowered or weakened? As we are feeling anything that is not positive and strengthening to us, do as any sensitive parent would do. As our child was watching something that showed violence or some form of struggle without resolution in sight, inviting passivity, desensitization, and helplessness on the part of the the viewer, we would turn it off immediately. We say this not to discourage us from knowing what is happening in the world, rather to limit our intake of that information. And we live in information-obsessed times, so that we are mainly taking in only that which feeds us on a soul level, and not that which depletes us. Again, put a bubble around the place that you live. The spherical structure feeds us. The structures with the corners depletes us. So... That's the part of how we can influence things in our world. Uh, Dense or negative news will have a harder time wearing down as we are in the habit of not listening any further than the flow, the first few sentences, excuse me, that introduce what is going to be announced or discussed. 
That is often all we need to grasp the basics of a situation. And often even that is more than we are truly interested in. We have simply been mentally programmed to need to know what is happening everywhere and to sink ourselves into the hyper-emotional stance of most news reports as though all of Earth's fate hung in the balance with that one story. That is the sort of holding our breath and wondering what will happen next unhealthy excitement, a concentration on the low vibrational that we would like you to step, everyone to step away from. It is vital, not just a nice idea, rather vital that we take time every week and in, a, in the smaller ways every day to steep ourselves in that which for us describes the new earth. Go out of our way to find beautiful and inspiring pieces of music or artwork, inspiring films, quiet and replenishing time spent in nature, time with loved ones, reading inspiring stories, or laughing at a comedy, comedies, at comedies or life situations, getting our diaphragm engaged in the process of expunging the deep emotions that lie buried there. Earth life challenges the collective speak on dealing with trauma and life changes. That is available on Amazon at short short URL dot at slash uh, what does that say, Rama? Mm-hmm. I O capital F capital P as capital F is in Frank capital P as in Paul capital Y as in Young. That's Carolina Oceana Ryan. Mm-hmm. And so what I will do here as I will pass this talking stick with all of the angels and fairies and feathers and crystals and rainbows and all that is for the last word with our sister Rainbird. And here it comes. Here comes this Uh, quetzal talking stick. Lots of extra feathers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did. I'll take that talking stick. And, And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good Caroline, for your words and for all that you played today. And wow, what a day! And we're in a new realm, I think. I think we're just we're doing it now. So wow. <laughs> I have lots of gratitude. I agree, sister. Something well, is up. Something is definitely yeah. up. The whole sense of all of creation. Even the worst news you can come up with, uh, there's an underpinning of moving forward that can't be denied. Uh, I can see it. I think you, we can feel yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's good. It's all good, and I'm going to pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. You have the final close with us today. Yes, what we got, Rama? What you got there for us? Um, 
the real you. <laughs> Alan Watts. Okay, let's do the real you. All right, are we done? No. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. And uh, since you're all here and engaged in this, you're ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. And uh, since you're all here and engaged in this sort of inquiry and listening to this sort of lecture, I assume that you're all on the process of waking up. Or else you're teasing yourselves with some kind of uh, flirtation with waking up, which you're not serious about. But I assume maybe you are not serious but sincere, that you are ready to wake up. So then, when you're in the way of waking up and finding out who you really are, what you do is what the whole universe is doing at the place you call here and now. You are something the whole universe is doing in the same way that a wave is something that the whole ocean is doing. The real you is not a puppet which life pushes around. The real deep down you is the whole universe. So then, when you die, you're not going to have to put up with everlasting non-existence because that's not an experience. A lot of people are afraid that when they die, they're going to be locked up in a dark room forever and sort of undergo that. But one of the most interesting things in the world, this is a yoga, this is a way of realization. Try and imagine what it will be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Think about that. Children. It's one of the great wonders of life. What will it be like to go to sleep and never wake up? And if you think long enough about that, something will happen. You will find out, among other things, that uh, it will pose the next question to you. What was it like to wake up after having never gone to sleep? That was when you were born. Ah. You see, you, you can't have an experience of nothing. Nature falls back. So after you're dead, the only thing that can happen is the same experience, or the same sort of experience as when you were born. In other words, we all know very well that after people die, other people are born. And they're all you. Only you could only experience it one at a time. Everybody is dying. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming. You know that very well. Only you don't have to remember the past in the same way you don't have to think about how you work the thyroid plan or whatever else it is. You don't have to know how to shine the sun. You just do it. Like you really. Doesn't it really astonish you that you are this fantastically complex thing? 
and that you're doing all of this and you never had any education in how to do it? Into the West, Rama, I was thinking of that song and you just came up with it. Okay, this is one number. Let's commit it that one to memory here. Four, two, five. Four, three, six. Sixty, two, sixty. And come together with us in the pin code with Cheryl. It's nine, four, six, seven, four, four, one pound. And that'll be tomorrow in the evening, about 10 minutes of 6 Pacific, 10 minutes of 9 Eastern, and the same thing on Monday evening. See you in your dreams on the bridge. And be in the kindness of our hearts for everyone's sake. And yes, we can. Namaste, everyone. See you on the bridge. Inshallah. Adamti. Aho, mitakwiasin. Aloha, everyone. Mahalo, nui loa.